There we go. Welcome to the mop up for May 5th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 62 degrees and sunny. Good news for Consortium News. PayPal has mysteriously shut down Consortium News, their account, and now they've mysteriously reopened it. They temporarily kept $10,000 from Consortium News. PayPal has reversed course and now says they will release the money and allow Consortium News to collect donations through their bank. PayPal gave no reason for temporarily freezing Consortium News's assets. They had about $10,000 with PayPal and PayPal was keeping it. Mint Press, the editor in chief, was on our show Monday. As far as we know, PayPal has still frozen out Mint Press. And to those of you who are concerned, my website is down. It has been down for more than 48 hours. It happened after we interviewed uh, the editor-in-chief of Mint Press. I am trying to get my website back up. I don't, for one second, think it has anything to do with the content of this show or the fact that we interviewed the editor-in-chief of Mint Press, but my website has been down for two days. Again, I'm not going to flatter myself and think for one second that this show is on anybody's radar, nor should it be. But it does mean uh, I'm having a bad day and you can't donate to my show. And today is around the time I usually do a pledge episode. But I can't send you to my website. I can't invite you to office hours. My website has been down for two days. Hopefully, it will come back up in the next few hours. But it has been down for two days. And they say they're looking into it just as well. I was going to do a pledge episode. I haven't sent out any thank you notes from the last pledge episodes. I have gotten some amazing donations. So thank you. My site is down. And I could, uh, I'm just ready to give up. Uh, <laughs> I am. I, I, it's just like, I don't know. I, I, you know, my site is down and I'm not even important enough to get shut down for my words. I, I think it's just down. I'm not even that. I mean, I just like, you know, what's the point? I don't care. I went to visit my mother yesterday. There was a homemade not wearing a mask, right? Said she didn't need to wear a mask, didn't bring a mask. I'm not allowed to tell you how old my mother is, but look at me, folks. And I think it's safe to say I'm younger than my mother. So imagine how old she is. And now I have a homemade worker insisting that she doesn't need to wear a mask. And if I complain, the homemade worker gets fired and I'm the bad guy, even though New Jersey law dictates all nurses or visiting homemades must wear a mask and gloves. But if I complain, she gets fired or even worse, put in charge. Uh, so go ahead, kill my mother with COVID. I don't want you to get fired. I don't want to be a bad guy. We're going through an agency that is owned by a private equity firm. So they're, you know, they're cutting costs and corners because that's the new frontier, folks. Private equity firms are buying up homemade services, assisted living facilities, hospitals and nursing homes. Go read about Bain Capital, how it's putting all its money into nursing homes and into drug rehab centers. Mitt Romney's Bain Capital is buying up drug rehab centers, which is why you cannot get free treatment on demand here in America. America because people have to make a living, which means you have to pay close to 30 grand a month sometimes to go into rehab and Bain Capital's rehab. It don't work. Well, it makes, you know, uh, Mitt Romney rich in that case, you know, in that instance, it does work. Bad day. Then I get into a lift 
car reeks of alcohol and I need to get back into New York City. And the driver is obviously drunk. And I'm at a point now where I'm thinking, well, this will be interesting. I'm serious. I'm like so catatonic. Uh, I get into the car with the drunk driver just for the thrill of it all. The, you know, what, what's what's the point? The Supreme Court is about to overturn Roe v. Wade. Christian Smalls, my hero, his Amazon labor union just lost the vote on the other Staten Island fulfillment center. So now only one fulfillment center goes union instead of two. And then, of course, Nina Turner gets destroyed, destroyed Tuesday in the primary in Ohio. So I'm depressed. I am just the American people. You know, eventually you got to blame the American people, I think. I mean, they didn't vote for Nina Turner. They didn't vote to go union. A visiting home aide who I'm trying to protect working for a private equity firm doesn't wear a mask around my mother. And I can't complain because I'm worried she'd lose her job, which she probably should. And then Dave Chappelle gets attacked on stage at the Hollywood Bowl. The guy's holding a fake gun that had a knife inside of it. Netflix and the Hollywood Bowl, aren't they supposed to provide security for Dave Chappelle? No. And he knew that, thankfully, he had his own private security guards wrestle this guy to the ground and they beat him to a pulp, broke his arm, stomped his eye. He looked as he was being arrested. He looked like a torture victim. Should not be happening. Should not be happening. You can't have lunatics rushing the stage carrying a knife. Aren't they wanding everyone who comes into a show? The guy had an imitation gun and a knife. This is unacceptable. You know, Netflix was putting this big show on and they support Dave Chappelle. But it is a corporation, which means they really couldn't care less if Dave Chappelle lives or dies. Obviously, if he dies, his specials bring in even more money for Netflix. Also, call me old fashioned, but I still have a problem with private security guards kicking, stomping and beating the shit out of somebody, even if he did rush Dave Chappelle brandishing a knife. Sorry, I don't like the idea of anyone needing their own private security and then their private security taking it upon themselves to apply frontier justice. I can't believe I have to say this, but Dave Chappelle's private security guards are not Los Angeles police officers. They are not allowed to kick the shit out of a suspect. That is the job of the L.A. police to kick the shit out of a suspect. I can't believe that I have to remind Americans that when you arrest Lee Harvey Oswald for shooting the president of the United States, you don't beat the shit out of him. You get Jack Ruby to shoot him. We don't do this here in America. And I understand why Dave Chappelle will want to stomp the shit out of a guy who storms the stage. And apparently Dave got a few kicks in. He went backstage and I think he did some stomping. And yes, the guy had a knife. He could have killed Chappelle. And if this happened to me, I would want to kick the shit out of the guy, which is why the people who apprehend him need to keep him away from me and wait for the police. That's supposed to be how it's done here in America. We are a nation of laws. I thought I found that very depressing. I found it depressing to see Dave Chappelle getting rushed. And I found it depressing to see the, the, the lunatic uh, with, with broken broken arm and a puffed up face like he went 10 rounds with um well i won't say that i don't want to get sued uh well 
The other thing that was especially depressing was the first thing out of Dave Chappelle's mouth after the attack was calling his assailant a transgender man. And the rest of the media, including comedians, use this attack as an example of how far the politically correct police are willing to go. They're now storming stages to shut comedians up. Two things I object to. Dave calling him a transgender man, man and, of course, comedians, the press, conservatives calling it the politically correct going too far. First, Chappelle calling his attacker a trans man. Uh, first off, for what I understand, the attacker was not a transgender man. He was homeless. His last address was, in fact, a homeless shelter. He was troubled. He was a rapper, and he apparently was a huge fan of Dave Chappelle's. In fact, he wrote a song in honor of Chappelle. This, as far as I can tell, had nothing to do with Chappelle's virulent attacks against the transgender community. This appears to be a deeply troubled homeless person who also happens to be a fan of Dave Chappelle's. And unfortunately, many times the people who are the most dangerous to a celebrity are their biggest fans. There's a thin line between love and hate. I have this tiny little corner of the internet, and I can't tell you the number of people who send me a series of emails telling me how much they love this show. And then suddenly one day they're accusing me of being a pro-Palestinian Zionist who wants to overthrow America in order to maintain the status quo. And the first thing I think is we need to take away all the guns in this country. But Dave, when he was physically attacked, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, oh, it's a transgender man. Now, look, I'm a huge fan of Dave Chappelle, or I was. I am disappointed by his fixating on what constitutes gender. This is a man who can take any issue and make it hysterical and change the world. Like America, Dave Chappelle has the power to feed the world, but instead he bombs innocent people. And this time it's the transgender community. I find that disappointing. I love America. I love Dave Chappelle. And both of them are disappointing me. And I find it depressing. It's depressing to hear comedians I respect accusing this attacker of being part of the PC police. It's depressing to take a very sad event, someone rushing the stage and attacking Dave Chappelle, and then seeing people twisting the truth to further their own let's say, corrupt agenda. This wasn't the PC police, the same way Will Smith wasn't being the, poli the PC police when he smacked Chris Rock. This isn't about censorship. It's about violence. This isn't about the transgender community trying to boycott Dave Chappelle. It's about violence. This attack on Chappelle is about untreated mental illness, economic precarity, and most importantly, homelessness. This is about Americans unable to afford their medication. It's about Americans who can't afford to see a psychiatrist. It's about people who end up living on the streets because people like Dave Chappelle fight low income housing. This is about people like Jon Stewart opening for Dave Chappelle that night, not getting any laughs, bombing, shouting the F word and screaming about the end of democracy and how we all need to do something about it. But he doesn't say specifically what we should do because he can't. He has no idea. He's a neoliberal hack in a bubble of financial privilege who doesn't support unions or even so much as divesting from the oil companies. Like so many of his kind, neoliberal hack, the union busting John Stewart screaming 
dreams about the end of democracy, but not saving the people who are supposed to be voting to save the democracy. It's a depressing day. So when I got into the lift and smelled the driver reeking of alcohol, I thought, well, this will take me out of my despair. I thought, wow, this guy's going <laughs> to actually try to make it over the George Washington Bridge. This is going to be good. Buckle up. My heart was beating. I was alive. Forget all these abstractions like unions or Nina Turner, climate change, Dave Chappelle getting attacked. This drunk driver and me, this is the real thing, the here and the now. Will this guy make it? Or will he drive over one of the barriers and take me into the East River with him? Let's find out. I felt alive. Who cared that just moments ago I read that Secretary of State Tony Blinken caught COVID at the White House Correspondence Dinner, that the White House Correspondence Dinner is turning into a super spreader event, just like the gridiron dinner a few weeks before. Aren't the White House Correspondents supposed to be the most informed people in America? Aren't we supposed to be wearing masks? Aren't the White House Correspondents supposed to be telling us to socially distance and wear masks. And yet the people who give us the news are willing to risk their own lives just to get a selfie with Kim Kardashian. Did you read about these respected journalists falling over themselves to get a picture with Kim Kardashian? All day we're attacked with images of suffering in Ukraine. We're on the brink of World War III. The same people scaring the shit out of us are having a grand old time dressing up for the Met Gala and giving each other COVID because what do they care they have health insurance. They have Cadillac plans of health insurance. So bring it on. So yeah, it's a little sad and depressing, isn't it? Especially having just watched David Rubenstein on CNBC talking about inflation and what's causing it. David Rubenstein, I have to do my own files here. So let me find this MFR if I can. Will I? No, that's the way it's going to be today, right? This is the way it's going to be. Here's David Rubenstein uh, talking about what's going on with inflation and what's causing it. Yeah, no, 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 no. We don't get to hear this, do we? No, here we go. David Rubenstein, what's causing inflation? Fuck me. Fuck me. Here we go. What's causing inflation? We still have the war in Ukraine and Russia that we're dealing with. Yes, that's what's causing. Were you able to hear that? Let me play that again. I'm a one man operation in a way, sort of. So let me just do this again. Tell us what's causing inflation. Uh, David Rubenstein from the Carlisle Group. Come on, you motherfucker. We still have the war in Ukraine and Russia that we're dealing with right right we still have uh the war in ukraine that he's dealing with an arms dealer dealing with the war in ukraine chairman of the carlisle group largest war profiteer in the world is worried that 40 billion dollars in aid to ukraine which is also 40 billion dollars in aid to the carlisle group will exert some inflationary pressures on the economy but of course nobody mentions on cnbc that 
you know, David Rubenstein runs the Carlyle Group and he's the world's largest war profiteer. In other words, David Rubenstein is saying, I'm making a fortune off the war in Ukraine. It's causing the price of gas, food, and even bullets to increase, but suck on it, America. Okay, David Rubenstein, what else is causing inflation here in America? Oh, fuck me. And we still have a uh, overall sense that uh, the, the government in the United States is somewhat dysfunctional and can't get things done as quickly as it should. You fucking piece of shit. The government. It's the government's fault, according to David Rubenstein. The government who David Rubenstein constantly lobbies to get nothing done except go to war. Nobody has more control over our government than David Rubenstein. Nobody makes nobody else spends more money to make sure this government accomplishes nothing. And then when it does nothing, David Rubenstein blames the government for doing nothing about it, like inflation. The government can't do anything about inflation because you've defunded our government. War profiteer David Rubenstein. Is there anything our government does right? War profiteer David Rubenstein. Is there anything the government does right? I'm very pleased with what the Fed did. I think it made the right decision. Uh, remember, central banks' main mission is to make certain that the currency of the country is stable and is not inflated into oblivion. And I think that's the Fed's main mission. I think it's doing a good job in it. You're a liar, David Rubenstein. The Fed's main mission is not to uh, cure inflation. The, the Fed's main mission is to lower unemployment and fight inflation. It was set up to keep Americans working while at the same time protect them from inflation. But the central banks have been taken over by neoliberal thieves like David Rubenstein, who only care about a strong dollar at the expense of the 99%. David Rubenstein, fiscal hawk and war hawk because it makes him rich. David Rubenstein is chairman of the Carlyle Group, also chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations. They publish Foreign Policy magazine. They're a think tank. David Rubenstein's big with Harvard, the Smithsonian, Sloan Kettering, the World Economic Forum, Lincoln Center. Make sure you give to Lincoln Center. And of course, he's chairman of the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. And so late last month, he played host to the Mark Twain Awards, which will be on PBS in three months. The PBS, that's a network that David Rubenstein, chairman of the Carlyle Group, mysteriously somehow ended up with his own show on the PBS. How does something like that happen? He also gives $10 million to Ken Burns. Every documentary that Ken Burns makes is funded by David Rubenstein. I believe Noam Chomsky calls this manufacturing consent. Yes, so he's chairman of the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. And as I've mentioned before, he handed out the Mark Twain Award. He hands out the Mark Twain Award. This year, he handed it out to union-busting neoliberal hack John Stewart. As I've said before, if Mark Twain knew there was an award in his name being given out by war profiteer David Rubenstein, Mark Twain would have said, now that's funny. Mark Twain would have said, now that's funny. Now, 
I don't know why David Rubenstein chose the union-busting neoliberal hack John Stewart for this year's Mark Twain Award. Maybe David Rubenstein is friendly with John's brother, Larry Leibowitz. John Stewart's brother, Larry Leibowitz, who used to have some amazing job as something like, when I was working for John, Larry Leibowitz was something like the chief operating officer of the New York Stock Exchange. He has since gone on to be a partner in some London-based hedge fund or investment group. I don't know. But, you know, who knows? Maybe Larry Leibowitz said to David Rubenstein, give my brother the Mark Twain Award because he doesn't have any awards. Shouldn't we shower him with at least a Mark Twain Award? So maybe that's what upsets me. You know, that David Rubenstein gets away with making billions off killing people and he defiles the memory of Mark Twain by being the one who gives out the Mark Twain Award. And the recipient this year is neoliberal union busting hack John Stewart, who spent couple of days ago, opening for Dave Chappelle, bombing and screaming about the end of democracy. But, you know, he hates unions and he hates comedy writers. The one thing he needs more than anything else as he continues to bomb his way to the top, he needs comedy writers, but he hates comedy writers. He hates Mark Twain. John Stewart hates Mark Twain. So David Rubenstein figures, give him a Mark Twain prize. You don't believe me that John Stewart hates comedy writers? Well, here is neoliberal union busting hack John Stewart at the 92nd Y earlier this year talking about comedy writers, you know, the job that Mark Twain had. I don't know if you know this, comedy writers are not known uh, for their love of man <laughs> and their thoughtfulness uh. and their kindness and their empathy. Mm, yes, John Stewart thinks comedy writers are mean. They lack empathy because they asked him for health insurance and he said no. John Stewart thinks comedy writers are mean because they asked him to recognize the Writers Guild of America and he said no. And then because we have a National Labor Relations Board when he had no choice, when the writers went union, he proceeded to punish them. I was there, I saw it. So who better to get the Mark Twain prize than somebody who hates comedy writers? Mark Twain, comedy writer. And Jon Stewart doesn't think Mark Twain deserves health insurance or the right to join a union. And he's the voice of reason in America. Little depressing, right? When most people think Jon Stewart is on your side because most people think he's a good guy. It's depressing. He doesn't like human beings. He's all, he only cares about saving animals. He couldn't give a shit about humanity, humanity. So I get in the lift with the drunk driver because, hey, I want to feel something. Unfortunately, I made it home safely. Uh, the guy was weaving back and forth for a little while. I felt alive. I got out of the car. I was about to kiss the ground out of gratitude. And then I realized, what are you doing? It's New York City. You don't kiss anything, especially the ground. So I turned around and I politely asked the driver. This is after the 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 homemade uh, woman 
uh, wouldn't wear a mask around my mother. Right. So I, you know, I politely asked the driver if he would like a cup of coffee. And he goes, why? Why do you why do you think I need a cup of coffee? And I said, I think you've had too much to drink. Short story long. He ends up begging me not to report him to Lyft. Right. He says, I just had an operation. I have three kids. This is the only way I can support them. If you call Lyft and tell them I'm driving drunk, I won't be able to support them. Please don't call Lyft. I'm the bad guy. I'm the bad guy because I want a nurse's aide to wear a mask and not give my mother COVID. I'm the bad guy because I expect my Lyft driver not to be three sheets to the wind. So I promise not to, to call Lyft because what would happen? He'd end up homeless, right? And rushing the stage at another Dave Chappelle concert. So I didn't, I didn't call. Same way the homemade, not wearing a mask around my mother, couldn't call. She'd end up homeless if I reported her. So in one day, I kept my mouth shut. I couldn't complain. Two people, two people. One conceivably could have killed my mother. Another conceivably could have killed me, which is much worse than the person who would have killed my mother. The jury's still out on whether or not that would be a bad thing. And I'm more concerned about the Lyft driver and the aide than I am about my mother or me. Desperate times require desperate measures. Well, on today's show, abortion and Ukraine. Coming up in about an hour, we'll be talking with one of the world's leading experts on Ukraine. And then in about 90 minutes, it's the return of Professor Corey Brett Schneider, professor of political science at Brown University, where he teaches constitutional law. He is also the author of Oath and the Office, a guide to the Constitution for future presidents. He's also been editing a series of Supreme Court decisions. I think it's for Penguin. We'll talk about this. Most importantly, though, today is Cinco de Mayo. I did that to piss off Rodrigo. It's Cinco. It's Cinco de Mayo. It is Cinco de Mayo. For those of you who don't speak Spanish, that means the 6th of May. The 6th of today is it's the 5th of May. It's the 5th of May. It is a holiday for Mexican-Americans, for Mexicans celebrating the defeat of Napoleon III at the Battle of Puebla. It was back in 1862. Pay attention. You may have to rewind and listen to this again because I'm going to plow through the information, but it's kind of interesting. Mexico was an independent nation back in 1862, but it owed money to Great Britain, Spain and France, and it couldn't pay it back because a civil war had broken out in Mexico during the years between 1858 and 1860. This was what was called the Reform War. It was a Mexican civil war pitting liberals against conservatives. And it really is illustrative of who conservatives are and who liberals should once again be. Now, before Mexico Civil War, they had a liberal president. This was in 1857. And with their liberal president in 1857, Mexico drafted and passed a brand new constitution that took 
power away from both the military and the Catholic Church. This was a liberal constitution. It gave the vote to all male citizens. It guaranteed freedom of speech, freedom of the press and freedom to protest. It outlawed slavery, debtors, prisons and capital punishment. It favored individuals, peasants over property owners, it favored people over the church and over corporations. It called for a strong judiciary branch as well as a powerful Congress that would help prevent a president from becoming dictator, a liberal constitution. This new constitution said that while Catholicism was Mexico's favored religion, it could no longer dictate the teaching of our children and would have to give up, the church would have to give up its massive land holdings. It was a liberal democracy, and the conservatives fought this constitution. The conservatives in Mexico fought the constitution. Mexican conservatives vigorously opposed the new constitution because they were in favor, the conservatives favored a strong military, a weakened judicial and legislative branch, and a more powerful president. The conservatives in Mexico favored corporations over individuals. They didn't want to give the vote to everyone. They favored the Catholic Church teaching children. They opposed separation of church and state. They opposed freedom of speech, freedom of the press and the right to assemble. They were conservatives. That's who conservatives are and always have been, no matter how many ways they try to spin it. Being in favor of liberating the markets from the tyranny of government does not a liberal make. Mexican conservatives didn't want civilians to be as powerful as the military. The liberals, interestingly enough, did favor giving everyone the right to bear arms. The conservatives did not. So there's that. The liberals wanted everyone to have the right to vote and the right to bear arms. The conservatives did not. So there's that. So the Mexican Civil War, when the new constitution was ratified on February 5th, 1857, conservatives in Mexico did what conservatives in America and all over the world do. They refused to accept the will of the people and they staged a coup d'etat, a civil war broke out pitting the liberals in Mexico versus the conservatives in Mexico. The Catholic Church sided, as they normally do, with the conservatives and begun to excommunicate all the liberal politicians who supported a new liberal constitution. After roughly two years, the conservatives lost the Civil War. A new president, a liberal, previously the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who had been arrested by the conservatives during the Civil War, he became the president. He was a liberal. His name was Benito Juarez. The new president, Benito Juarez, a liberal, found himself saddled with a Mexico nearly bankrupted by the Civil War. There was no money because when the wealthy conservatives lost the Civil War, they do what conservatives always do. They looted the nation's treasury and skipped town. 
because that's what conservatives do. They favor corporations and landowners over government and the people. Conservatives favor the military over democracy because conservatives love money and power. They prefer the status quo, conserving the way things are so long as the rich and powerful determine the way things are. Conservatives love religion, but they hate Jesus. Conservatives love their country, but hate 99% of the people who live in their country. And so the conservatives, the fiscal, the fiscal hawks, they bankrupted Mexico. They stole all the money and did the patriotic duty of leaving Mexico because that's who conservatives are. They bankrupt the government and leave the country they love so much. The liberals won the Civil War, but now Mexico owed money to Great Britain, Spain and France, who back then were kind of like the 19th century's version of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Now, the liberal president of Mexico, Benito Juarez, said there would be a two year moratorium on paying back these international loans because of the Civil War. Great Britain and Spain reluctantly accepted that France, under the leadership of Napoleon III, wanted its money. But he really didn't want the money that was owed. He just wanted Mexico. Napoleon III was Napoleon's nephew, and the French elected him president in 1848 as a way to restore order after the revolutions of 1848, also known as the Springtime of Nations, where a wave of liberal reform swept over 50 countries in Europe. That was back then when there were 50 countries in Europe. You should read about the revolutions of 1848. It started in France. The revolutions of 19, 18, 1848 started in France, and they were led partly by the workers, the middle class and liberals who wanted to end the monarchy and replace kings with democracy and also get rid of serfdom. This all started in France in 1848. The French had restored the monarchy in 1830. But in 1848, once again, the French monarchy was overthrown and a second republic was declared with a founding principle that gave every French citizen the right to a job. This was an uprising of the workers, the revolutions of 1848. But it was short lived. By the end of 1848, the workers' revolt had been squashed in France by the election of the conservative Napoleon III, and he became France's new president. Right? He was a conservative, not a liberal. But because the new constitution didn't allow Napoleon III to have a second term, Napoleon III did the reasonable thing and seized power and declared himself emperor of France. Like I said, conservative and emperors need empire. He needed a flimsy excuse to invade Mexico. So he insisted Mexico owed France money. And so he invaded and the Mexican army under the liberal presidency, after years of civil war, they found themselves outnumbered two to one by Napoleon III's French army. But miraculously, at the Battle of Puebla on May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, 1862, the French were defeated by the liberal Mexican government. I know this is hard to believe, uh, but 
in the 19th century, it was hard to believe that the French could be defeated. Well, at least until they fought the Prussians. So that's why we call today Cinco de Mayo. It was the, the liberals defeating Napoleon III at the Battle of Puebla on May 5th, 1862. This kind of brings us to Ukraine, specifically Russia and America. And that would require us to go back to the Battle of Puebla, Cinco de Mayo, when Mexico defeated the French imperialist army on May 5th, 1862. That Mexican victory over Napoleon III, unfortunately, was short-lived. The French regrouped, and in 1864, they seized Mexico City, the capital of Mexico. Napoleon III, with his army of about 30,000, conspired with Mexico's conservative wing, and they dismantled the democracy. They won, and they installed Maximilian I of Mexico. He became Mexico's first emperor. He answered only to himself and France. Maximilian was not French. He was Austrian. He was the younger brother of the emperor of Austria. France, with some assistance from Spain and Great Britain, let's call it, oh, I don't know, a NATO alliance. They invaded Mexico with the help of conservative right-wing Mexican business leaders, politicians and generals. They invaded Mexico, took it over, and installed an emperor, a European puppet, to rule over Mexico, Maximilian I. So where was America in all this? Well, while Mexico was busy fighting its civil wars, we were busy fighting ours. But we didn't like what was going on in Afghanistan. I mean, Mexico. Yes, to the south. Russia has Afghanistan down south. We have Mexico down south. And we didn't like what was happening in Mexico. We were fighting a civil war, but we knew France was violating the Monroe Doctrine. The Monroe Doctrine. In 1823, President James Monroe established the Monroe Doctrine, which has served as precedent for presidents like Teddy Roosevelt, Jack Kennedy, and Ronald Reagan. The Monroe Doctrine says no European nation may colonize any part of the Americas. You know how NATO has Article 5? An attack against one nation is an attack against all member nations. Well, in the 1820s, while Monroe was president, there was a massive wave of South American countries shaking off Spain and Portugal and becoming their own nations. Monroe's doctrine said that any attempts to recolonize these countries in South America would be considered an attack against the United States. And I guess that's a noble sentiment. It was America saying North and South America no longer belong to Europe. Stay out of our business. But when Maximilian was installed as emperor of Mexico in direct violation of the Monroe Doctrine, we were too busy trying to stay America. The Civil War was taking up our energy. Unfortunately for Maximilian, the emperor of Mexico, the Civil War drew to a close. And so America turned its attention south and bankrolled the liberals, the constitutionalists in Mexico, and helped topple Maximilian, and we restored constitutional government in 1867. The emperor, Maximilian, was urged by Europe to hightail it out of Mexico, but Maximilian, the emperor, felt a loyalty to all the Mexican soldiers 
leaders of the Catholic Church, landowners and businessmen who fought for him. So he stayed. He was captured by the Mexican government, the liberals. And although the new constitution eliminated the death penalty, they made an exception for Maximilian. And on June 19th, 1867, Maximilian I became Maximilian the last. He was shot before a firing squad, but not in the face. This is my favorite part of the story. Not in the face. Remember the scene in The Sopranos on the boat when Big Pussy is about to get whacked by Tony, Silvio, and Pauly? And Big Pussy's last words were, please skip, not in the face. Those were Maximilian's last words. He and this is true. He handed each member of his firing squad a gold coin and said, please, not in the face. Why not in the face? After Sonny was shot at the causeway, Don Corleone pays a visit to the mortician Bonacera. Sonny is lying on the slab riddled with bullets. Don Corleone says to Bonacera, the funeral director, I want you to use all your powers and all your skills. I don't want his mother to see him this way. Right. That's what Maximilian the first wanted. He said he didn't want his mother. This is what he said. I don't want my mother to see me that way. Not in the face. You know, I'm Jewish and my people, we don't do open coffins. We never say not in the face. Uh, we bury the dead the next day and only one person is assigned the unenvi unenviable task of lifting up the coffin yeah, that's my father. Get rid of him. Let's eat. That's how it's done. Now, I respect everybody's religion, but this open coffin thing seems like a waste of money. Plus, we're made to feel guilty for whacking a guy in the face out of respect for his mother. Hey, you know, maybe if Maximilian's mother, maybe if Sonny Colleone's mother, maybe if they raised these guys properly, we wouldn't have to worry about their faces. Maybe if more mothers saw their son's bullet riddled faces, they do a better job with their kids. I don't understand this obsession with dressing up a corpse and then opening the, the, the coffin to look at somebody whose face has been plastered with layers upon layers of concealer, like their Mitt Romney on Meet the Press. There's no difference between a corpse and a coffin. They're both empty vessels. Grab whatever organs you need for the next person and cremate that shit. But I digress. Cremate that shit. That's my will. That's what I wrote. Cremate this shit. The Monroe Doctrine. America will not allow a European nation to colonize any part of the Americas. That's what the Monroe Doctrine says. So in 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, John Kennedy discovers Russia building missile launching sites. He invokes the Monroe Doctrine and orders a naval and air quarantine blocking Russians from bringing in more soldiers and equipment. Ronald Reagan invokes the Monroe Doctrine to fund the Contras in Nicaragua, who were fighting to overthrow the Sandinistas, who may or may not have been too friendly with Russia. Ronald Reagan invoked the Monroe Doctrine to fund right-wing death squads in El Salvador, the same right-wing death squads that raped and killed three innocent American nuns and assassinated Archbishop Oscar Romero. 
Ronald Reagan invoked the Monroe Doctrine to prop up an El Salvadorian leadership that ordered the assassination of an archbishop, a Catholic archbishop, and the rape and murder of three American nuns and another female missionary. Not only that, America's religious right, especially Jerry Falwell, thanked him for doing this. I mean, I know the Baptists, like Jerry Falwell, had a problem with, have a problem with Catholics, but supporting people who rape and kill nuns? Well, you know, on second thought, that seems about right. I would expect that from Jerry Falwell. In the last year of Jimmy Carter's presidency, 1980, El Salvador was ruled by a repressive military junta. Guerrillas were fighting to topple it, and rightfully so. Think of El Salvador as being ruled by Maximilian I of Mexico and the guerrillas being liberal land reformists who believed in a constitution that protected workers, democracy, and freedom of the press. This is 1980. Jimmy Carter was still president. He was running for re-election against the profoundly racist Ronald Reagan. And while this is all going on, Archbishop Romero in El Salvador takes the streets of El Salvador and delivers an impassioned plea to the military junta asking them to end the repression of the people of El Salvador. The Archbishop of El Salvador, right? Catholic Church says, quote, in the name of God, in the name of the suffering people whose cries rise to heaven more loudly each day, I implore you, I beg you, I order you in the name of God, stop the repression. The next day, while delivering mass, Archbishop Romero assassinated by the junta while delivering mass. The CIA that year concluded he was killed by right-wing leader and soldier Roberto Dobasan. The United Nations conducted their own investigation and also concluded Roberto Dobasan killed Archbishop Romero. Bad guy. Bad guy, Dobasan. He had his own right-wing death squad, and he was cooperating with the military junta and taking on who he called Marxist guerrillas, accusing them of being supported by Russia. No proof of that. He said in 1980, all it would take was killing 300,000 El Salvadorans to solve his nation's problems. When Ronald Reagan in 1981 became president, Roberto Dobasan also became president of El Salvador. Right? And so, Ronald Reagan invoked the Monroe Doctrine and propped up his friend, the right-wing authoritarian dictator in El Salvador, Roberto Dobasan, the guy who killed Archbishop Romero. He invoked, Reagan invokes the Monroe Doctrine and starts propping up Roberto Dobasan, the president of El Salvador, claiming, he said, to fight off the threat from Russia. Four Catholic missionaries, including three nuns from America. We're talking about three nuns and a missionary raped and killed by five members of El Salvador's National Guard in December of that year, of 1980, right? Well, Carter had been defeated by Reagan in 1980, but he was still president. 
And when he discovers that the nuns were raped and murdered by soldiers taking orders from El Salvador's new president, Roberto Dobasan, he suspended American foreign aid. Seems reasonable. You rape and you order the rape and killing of American nuns. You don't get foreign aid. Then Reagan becomes president two months later, and he immediately reactivates foreign aid to the military junta in El Salvador. Gene Kirkpatrick, Reagan's ambassador to the United Nations, believed it took decades, if not centuries, for a country to learn how to become a democracy. And so some nations just aren't ready for democracy, which is why she said she had no problem supporting Dobasan in El Salvador. When asked why the Reagan administration was willing to do business with El Salvador's military junta, remember a junta that ordered the rape and killing of three American nuns? The lovely Jean Kirkpatrick famously said, quote, the nuns were not just nuns. They were political activists. We ought to be a little clearer about this than we actually are. Jean Kirkpatrick, political activists from America, three nuns, nuns who go down to El Salvador to question, to challenge the brutal repression of a military dictatorship, according to Jean Kirkpatrick, are guilty of political activism. And so you really can't blame El Salvador's military leadership that we're now doing business with. You can't blame them for raping and killing these three nuns. I mean, look at what they were wearing. That's what she said. Reagan invoked the Monroe Doctrine to send close to $5 billion worth of aid to El Salvador's military junta. He also sent our CIA agents down there to train more of their death squads. Well, why was this happening? Because America was supporting General Batista in Cuba, General Somoza in Nicaragua, and the right-wing military junta in El Salvador. So when you do something like that, you're going to end up with a revolt. And we conveniently labeled anyone revolting in those countries as communists. And soon, eh, you know, they looked around and they said, maybe Russia will help us. Look, Forget Marxism, forget capitalism. Let's talk freedom and democracy. Cuba, Nicaragua, El Salvador were run by fascists who were supported by America. They murdered and raped their citizens. They looted the treasury and cooperated with American drug dealers, American banks, and of course, American corporations. America was propping up fascists, okay? And when you have fascists, Marxists are sure to follow. Putin is bad, just as bad as America. We've been colonizing not just Central and South America. America has been colonizing Eastern Europe. We've been expanding NATO right up to the border of Russia. And that means Eastern and Central European countries are doing business with America and the EU instead of Russia. Up until the invasion of Ukraine, 40, 42% of Ukraine's international trade was with the European Union, only 8% with Russia. Ukraine is the largest country in Europe and it's right up against Russia and they're doing more business with the 
European Union than they are with Russia. Imagine if America woke up one day and discovered nearly half of Canada's foreign trade was with Russia. Imagine if Russia invited Canada to join the Warsaw Pact, and then it also invited Mexico to join the Warsaw Pact. Do you think we might feel economically and militarily squeezed? The U.S. also has nuclear weapons spread all over Europe, in Belgium, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and Turkey. That doesn't include Great Britain's nuclear weapons and France's nuclear weapons. And you know where they're pointing? Where do you think? Russia. I know Putin isn't on the side of the angels, but let's not pretend that we are. Let's stop the war. Let's stop the fighting. This is about land. This is about natural resources. This is about real estate and money. Let's go to the table and negotiate. Peace. We need a cease fire, which brings me to abortion. The right, the conservatives always depend on the church. We saw it in Mexico. The church opposed liberal reforms because the church works with and for the landowners. When you support a military regime that rapes and kills three nuns, assassinates an archbishop, like Ronald Reagan did, he supported a regime that killed three nuns and assassinated an archbishop. When you do that, you have to offer the church something. And Reagan gave them abortion. Jerry Falwell, the religious right, the young Republicans, Jesse Helms, conservative Catholics, they they were perfectly not OK, but they accepted nuns getting raped and killed. So long as America was pro-life, abortion is not about human life. It's about colonizing a woman's uterus. This Supreme Court ruling that got leaked belies a deep hatred for the poor for women and 99% of the people who live in America, this Supreme Court ruling is in the service of the wealthy landowners who refuse to support free health care for the 99%. They call themselves pro-life, but time after time, they demonstrate they couldn't care less if we live or die. I believe it's Republicans it's conservatives, not abortion, that should be safe, legal, and rare. We will be back with our special guest, but first some music from Mike Steinell.
Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. And the website is still down. We're going into, I think, our third day where the David Feldman Show website uh, won't load. I've been told they're looking into it. Uh, I wish I could say I was important enough that they were doing it because of what I said, but I don't think, unfortunately, I just think it's, you know, incompetence as opposed to uh, cracking down on my right to free speech. Uh, before we bring in our, our guests, I just uh, I'm concerned about office hours, which we do every Friday night at 8 p.m. If you can't access my website, you will not be able to sign up for office hours. If you're in earshot, my suggestion is if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, I don't know what to do. I'll have to ask Dan later on. I don't know. What we're going to do if people can't go to my website. Well, Professor Ivan Kachanovsky is professor at the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. He's the author of Cleft Countries, Regional Political Divisions and Cultures in Post-Soviet Ukraine and Moldova. And he is co-author of Historical Dictionary of Ukraine and the Paradox of American Unionism, why Americans like unions more than Canadians do, but join much less. And he is writing three new books on the conflicts and politics in his native Ukraine. He previously held academic positions at Harvard University, the State University of New York at Potsdam, the University of Toronto, and the Klug, Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. Please welcome Professor Ivan Kachanovsky. Thank you for joining us. Thank you uh, for invitation. It is a pleasure to join your show. So Ukraine, let's focus on Ukraine. Professor, you were born in Ukraine? Uh, yes, I'm originally from Ukraine and I research Ukraine professionally since I got my PhD in the United States. And I can say that based on my research, uh, Ukrainian politics is more interesting than Hollywood movies. And I'm telling this to my students and to other people because uh, currently Ukraine is in the middle of a major war, which has impact not only on Ukraine and Ukrainians, but on the entire world. Right. What you're in Canada. What are let's start with Joe Biden, our president. What is he doing right? What is he what is he getting that? Uh, Vladimir Putin doesn't get? What does he understand? I think uh, he um, is a very important player in this war taking place right now in Ukraine because uh, uh, Putin uh, started this war. He invaded Ukraine illegally uh, in violation of international law in February of this year. And this was uh, not justified by any uh, danger, military danger from the United States or from Ukraine. Even so, uh, Putin mentioned a variety of reasons for invading Ukraine, like, uh, for instance, um, the nazification of Ukraine or Ukraine joining NATO. There was no such possibility of Ukraine joining NATO in for the foreseeable future, and Ukraine is not a Nazi state in any kind of any form. So in this regard, uh, Biden uh, um, it was correct that he rejected such uh, uh, false reasons or false justifications by 
Putin in order to invade Ukraine by violating international law. So in uh, another important um, think, uh, issue which uh, was done correctly by Biden uh, is that he decided not to get United States involved directly in this war because this would mean a possibility of a nuclear war between Russia, which is a major nuclear power in the world, and the United States, which is another major nuclear power. So in such case, it would be very dangerous, not only to Ukraine, but also to countries like the United States and Canada. Okay. Thank you for that. What is he getting wrong? I think uh, the issue is, uh, I'm not sure if this is wrong or not, but uh, here actually uh, justified uh, the war in Ukraine, in particular our Biden uh, justifying supporting Ukraine in this war by the need to support Ukrainian democracy and uh, to support Ukrainian sovereignty. But according to my research, Ukraine is not a democracy, it's largely a democratic state, and it's actually similar to Russia in this regard. And in terms of Ukrainian sovereignty, again, uh, Ukraine is, uh, became basically very dependent on the Western countries, including the United States, which have a significant effect on policies of the Ukrainian government, and, and uh, in particular in this war. And just today there was a, a major Ukrainian uh, publication in which there was a revelation that uh, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom visited uh, Zelensky in Ukraine in the beginning of April of this month. And he specifically told Zelensky not to negotiate with Putin and not to make any peace deal with, uh, with uh, Putin. And this was a decision which was accepted by Zelensky. So this is just one illustration of this case. So in this is, I think, very important issue as well. And I think another issue which is um, very important is that uh, Biden and other Western governments tried to use war in Ukraine, which was started by Russia, uh, as a proxy war with Russia. So they want to uh, basically use this war to weaken Russia and this is openly admitted by uh, top uh, leaders of the United States and by many other Western governments officials. Many of my listeners say there's no negotiating with Vladimir Putin, that he is hell-bent on reclaiming Ukraine, and there's nothing Joe Biden could have said before the invasion to prevent it. Is that true? Okay. Uh, I would respectfully disagree because I studied this uh, conflict in Ukraine uh, for a very long time. This is my specialty. I wrote my dissertation on this topic and I follow um, conflict in Ukraine very closely before it actually started. And actually I warned about possibility of such war in my uh, television interviews in Canada and in my publications in, uh, in Canadian magazine called Canadian Dimension and in the US media before this war started. And I said that it was possible actually to prevent this war, which would be very devastating to Ukraine by uh, reaching a peaceful resolution to this conflict. It was possible to avoid this war by, for instance, having peace deal in which Ukraine would become a neutral country in exchange for, um, for agreement uh, from the European <laughs> to join, uh, for Ukraine to, to have possibility to join the European Union and agree to fulfill Minsk agreements, which were a major issue for Russia, uh, and Russia used this also to justify its invasion of Ukraine. So there was such possibility, and uh, Zelensky and the Western governments, in particular Biden uh, administration, uh, did not uh, use such opportunity. And even after the war started, there was a real possibility of this deal, which would be 
would, which would have avoided escalation of this war and casualties in Ukraine and also affected many other countries. At the end of March, uh, there were negotiations in Istanbul and there was a, a suggestion by Zelensky to basically agree to a neutral status of Ukraine, non-NATO membership, and in exchange, Russia would uh, basically would uh, just uh, take control over, um, uh, would uh, basically uh, uh, take, uh, uh, would, uh, would uh, retreat from territories which it, uh, it was captured with the exception of Donbass in eastern Ukraine and with the exception of Crimea, which it annexed. But there was such possibility of peace deal uh, and it was real. Okay, so uh, we're, we're talking with Professor Ivan Kachanovsky, professor at the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. And he is, I'm sorry, did you say? Oh, I have to mute somebody here. Some, uh, we're, we're picking up, hang on for one second. Uh, okay, sorry. Uh, let me, because you're talking to America, we automatically assume somebody has an agenda and we have to filter it through the prism of your agenda. You're, you're Ukrainian? Uh, yes, and I'm originally from Western Ukraine and I'm a Ukrainian and uh, I'm uh, also Canadian. Uh, I live in Canada and I lived for a very long time in the United States. I got my PhD in the United States, uh, actually okay. in the direction of uh, two leading political scientists. Oh, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm just, uh, let me ask you about, uh, are you a Russian-speaking Ukrainian? Um, no, I, I speak Russian like uh, most Ukrainians do, because this is uh -huh. uh, basically, uh, this was taught in schools and university, but I am a native Ukrainian speaker, so I speak Ukrainian. Um, okay. I'm originally from Western Ukraine, close to Poland, which is uh, traditionally is very anti-Russian, in terms of its right. um, kind of po politics and policy. And I never... Okay. Let I me ask you some... Okay, let me ask you some rude questions, yeah. and I apologize, okay? I'm, these are rude questions, but I live in America, and we are a rude people. Did you welcome Vladimir Putin as a liberator when, when, they, when they marched into Ukraine? Did you say we're saved? Obviously not. This is, I mentioned this from the start. This was illegal invasion. It was not justifiable in any way. And I said this in a publicly, in my television interviews, in Ukrainian media, in Ukrainian television, in Canadian television interviews, in other uh, social media. So this is like <laughs> kind of- Okay, I think they're insulting questions, but you're talking to people in a very insulting country, America. So you, you're Ukrainian. You did not welcome Putin as a liberator, but you do think it was possible to have prevented the invasion. So let, 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 let me just continue along these lines, if you don't mind. Um, do you believe that Ukraine and Russia share a common heritage that, that dates back to you know, 600 years ago or some odd years ago, and that they're, they should be united as one. Uh, this like is um, actually was topic of my dissertation. Uh, actually, eastern part of Ukraine and southern part of Ukraine used to be part of the Russian Empire for centuries. 
But the Western Ukraine, where I'm from, was, uh, was part of Poland between World War I and World War II. And a significant part of Western Ukraine was also part of Austro-Hungarian Empire before this. And uh, this is uh, one explanation why we have such significant regional differences and uh, conflicts in Ukraine. And I do not support Ukraine joining Russia in any form or uni uh, any kind of form or way. And actually, I actually publicly always supported Ukraine becoming a member of the European Union. And I wanted okay. to, uh, Ukraine to become like Canada, like Western democracies, which are liberal democracies, uh, like uh, Canada or Poland or Germany or Belgium and so on. So this is uh, kind of... So I, I think you and I probably inadvertently share pretty much the same viewpoint. I believe that the invasion of Ukraine is a war crime, obviously, and Putin's a monster. But I also suspect that there was more America could have done to prevent the invasion from taking place. And that's what you're saying. Yes. Yes. This okay. Is exactly, and this is based on my research. And I actually going to present a paper on this topic on the war, um, which is going on at the Conference of American Political Science Association in Montreal in September of this year. So all my comments are based on my research, academic research, which um, again is not partisan in any way, but is based on evidence which I examine. And, but actually, unfortunately, there is a problem with media coverage because media coverage is often very simplistic and not complete and often uh, uh, kind of relies on a false um, or fake news. And for this reason, a lot of people have very simplified view of the current war. And, and since I researched this conflict for professionally for a very long time, so I cannot just accept uh, or rely on media coverage because this is issue which I uh, rely on professionally and academically. So I, uh, I use evidence which is not made uh, publicly available in, in the West, in the Western media. And this is, I think, also a major issue why this conflict is often right. misrepresented or is uh, kind of presented in such a way. Okay, so uh, the Minsk Accords, would you agree that, that we're not talking enough in America about the Min Minsk Accords? Uh, yes, the uh, Minsk Accords were, uh, were actually one possibility to solve this conflict peacefully in Ukraine before the war started, because they provided for uh, autonomy of Eastern Ukraine, but within, uh, within uh, sovereign, sovereign Ukraine. And Russia agreed to this, and uh, there was such possibility of, uh, of basically resolving this conflict peacefully if all parties of this conflict would accept such, um, such a deal. But unfortunately, uh, this, um, there was no possibility or there was no such outcome. And um, Russia resorted to military invasion, uh, in particular, um, because uh, Putin felt that only military pressure would force Ukraine or Zelensky government to reach another kind of deal, but in terms which would be much more favorable to Russia. And the Minsk agreement were signed after Russian military interventions in the civil war in Donbass in 2015 and before this in 2014. So Russia already basically invaded Ukraine, but in, uh, only in a limited way in Donbass. And now basically uh, Putin is repeating this, but on much wider scale and much more destructive way. All right, let me ask you a couple of questions that could get me into trouble here in the United States. The Donbass region. Was Zelensky was the Ukrainian military firing on the Donbass region before Putin invaded Ukraine? 
Uh, yes, there was a significant fighting between uh, Russian, um, sorry, uh, Russian, Russian separatist forces and uh, Ukrainian military forces and uh, paramilitary formations in the bus since 2014. And uh, according to estimates from the United Nations, more than uh, 14,000 people were killed in this war, civil war in Donbass since 2014. And the fighting actually before the Russian invasion was uh, continued in, in this Donbass, in particular shelling from Ukrainian forces, but also from separatist forces. And, but casualties were much smaller compared to what took place in 2014 and 2015. And there was no indication that the Ukrainian government forces planned to launch um, attack on Donbass as Putin falsely claimed uh, in order to justify his invasion of Ukraine. Right. But while President Biden, two weeks before the invasion, kept saying he's going to invade, there's no question about it. During that period, was Zelensky and the Ukrainian military escalating the missile attacks on the separatists in the Donbass region? Uh, yes, there was increased shelling from Ukrainian forces of uh, Donbass uh, and Donbass uh, locations, uh, but I think this was uh, aimed at uh, Donbass separatist forces uh, and not at civilians, uh, because civilian right. casualties were relatively small compared to what right. took place after the Russian invasion and compared to what had uh, what the, was the case in 2014 and 2015. So it's so the president of the United States, if he didn't want Putin to invade. Conceivably, he could have gotten on the phone with Zelensky and said, let's dial back the heat in Donbass. Let's not fire as many missiles right now. It looks like Putin's ready to attack. Is that a reasonable expectation from an American president to call uh, the president? Yes, I think this, is, uh, this was a real possibility. And in addition to this, also Biden could have told uh, Zelensky to agree not to join NATO because there was no such possibility. And this is not just my speculation, because actually there are tapes of recording between Biden when he was vice president under President Obama, and then President Poroshenko of Ukraine, who was president of Ukraine since um, in 2014 and 2019. And uh, basically in these tapes, uh, Biden um, was openly um, discussing uh, policies of Ukrainian government and appointment of top government leaders and telling Poroshenko basically what to do and what not, what not to do. And according to official transcript of the Ukrainian uh, Security and Defense Council in 2014, which was publicly released and is the official document, actually Western governments, in particular US government, told Ukrainian government in 2014 not to resist a Russian annexation of Crimea in order to prevent Russia from launching war with Ukraine because there was already such possibility of war between Russia and Ukraine in 2014. But then, at that time, Western governments, in particular US government, and in particular President, uh, Vice President uh, then uh, Biden, uh, decided and, and basically told Ukrainian government not to uh, use military force in order to stop and to prevent such a war. So this was possibility to do this again in this conflict. But unfortunately, this was not done, and I think this is uh, tragedy for UK and also have many negative effects on many other countries, including the United States. There was a phone call 
between Putin and Biden two weeks before the invasion. It lasted an hour. Biden got off the phone and said he's going to he's going to invade. There's no talking to him. Putin made it clear that he did not want America to invite Ukraine into the EU and NATO and to stop courting republics along the Russian border for both the EU and NATO. Earlier, you said you were in favor of Ukraine joining the EU. Had President Biden said to Putin in December of last year, look, I'm not going to say this openly, but you got it. If you don't invade Ukraine, we will quietly stop courting Ukraine for the EU and NATO. Would that have satisfied Putin if Biden had quietly promised to stop trying to pull Ukraine into the West's orbit? Uh, I'm not sure if this was done quietly, if Russia would accept this, because Russia said that the previous uh, such uh, informal um, agreements, for instance, by NATO, or assurances by NATO countries, leaders, including the United States, not to expand NATO in other countries in Eastern and Central Europe, like Poland, or the Baltic states, which were given to Soviet and uh, Russian leaders, um, were not uh, fulfilled. Basically, uh, Putin justifies this by the failure of Western government, uh, governments to follow on their own uh, agreements, not to expand NATO, and he wanted formal, uh, formal agreement, uh, formal assurances from the United States or NATO, not to expand NATO. Uh, into right. America had promised Gorbachev not to expand NATO if he would allow Germany to reunify, but, but that was a promise made to the Soviet Union that we wouldn't expand NATO. We never made that promise to Russia, correct? Uh, yes, uh, but I think there were also uh, promises afterwards to Russian leaders, to Yeltsin, and uh, Yeltsin also raised this issue, but uh, Russia considered itself successor to the Soviet Union. And this right. was, I think, kind of their view that uh, promises which were made to the Soviet Union and treaties which were signed by the Soviet Union were still fulfilled by Russia because Russia was considered to be a successful state or to, uh, uh, to the Soviet Union. But I think right. in another case, in case of the European Union, Russia formally did not object from Ukraine becoming a member of the European Union. So in this case, European Union membership could have been a solution to this conflict because uh, if European Union countries and the United States decided to kind of use this as a, uh, a way to resolve this conflict, because in such case, Ukraine would benefit, uh, Western countries would benefit from avoiding the war, and Russia did not object from uh, Ukraine becoming a member of the European Union, uh, at least um, uh, publicly. And this is, I think, uh, a suggestion which I offered before this conflict, uh, before this war started. Okay. Uh, I, I, I am so grateful that you're here, and we only have five more minutes, and there are three questions I wanted to ask you about. Maidan, was that a coup orchestrated by the United States? I think this is very, yeah. I'm sorry? Uh, this is a very big issue. This is, I think, a very central issue. And I have this paper on this topic, which I'm currently research, uh, researching. And I can say that based on my studies, which I did about Maidan massacre, that um, 
this massacre of police and protesters in 2014 was, uh, was um, uh, key to violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government, which was relatively uh, pro-Russian government. And um, this uh, massacre, again, led to, uh, to uh, then president of Ukraine basically fleeing to Russia because of assassination, assassination attempts against him. And this was the reason why uh, Ukrainian policy changed. And the Western governments, in particular US government, uh, de facto accepted this uh, transition. And I think this suggests at least that uh, Western governments, in particular US government, uh, supported de facto um, violent overthrow of Ukrainian government in 2014 by uh, means of, of such violence, which was undemocratic. Okay, so, 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 I under, so I understand this. Yanukovych, who was considered a puppet of Putin's, was the president of Ukraine. He ended up leaving uh, after Maidan with about $15 billion. There was violence. Uh, there was shooting on Maidan Square. I know that you have videos. So are you saying who, who was doing, committing the violence? Was it, do we know who, who was doing the shooting on the protesters? You're, you're yes, saying I researched, it? I said this for eight years. And there are videos which shows there were snipers in Maidan control locations and there were Maidan snipers. There were uh, public admissions by um, 14 members of Maidan sniper groups about uh, their involvement in this massacre. And then this so is they, the snipers, yeah. the so snipers were, were siding with America or Russia? Who were the, who were the snipers? They were siding with Western supported opposition. So they were part of Western supported opposition, including far right organizations. I see. Uh, we have limited time, so you're so you do you do say that the Maidan uprising was in fact a Western staged coup. I, no, I cannot say this. I'm not sure if this was a regime change, a U.S.-led regime change, which have right. in many other countries. If this was a coup, far-right-led coup, or regarded coup, or it was, or if this was a revolution, in particular far-right-led revolution. I think there are various elements of this. Uh, different uh, kind of events taking place, and I'm not sure yet what is decisive in this regard because public documents about U.S. government involvement are not yet uh, made public, so I cannot say definitely what happens. And this is, uh, I think, a very important issue. You, would you agree that Russia and Ukraine are equally corrupt? That they're both controlled by oligarchs, and that these oligarchs are a result of Western bankers helping these oligarchs loot the nation's treasury? Um, yes, Ukraine and Russia are very corrupt countries, but in contrast to Russia, in which uh, Putin basically took control over oligarchs after, soon after he came to power. In Ukraine, oligarchs are still very important and very powerful. And um, Western governments basically supported Ukrainian government uh, uh, and, uh, and including oligarchs, which are Western oligarchs, not because they are not corrupt or because they are democratic, but because they are very useful against Russia. I think this is the main reason why the Western government supported uh, Ukrainian um, uh, governments, in particular during the war with Russia. Last question. Well, I hope you'll come back because this is, I, I want to thank Professor Bill Greenberg for recommending you because this is. Uh, we're, we've been talking endlessly about this war. Finally, and this is a loaded question, is Zelensky a Nazi? Is the Azov Battalion in charge? 
of the Donbass region is the military of Ukraine controlled by Nazis? Um, I said this issue, obviously, Zelensky is not, a, is, not, is not a Nazi in any way or form. So this is like false claim by Putin. But Azov uh, regiment is actually led by the neo-Nazi party and the neo-Nazi organization. And it's uh, de facto, uh, again, a far-right uh, led organization of far-right uh, military unit in Ukraine. And this is based on my research, which is presented in top conferences in the United States, publishing peer-reviewed articles and journal articles. So I'm sure about this. So this is kind of 100% asset in this regard from based on my research. Is there a Nazi problem in Ukraine? Uh, there, are, there is a far-right problem in Ukraine. Even so, uh, neo-Nazi organizations and far-right are not very popular in Ukraine. They fail in elections, but they have a very significant power, informal power, and they were able to influence uh, even decisions by Zelensky in particular because he was elected as peace president and he wanted to, to do a peace deal with Putin uh, soon after his election. But far-right organizations, in particular neo-Nazi-led a group which was led, uh, linked to Azov, basically the civilian branch, stopped Zelensky from doing this by threatening basically violence against him and his, and, uh, his overthrow, similar to what happened during the uh, Maidan in 2014 when far-right uh, organizations uh, took very active role in overthrow of then the Russian government. Well, we ha- unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. We've been talking with Professor Ivan Kachaovsky, professor at the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa, author of Cleft Countries, Regional Political Divisions and Cultures in Post-Soviet Ukraine and Moldova, and co-author of Historical Dictionary of Ukraine. Well, I can't thank you enough for this. Uh, I, there's some things uh, I have to reevaluate, some things that I thought and you reconfirmed a lot of what I uh, believed. Will you please come back? Okay. Yeah, this would be great. Thank you for the invitation. So it was a pleasure. Well, it, thank, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com, when my website is back up. Welcome back. Well, joining us is actually a friend of mine who I haven't seen in a while. It's Professor Corey Brettschneider. It's good to see you, sir. Good to Political see you, David. Thanks for calling me a friend. I feel the same way. Good to see an old friend. Yeah. Yes, and and uh, I want you, uh, I want to have lunch with you. Yes. So definitely, we have had lunch before, and, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Yes, a couple of times. You are the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. I want to talk to you about this Supreme Court decision that got leaked in a second. But you're also editing a series of books. I'm going to say Penguin. Am I? Yeah. Oh, for Penguin. Yep. Yep. Uh, One of the books, it's a collection of uh, decisions written. One was by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Who else are you editing in this it's, series? Uh, the idea, I mean, it's actually going to be an easy transition to, to talking about the case. It's uh, looking at one word, uh, just as the Supreme Court does in this in this draft opinion, 
And that word is liberty and trying to understand what does this thing mean? And part of the idea of it is that constitutional liberty, rightly understood, isn't just about government not bothering us. It's not just about freedom from intervention. That's part of it. Congress shall make no law, for instance, abridging the freedom of speech. But my point in the series is it's also about democracy. It's about our collective freedom of trying to figure out how to weigh these individual liberties against other uh, obligations, against other liberties, for instance, the, the clash sometimes between equality and, and, and uh, free speech, equality and religious freedom is part of it. So there are four volumes. One is on impeachment, obviously, the way we preserve liberty against the tyrant, or at least are supposed to and, and failed to. Uh, the second is um, on free speech uh, with uh, lots of excerpts of John Stuart Mill and Alexander Micklejohn, famous cases about free speech, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, uh, but also um, looking at uh, more controversial contemporary theorists of free speech. So it, it publishes alongside Mill and Micklejohn uh, the work of uh, a really important critical race theorist, uh, Charles Lawrence III, and looks at his arguments about banning hate speech. Uh, instead of just sort of reading about a caricature, you actually read the real writing of, of the people defending who, who he's one of the creators of that view. Uh, there's one on religious freedom um, uh, and uh, one, as you said, on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's decisions and dissents and the idea of her legacy and how we, sh we should read her words to try to think about the Constitution. And then there are two more coming. One is uh, the debates of Alexander Hamilton about liberty with Jefferson and Madison. Um, debates that are really familiar to people from Hamilton, the musical, but these are the actual debates with commentary about how to understand them. And then the last is classic cases of the Supreme Court. And classic cases doesn't mean what people might think. It doesn't mean the great cases. We don't call it that. Because the idea is that many of these cases were either wrongly decided or even evil. So it includes Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson and Korematsu, the worst decisions of the court. Now, why read them? The idea is to try to prompt uh, readers to think for themselves about these issues and actually to, to say that you don't want to leave constitutional liberty in the hands of a Supreme Court when they often not only get it wrong, but really destroy uh, liberty in, in the worst way. So uh, it's uh, Penguin Random House and um, it's called Penguin Liberty and uh, check them out. We've got four out already and, and two more. And if you want to hear me talk more about it, I know we're going to talk about a different issue. I did a New York Times book review podcast uh, on it. And um, we, we had a pretty great in-depth discussion there too. Well, let's talk about the reason you're here. Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Do you think <laughs> that was going to be my joke? <laughs> uh, what are you laughing? Okay, I knew you'd go with yeah. that or I also thought Will Smith. That was, I was even, even money on the two. Right. So you have a piece in the New York Times back in 2018 entitled Kavanaugh must answer the abortion question. This was back when Kavanaugh was yeah. up for confirmation and uh, Dianne Feinstein, who was sentient back then, focused more on whether or not Kavanaugh was a rapist. Uh, and we really did we ask him questions that focused on Roe v. Wade, what Amy Coney Barrett was 
up for her hearings? Did we focus on Roe v. Wade? And wasn't there a time when that was deemed inappropriate to ask a Supreme Court justice where they stood on Roe v. Wade, that there shouldn't be a litmus test, that they're supposed to be impartial, inappropriate for the Senate Judiciary Committee to ask a Supreme Court nominee about specific decisions like Roe v. Wade? That's a, a, a view that Republicans have promoted. And in fact, they call it the Ginsburg rule. Supposedly, it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg who said that it would be inappropriate to say where she stood on Roe versus Wade, which in the piece that you mentioned, the New York Times, I early on say is a lot is a lie. It's a, uh, ridiculous. <laughs> the idea that Ruth Bader Ginsburg wasn't going to say what she thought about the fundamental right of liberty, including reproductive freedom, um, is she is left a, a paper she trail talk about it. She absolutely did talk about it in the hearing. Now she had a different, we can talk about her view. She had a different way that she said she might have defended had she been in the court at the time, Roe versus Wade, in terms of equality rather than equal protection instead of liberty. But she absolutely believed that there was a fundamental right to abortion guaranteed by the Constitution. Now, Republicans took her words out of context and claimed she didn't answer the question. But yet they seem to be forthcoming. So what they did, and this is true of Gorsuch, Barrett and Kavanaugh, but really Kavanaugh did it in the most extreme way, is they used this language that sounded like they actually gave, and this is why Susan Collins could say she, she had a guarantee that she, she, she could rely on. He said that Roe versus Wade was a settled precedent. Now, what does that mean? All that it means is, and he just explained a little bit about the case, that there was a case called Roe versus Wade, in 1973, the Truon Griswold versus Connecticut. And these confirmation hearings, the ju judges, uh, future justices are very good at giving a little bit of a constitutional law lesson the way that sometimes you and I have done over the past without saying anything about what they think of the precedent. So saying it is a precedent is just a fact. Or am I gonna respect the precedent? He never said anything about that. And I think that little stupid wordplay that he was doing worked, unfortunately, on Susan Collins, or even if it didn't work on it, her, it gave her enough cover that she could say she had this guarantee. But he never said anything of the sort. In fact, I, I was in that piece urging, unless he said directly, I will respect it, he shouldn't be confirmed. It suggests that he had an anemic understanding of the Constitution and of liberty. And um, so that's what I'm urging is a no vote in that, that piece in the New York Times right. accounts that he's lying, basically, or, or trying not lying, but using a kind of trickery in order to get us to uh, think that he's somehow committed to not overturn that case. And it's just ingenuous for anyone to think or claim they think that they're surprised that any Gorsuch, Amy Coney Bryant and K Kavanaugh were picked for uh, reasons other than they were pro-life. They came yeah, to us no, through Federalist Society. What is the Federalist Society and how culpable are they in this decision? Well, I'll say, first of all, President Trump, Donald Trump told us that's what he was doing. And so, uh, you know, we, we in general, I found during the Trump administration, if you didn't take him at his word, it was at your own peril. So he gave us fair warning that that's what he was looking for. Uh, the Federal Society, there's a, you know, we've talked a little bit about the Federal Society. There's a, a, a person who was high up in the Federal Society named Leonard Leo, not an academic. The Federal Society, a lot of people in it are conservative law professors. Leonard Leo is more of 
an operative. And um, he, he had a hand in running the Federal Society, but then left and went into the Trump administration, where my understanding is he basically was picking these nominees and telling Trump, like, OK, this is your your candidate. Now, how was he picking them? Certainly he was looking at the abortion question fundamentally, whether or not it was somebody they could really trust. They didn't want another example. And there have been several, um, including Justice Kennedy, where um, a Republican picks what they thought was a conservative justice and gets anything but. Justice Kennedy, of course, pioneered the gay rights jurisprudence um, uh, in addition to voting to uphold abortion rights. So um, that's they weren't going to make that mistake again. And yeah, I think the three that they picked are far from uh, anything like moderate or liberal. They are diehard conservatives. Do we know if this decision is final draft? They're saying it's not. I mean, the courts admitted it's genuine. It's not made up. And you could tell that by reading it. Um, now, you know, there's a lot of speculation about who leaked it. One thought is that it might be have been leaked by conservatives, either possibly a conservative clerk for Alito or one of the other conservative justices with the hope of trying to lock it in. Uh, so it's going to be awkward, you know, if they change anything, they can certainly, and they say they're going to go about their normal process, which would include negotiation, basically, amongst those voting for the opinion about the language, and they'd be some back and forth. Certainly, I think, had it not been leaked, there would have been a push from Justice Roberts, if he's signing on, to uh, moderate, um, maybe from some of the other justices, including Kavanaugh, because this is just an outright, you know, I, I don't know how to put it, it's on fire in terms of saying Roe versus Wade was a terrible decision from day one. There's nothing about it that's right. There's no reliance interest that people can sort of over time come to expect a right to an abortion. And all of that um, they push, uh, you know, push aside in order to say this, this, this case was terrible. That I think would have been tempered, but the, um, that's just not, I don't know. We'll see if it happens, we're going to notice. Was this a fishing expedition? Was the Supreme Court looking for a case to bring oh, up? Oh, yeah. It, it was just a matter of time. I mean, this this was, you know, Mississippi designed this law in order to give them a case, tee it up to, to challenge Roe versus Wade. And, you know, I've been saying since the confirmations went through of, of certainly Kavanaugh and definitely Barrett, that there's no way this is going to last, I thought, one term at the most. Um, there was some speculation that said, well, they'll cut away at it. You know, slowly they'll look for case after case and not ever say Roe is no longer the law, but they'll just eviscerate it through a death of a thousand cuts. And I, I, I frankly never believe that. And, and because they're, they're there because of their ideological commitment to reversing the case. And they certainly have fulfilled what I think, frankly, for um, Barrett and, and Gorsuch and Alito are, and Thomas are, you know, their primary mission there is to undo what they think of as this really terrible and misguided case. If this passes, is it, does it make the pantheon next to the Dred Scott decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, Karamutsu decision? Is um, is that I think it's pretty bad. I mean, you know, Dred Scott, it's when you're ranking bad cases, <laughs> I think it's hard to compete with Dred Scott and Korematsu right. because they really were 
I mean, Dred Scott says that black people are not people under the Constitution. I don't know how you get worse than that. And then second to that, the, of course, justification of the roundup of. Um, uh, There's Bailey. <laughs> that's Bailey dog. <laughs> I think that's Chinese food coming in the background for uh, my wife and daughter. And now Bailey's coming. Bailey's getting the whole gang. Yeah. Um, it, and you don't edit anymore, I know, too. So we'll have. No, no, we're live. Yeah. 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 Um, the uh, the so those cases are hard to compete with in terms of levels of evil. <laughs> but this is terrible. I mean, you know, uh, the right to an abortion is the, the entitlement to uh, enjoy the most basic liberty and privacy. And I, I think it really undoes, this is what I'd say is egregious about it, apart from the specific right. It really undoes and cuts against the whole idea uh, that you should read the constitution in terms of one huge theme, which is the right to be let alone from government. And it mocks really that idea that you should read the constitution looking for a theme like that. And instead defends this idea of originalism in such a, a way that would get rid of almost all all rights. Right. We're short sighted. We look at this decision and think, all right, it's over. We lost abortion. But this also serves as a building block, a precedent upon which the Supreme Court can decide other. What are you laughing at? It's going to be some fried rice. <laughs> oh, you're reading the chat room. <laughs> is that what people want to know? What we order? Yeah, what is your order? Everybody's going to be hungry, trying to focus on the most important, the most important. <laughs> what, what, what is that your history, order? But we've got Chinese food and. What did you, what's your order? It's pure chaos. Uh, we had some, uh, some uh, roasted pork, uh, some mm -hmm. chicken fried rice, and uh, some dumplings. Okay. All right. So as I, uh, once again, I have to. Real. You didn't know you were inviting this chaos after all this time. <laughs> Just, so, is about is precedent? This, I, yeah, yeah. It was. What, a, let what, me answer what, that because that's a crucial question. I'll refocus us. Uh, I used you. to do when I was a high school teacher. I would say to the class, "Focus." And a kid asked me, "Like, why are you always saying focus? We're paying attention." Uh, and I said, "It's because of me. <laughs> I'd lose focus." So I'm refocusing <laughs> us. <laughs> refocusing. Okay, Okay. The precedent question, I think, is crucial here. So he says in the opinion that I'm saying there's no right to an abortion. Abortion is special and involves um, the beliefs of many voters, for instance, that the fetus is a, is a person. We should talk more about that and the implications of that. But he says that makes it different than other privacy cases like Griswold versus Connecticut, the right to use contraception. Or um, there's a case called Lawrence versus Texas, which is about the right to be let alone in matters of who you have sex with. Um, uh, uh, the court said there that there's no that that laws that prohibit quote unquote sodomy, so-called sodomy, are uh, unconstitutional violations of privacy. They relied all on the same root case, which is Griswold versus Connecticut, about the right to privacy. Now. He says, oh, I'm not talking about those cases. I'm just talking about abortion. But I don't see how you could eviscerate the idea that liberty means what the court says it means in Roe without also getting rid of those other precedents. So I do think that the way he's reading the Constitution, the radicalness of the opinion 
has huge implications for the direction of the court. I don't see how you could defend the gay rights jurisprudence, for instance, and believe what he says, the right to gay marriage. Now you might say, well, we rely on those rights. Now that's true of abortion too. We assume we've had that precedent for years and years. So how is he gonna wiggle out of that? He might not want to, he might be setting himself up with this radical opinion. Why write it so harshly? I think it's because he has an agenda and the agenda is to really clear away all of the jurisprudence that starts with this case, Griswold versus Connecticut, about the right of a married couple to use contraception in their own home and extended in a case called Eisenstadt to individual rights to use contraception. And then extended again in Roe versus Wade to privacy rights and then extended again to gay rights. And for me, reading it, the reason I found it not shocking, Unfortunately, I think it was what I expected from him, but it, it just is no holds barred in, in really wiping away that whole way of thinking. And to me, uh, you know, it suggests uh, the radical agenda that, that you, you and I have been talking about that I thought they've had from, from the time of their confirmation hearings, from certainly the Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Barrett hearings. Uh, the Supreme Court has to pay attention to the polling on issues. They do care what the American people think. The that was the Ogerfeld ruling was based on public opinion. And then they kind of uh, moved. Well, it. I think that he that might be true that they're influenced by public opinion. I think that is likely the case that it's hard to imagine a right to gay marriage absent, uh, you know, support among a significant portion of the population for it. But for Alito, that's exactly what he's opposed to. I think he thinks if you're relying on public opinion, then you are not doing constitutional law. Constitutional law is all about the meaning of the Constitution, the way it was originally understood at the time the provision in question was written. So if you're talking about the Bill of Rights, that's the 18th century. If you're talking about the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, that's the 19th century. And, you know, the idea that you would allow the Constitution to change with time, that's what he's arguing against. And not just in that draft, but that's his life's work. Scalia called it a dead constitution. And the idea that you would allow it to evolve was anathema to him. And, uh, you know, fact, Scalia is not on the court anymore, but they, they, his view has won. Clearly, you just saw it. Scalia said it's a dead constitution. Yeah, he used to, I think often he said stuff just like that or different plays on it to mock people who, you know, he was pugnacious, like, he loved he used to, to say that was that was provocative. <laughs> but yes, he, used he thought to, that it was a dead constitution. He used to uh, keep a copy of the Constitution on his desk with a pillow over it. <laughs> That's how they found him, by the way, in the hunting lodge. Yeah, I should not be laughing at that joke, but David, that is unfair. Didn't they That's find him with a pillow over his head? I, I don't know. This is. Uh, yeah. Because this is it where it seems like a normal podcast and then just <laughs> a different direction. All right, they didn't so, say that in the New York Times podcast. <laughs> didn't make that joke. <laughs> uh, we we have limited time. I, it's great to see you, and I, I, we should do this more often. I know you have. I, I know you have a little more time now. What does this mean? So each state will get to decide whether or not abortion is legal or not? Is that what in the immediate rule? future? That's right. That there'll be no Roe versus Wade said there was a, a national 
uh, right in, in the Constitution's various provisions guaranteeing liberty, including the 14th Amendment, but also elsewhere, uh, that it guaranteed any person anywhere in this country the right to an abortion. Now, the court, in undoing that, is saying um, no more. So the states will decide in the immediate future. But my concern is, and this is about the radicalness of what the court wants to do, that um, I had a piece, for instance, about Justice Gorsuch's views on this, that the more radical possibility, not next, next year, not even in five years, but say 10 years from now, I think the agenda and the goal is to try to read into the Constitution of the fetus's right to life. And what that would mean is every state outlaws murder and we have a guarantee of equal protection of the laws. So if you're not treating murder, quote unquote, of the fetus, the way you're treating murder of uh, born persons, unborn versus born, if there's a distinction, the way murder is treated, that would be a violation of equal protection of the law. That's the route that they could use uh, to guarantee um, a national uh, uh, ban on abortion. That's a ways off, but Justice Gorsuch's mentor is a man named John Finnis, a famous, very conservative natural law philosopher, and that's his view. And I, I believe that Gorsuch holds that as well. Here's my final question. The Supreme Court has decided that corporations are people. Uh, not right? exactly. That's probably another episode. <laughs> they well, have given some rights to corporations based on the idea that they have, in some instances, <laughs> they're, they're, Bailey did not like that that answer. Uh, no, they haven't quite said that. They've they've certainly extended rights of free speech to corporations and other rights. But I don't think if they really believe that and that rhetoric is sometimes used against them. But if they really believed anything close to that, corporations would have a right to vote under the 15th Amendment. They can't they really can't believe that corporations are people. But if if the right wing believes that corporations are people and fetuses are people instead of abortion, can we just have the Justice Department go in there and break break them up. <laughs> That's uh, that is just I knew I was in for it. Just I love the I, setup, too. I forgot how good it is because it just shocks you because <laughs> that's the idea. You're doing a constitutional law podcast and then you just have I'm, just, I'm just, you know, just saying, yeah, oh you have you through antitrust legislation. I don't really think that would be the approach that I would use to try to criticize the court, but. But I, 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 I get it. I you know, it. once again, you've embarrassed me. I, I try to keep this show high level and sophisticated. And are we still going to have lunch even after that joke? Definitely. Are you kidding? Okay. I'm going to try not to time and I'm sure I'll be cracking up. Uh, uh, full. Well, it's great to see you again. And Professor Corey Brett Schneider, besides teaching constitutional law at Brown University, is the author of countless books. He's written for the New York Times, Politico, Atlantic. Uh, everybody should go by the oath in the office, a guide to the Constitution for future presidents. Buy this book. Uh, if you don't like it, I'll reimburse you. And he's got a six volume series that he's editing for Penguin Liberty. Uh, they're coming out uh, now as we speak. The most recent one is the decisions and dissents of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Is there what 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 just came out? What, what, uh, free or what? speech is out. Volume on free speech, uh, volume on religious freedom, and on impeachment. So we've got four of the six out already, and two more. It's great to see. 
It really Thank is. You. It, because of COVID, you, you know, it was hard to see you. So yeah, I'm really looking is. forward to talking more and to having lunch and to, I, yeah. I love your audience. Of course, I hear from some of them sometimes and it's always so fun. And Bailey would yes. like to say to you that um, he, uh, he really disapproves of uh, this opinion uh, uh, from Justice Alito, and he wants to thank you for giving him a voice as well. So there you, you go. Do, and you do know that Elizabeth Warren also has a dog named Bailey. Yeah, you've told me that several times. I, I love it. Just, okay. Thank, thank you, you Professor. David. Thank you. Thank you. You're thank listening. You. Thank you. My site is still down. And who better to deal with this paranoia than my next guest? Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a Freudian psychoanalyst. And Ethan Hershenfeld is a brilliant comedian. Dear Lord, it is, it, it's, if you told me this morning the two of you were seated next to one another, I'd say, yeah, that seems, it was a week ago. How yeah, quickly. Yeah, the time flew. Time flies when you're having fun, David. Yes. Uh, you sound, both of you sound good. So I got a lot to talk. My website is down. So let's deal with my paranoia. I don't Putin, think. I, Putin put it down. I wish. Oh, I'm wondering if it. Uh, what is paranoia? Am I wrong? Am I fl I'm flattering myself by thinking somebody thinks I'm saying things that are so incendiary that they have to shut me down, right? That's paranoia. What is the relationship between paranoia and an inflated sense of oneself? They are related. Um they're on a continuum your variety is is a mild case of it and it's probably um vulnerable to reason somebody could probably sit down with you and say david let's look at the facts how likely is that I mean, you're not such an important person after all. So, so that, that, that's a mild level of paranoia. And then there's a continuum up to the point where people are totally convinced that um, there are little miracles controlling their eyelids. I also, right. I feel like the hand gesture you just made, was that a, when you went like this, was that... <laughs> <laughs> it looked being, like that to me. Am I being paranoid? Or? Yeah, no. he he picked it up. Okay. Well, you know there there are these stories of people, uh, whistleblowers, uh, who are being followed, who can hear their f clicks on their phones and they go to their doctor and say somebody's listening and their doctor says real just calm down you're not and it turns out they were being you know they'd come home and things were rearranged on their desk and it turns out it was the fbi doing a no-knock warrant without so ethan although there's also a type of paranoia 
where you come home and you're convinced that everything in your apartment, this is called Capgrass syndrome. You're convinced that everything in your apartment has been replaced by an identical looking object, but it's not the same one. And I've seen a few of these cases over the years and there's no talking them out of it. Hmm. That's interesting that I, I can understand one person thinking that, but that, that that is a condition. I find that odd. It's, well, a, it's, it's, not, it's not a common condition, but in my practice lifetime, I've seen maybe three or four. I've seen six or eight. Okay, well, there you go. Um, there's a I've subset. Seen one, I've seen one case, but, but somebody came in and <laughs> changed it. Go ahead. There's actually a subset of the Capgrass syndrome. This is um, uh, a syndrome where you think that every object in your apartment has been replaced by something cheaper. It's called the Ikea grass syndrome. <laughs> So uh, holding on to things, possessions, I have a couple of friends who are hoarders. I know some older people who are holding on to things. You, you go into their homes and don't touch that. Is that is hoarding an American problem because we're so materialistic and we attach meaning to things that are you know or or is this just human nature to hoarding is a symptom that mostly appears among people who have been unable for whatever their particular reasons to form deep meaningful connections to other people and as a result they just try to substitute by what we call cathecting or endowing great emotional significance to inanimate objects to take the place to fill that hole in their heart. And um, it, can't, it can't be done unless it's a beautiful mug. If the mug is really nice and it, has, <laughs> if it says something like number one dad, that, that's, that's better than a, you've seen those you know mugs? What? I feel like Picasso's father. The story is that when Picasso was a teenager, he was already painting for a number of years, and his father looked at his paintings, and, and he, he, said, said, he said, I must put down my brushes now, and he never painted again. Yeah. Well, well there, there that, that was pretty impressive. Yes, it was. It's what's yes, known it in, um, um, in German, the, the term that Freud used for that type of impromptu explanation, it's called Kuhscheise, which means cow shit. That's the, the I was making it up, but, you know, I was hewing close to. Well, listen, as long as we're bragging about our kids, Dr. Hershenfeld, the, the, the same, the same nachis that you just had listening to your son, right. when the Supreme Court decision leaked, my son texted me, GOP, more like GO-poo. And I thought, you know what? I'm putting down the brush. <laughs> this is, what, what a, 
what a genius this kid is that he could come up with a joke like that. So I know how you feel, Dr. Hirschfeld, having a I don't know. Are we already off the paranoia and the hoarding? Because I do no, have no, I, I something I wanted to say about Roe, but we'll yeah, get hold to Hold on that. for one second. Well, let's talk about paranoia. Can you remember what you were going to say? Absolutely. Yeah. I wish okay. I could forget it. Okay. You said cathecting? Oh, cathecting. Cathecting. Um, yeah, well, what is that? Cathexis is a word. It, it means to really get your panties in a twist about something. It's imbuing imbuing something with feeling, with meaning, with affect. I see. Okay. But like, Excellent. Uh, yeah, like you might have cathected your nursery school teacher. You, uh, you might You're have a mask. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So, um, no, I wanted to say. Uh, paranoia. Paranoia. Oh, paranoia, yeah. No, yes. I wanted to. Oh, yeah. What, what, what were you going to say about paranoia? I feel like you're you're going to judge me too harshly. I'm, I'm, no, no, go ahead. I feel like you guys are both you're ganging up on me. I, I don't. We're really whispering want to, behind your back. I don't want to. I don't want to open myself up to that. Do you know what anthro anthropodermy is? Anthropodermy. It's like putting on a human skin, like one of those. Yes. Yeah. There's a phenomenon of books. They tend to be medical books that are bound in human skin. Ugh. Yeah. Wow. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Paranoia. Paranoia. Um, Well, it's an interesting thing, actually, because one of the most useful things I've heard from a friend from whom I get some very useful counsel sometimes. There's a thing called the four reminders. And one of the reminders, I'm never good at remembering lists of things. Um, mm -hmm. Even when I go shopping, I can't remember. I can just remember one thing. But one of the four reminders is take nothing personally. So anything that's happening, just don't take it personally. And in fact, so I guess paranoia would be the extreme version of not heeding that advice. You're taking everything personally. You believe that everything is about you. The thing you're seeing on the news is actually about you. The guy walking down the street, it's about you. It's all about you. So it's the extreme uh, unhealthy end of that spectrum of not taking everything personally. Right. And, and as you said before, David, it's extreme narcissism. Right. The whole world is about you. And, and if you could take that piece of advice life is much simpler. What if somebody says, I hate you, I want a divorce? Don't take it personally. You don't take it personally. <laughs> Point at the guy. Also, if somebody if hands some... you a bill, if someone hands you a big bill for something, don't take it personally. What if somebody... Didn't I tell you this story? It's apparent, supposedly a true story. Years ago, an analyst was sitting quietly in his office a disgruntled patient runs in waving a gun and this guy very coolly says he wasn't taking it personally he says you don't want to shoot me you want to shoot your father and <laughs> the guy gets confused drops the gun and runs out of the office now there's an and then he went and got job. another gun and shot his father 
<laughs> Maybe. Well, hypothetically speaking, hypothetically speaking, you're a performer and you're very famous. You're playing in front of 10,000 people at the Hollywood Bowl and you get bum rushed. Literally, a homeless person jumps on the stage carrying a knife and uh, you're tackled to the ground. Can you attach any reason to unreasonable behavior? I have noticed that people, Dave Chappelle, unfortunately, was attacked uh, while performing at the Hollywood Bowl. And a lot of people are now blaming the attack on whatever their individual agenda is. Uh, Dave Chappelle said it was a transgender man immediately after. Big joke, but that was just him tongue in cheek. I, I watched the tape. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and now people on the right are blaming it on the politically correct police who, uh, you know, saying the censor, this guy was trying to censor him. When, when somebody does something that is, is lunacy, am I allowed to use a term like lunacy? Can you, can you attach any meaning to lunacy other than lunacy? You could try, but you have no idea. You're just guessing. If somebody's Meshuggah, they're Meshuggah. They've got their own reasons. And it's very hard to figure out what they are and to project <clears throat> things that you don't like onto that person. It's just totally dishonest. Right. I'll tell you what, right. what really leapt out at me about that whole event. I was really horrified by then there was uh, a felony committed, which was the way they treated the guy. They then stomped Thank on you. him. They stomped on him. Not Thank only that, but, but even Dave Chappelle said, I'm going to go back there. And he went back there and did some stomping also. That's a felony. You're not allowed to commit revenge acts in our country. The laws don't, you're not suddenly permitted to beat the crap out of people because he, he tried to tackle you. It was unbelievable. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. It, you know, they I should, all those people should be arrested, and probably, I mean, the guy who committed it should be arrested. I think it was just shameful what Chappelle said afterwards about how he kind of gleefully said, "Oh, he's back there getting stomped." That's not you're not allowed to stomp people, no matter what they did to you. You know, I thought the same thing, and then I heard a voice in my head: "Just wait till you're attacked on stage." You, you won't. And I think, yeah, well, if I'm attacked on stage, keep the guy away from me. Right. You know, and all, I'm not also the, the uh, you know, I actually heard Howard Stern commenting on the fact that, it, you know, the way that guy was treated, being arrested is what should have happened to Will Smith. You attack someone on stage, you get arrested and dragged out of there that, you know, you shouldn't get beaten right. up for it, but you should get arrested. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. Sometimes I. It's it's amazing that you have to remind people of that, yeah, that you can't amazing. have your own private security force practicing frontier justice and deciding. Right. Uh, it's amazing that and he won't his his security guards will not be questioned by the police, Probably not. but also the guy likely is mentally ill. Do we is that really what you want to be doing to mentally ill people? You want to be beating the crap out of them? Right. He didn't hurt anybody. I saw the attack. He could have, but he didn't. He, I, I mean, anyway. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, 
That's an excellent point, Ethan. Oh, well, thank you, doctor. Now he threw the brush away. He just didn't put it down. He <laughs> threw it away. That's... Um, I d oh, I don't want to jump the gun and get into this row thing, but um, I did want to go ahead. Talk the row it. over row. Yeah, the row, the row over row, and also the 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 victim, the the, the victim of the rollback of row that no one's discussing is a very large group of people. It's men who prefer sex without a condom. You know how much yes. harder it's going to get. It's going to get you. so much harder to convince to convince a woman. Do we like? Dad didn't like that joke so much, but okay. No, I agree. I, I'm glad somebody finally. <laughs> it's the it's the it's the it's the key demographic in the story that no one is talking about. It's hard That's enough right. to convince a woman of that. Now, right. yeah. forget it. Yeah, I I think women. I think this is a Liz Estrada moment. You know, Aristophanes' famous play where women stop having sex with men uh, unless they stop going to war. Little did Liz Estrada know that most of the guys are having sex with other men in ancient Greece. What, what do we care? We don't need a, a friend of mine from college posted something very interesting on Facebook. Uh, she's an author. Uh, her name is Jace Anderson, and I, I don't want, I won't misquote her, but I'm going to quote basically what she said. She had a terrific post saying what this is really about is all the men who do the deciding on these issues, not wanting there to be a a, a country where there's complete freedom for women to have sex just for fun. That's what this all right. boils down to trying to police all these things around around pregnancy and around abortions and around women. And that's what it boils down to. It was it was an interesting point. Yeah. And the other thing is, and I, I'm going to ask an impolite question and I apologize, but I mean this. I may be ignorant, but it feels to me that the Republican the men should know that it is a lot easier for women to give up sex and become lesbians. And when I say give up sex, I mean, give up sex with men and become lesbians than it is for men to become, to have sex with lesbians. No, what am I, I'm saying, I isn't, it saying. E yeah. Yeah. isn't it easier for women to stop having sex with men than it is for men to, to stop having sex with women? This is just conjecture. You don't have to answer that question, doctor, if you don't want. I don't have any data, but I tend. I tend to give some to that idea. And that's I, it, I apologize. That's you speaking more, I would assume, as a man than as a psychiatrist. Right. I, I think I think most men think it's based on experience. Well, you know what? I have to, to be honest, I would say it's based on past experience. I think things are different today. I would say back in my day for to get a woman to switch from being hetero to homosexual, it, it would take about two drinks. But for a man, it takes about six drinks. Okay. Back in college, when I was, a, it takes six drinks. So that's the that's the difference. But it's not to say you know, 
Yeah, it's a it's fluid. It's a lot of fluid. It takes the fluid. <laughs> That's what they mean when they say sexuality is fluid. Wow. 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 Now, I was hired. I, I, I was brought in as a switcher when, when somebody wanted their daughter to become a lesbian. They would bring me in as the switcher. And it, remember the clothes? Yeah, what, 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 yeah I come in and... Uh, yeah, I had an audition. Uh, I had an audition today for a TV show in which I'm talking to another character who confesses to me that his wife has left him for a woman, and I, I, it's it that that plot in in Manhattan, where I right. guess it's Meryl Streep, who it it was, uh, it seemed like a quote of that, although I'm sure it's happened in other movies. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about Judaism. First off, Orthodox, one of the leading Orthodox rabbis in America came out against this leaked Supreme Court ruling saying that the that Orthodox Jews do not believe in abortion. But when the mother's life is in danger or her mental health is in danger, we support an abortion that the mother is more important than the fetus right that's the uh that's the trump card with all sorts of jewish law right as long as certain things that you would under all circumstances have to do or not do you then get a pass if if your health is going to be impacted isn't that right rabbi that's right pikuach nefesh isn't that what it's called pikuach nefesh saving a soul becomes First thing, yeah. like, saving like, even, like even something extreme, like like moving to New Jersey, you're allowed to do that if it's going to save. <laughs> Under normal circumstances, you would never. But if so, mental health though, yeah. How how could you get somebody a right wing Republican to understand? a woman's mental health when they can't even understand their own. They, they, do, they do not believe in the concept of mental uh, health. Right. Because or, they, of, or, of, or of a woman having full personhood. So I think, I think that, 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 that there really is an objectification of women on their side. They're kind of political pawns and they're family pawns, their birthing machines, their voters, they're all sorts of things. But I don't think they have a genuine sense of uh, women as as equal humans. I'm not saying all Republicans, but I'm saying these fundamentalist maniacs and right right to life. Abortion wasn't always uh, a political football, was it? It turns out from what I've read that this is a result of overreaching for Roe v. Wade. Because up to then, states, one by one by one, were coming around to the idea. It was getting approved. It uh, Most people in the country approved of it. And then once we came up with this idea, let's get a constitutional amendment, 
Then the Catholic Church had to step in and it became political and and Republicans grabbed it as a, as a football. They they knew they could run with it. And the religious right in the South, people like Jerry Falwell could no longer scream about integration. It just was a, a losing after the 60s. It was a losing battle. You couldn't be a, a religious leader who you know, bellowed for the separation of the races. So he found abortion as the next way to raise raise funds. It was very effective. So usually with the right wing, there's always a germ of truth, you know, and is it traumatic uh, for some women to find abortion to be difficult is that because of the cultural implications that because there's so many voices out there shaming women uh before during and after an abortion is that why some women might uh, have regrets or is there some innate there's, there's an innate feeling in all human beings about ending any kind of a life, even if it's a, you know, a potential life. That's one of the feelings. Some people feel stronger about that than others. For me, if do I think it's a good thing? No. But do I think it's a better thing? than sort of stopping the development of this person and bringing a child into a really terrible situation economically where the parent resents the existence of this child. Yeah, I I think I know where I would uh, come down on. Yeah, I think... You know, I, I've noticed that men just in my life have more of a problem with abortion than than women do. Uh, but that's just uh, the men I know in our limited time. I want to ask you about Lazarov, the, 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 the Russian foreign minister who said two things during an interview with the Italian press. He said, it doesn't matter that Zelensky and the prime minister of Ukraine are Jewish. The place is run by Nazis and and Hitler had a drop of Jewish blood in him. That was the first thing he said. And then Lazarov said something really evil. He said, the, the wise Jews have told us that the biggest anti-Semites are Jews themselves. And that he threw back something that Jews often say, but don't mean. And I found that to be uh, pretty venal. Yeah, it was grotesque. It was stupid. It was untrue. Lavrov is, is uh, uh, you know, 
Why do we care, honestly, what he has to say on this subject? Other than that he could, I guess, foment a pogrom in theory. But uh, but no, it's it's idiotic and it's offensive. I, I don't... Right. Didn't strike and me as anything other an- than... Ancient charges. He didn't make this crap up. It's also, it's also, it's just a stupid idea. What does it even mean? It, it's, uh, it, it, I just find, find it idiotic and offensive. So. Okay, the reason I bring this up is there are certain Jews who trigger things within me. And I'm not a self-hating Jew. And you mean I like am Ernie, Ernie Grunfeld triggers a hatred of the Knicks. <laughs> exactly. For example, Dennis Prager. I, I want to show you Dennis Prager is a professional Jew. He has a radio show and he speaks. He's took taken it upon himself with no degree, no rabbinical degree, no masters, no PhD. He's decided that he speaks for the Jews and Salem Broadcasting owned by uh, some Christian outfit says, yes, he speaks for the Jews. Let's put him on. They they decide to put this guy on as representation of American Jewry. And this is what he said on his show last week. It's like the race hoax industry if you see a noose on a college dorm of a black student the odds are overwhelming that the noose was put there by a black student if you see the n-word on a dormitory building the odds are overwhelming that a black student actually did that i don't know why we're filled with race hoaxes why to show how racist the country is we need these hoaxes jesse smollett is the most famous okay so so when I see that, my first response is you mf'er, right? Yeah. Um, but it's not anti-Semitism on my part. It's who do you think you are speaking for the saying that and calling yourself a spokesman for the Jewish right. How, but I, I mean, listen, David, I just, I, I would never repeat that. I don't know why you would play that. The guy's, I mean, the guy, he's, he's for me, that guy's garbage. That It's idiotic. And I don't know why you would even be concerned with it. Um, and of course, he doesn't speak for, he doesn't speak for anybody except people who want to watch him. I have no interest in watching the guy. Well, he speaks for 20% of American Jewry, which is okay. So for 17 people, he's, he's, he's a footnote. David, I would say that your discomfort with this asshole has to do on some level with, with some feeling about being Jewish. Because when some other guy on Fox News says the same damn things, you you hate it, you think it's stupid, but you don't have that kind of personal revulsion for it. Because I, you're not I, to it. I would expect uh, somebody, a Jewish person who sees 
uh, anti-Semitism growing, not to discount uh, hatred for for blacks and the LGBT community and to dismiss the N word and nooses and then turn around and expect his audience to feel sympathy for uh, the, the rise of anti-Semitism in this country. I, I, it's just, uh, it's astonishing. And, he's, he's, yeah. It's astonishing. I completely agree with you. I just find it. It's just, it's grotesque. It is grotesque, but, but I think we have to talk some more about your expectations. Well, don't we police? What about policing our own? Isn't that's a term that I remember my father. No, I don't think so. We got to police everybody. Police the guy who jumped up on the stage. Police Fox News. But I think some kind of feeling that you got to police somebody who can be identified with you is... There's something off about that. There's something off about it, but if not me, who? There I go again with my paranoid schizophrenia and (laughs) delusions of grandeur. I mean, it's just like, how can... I feel like what we're talking about on some level is what you'd really like to do is take that guy out behind the bleachers and rough him up. Like, he, that's kind of, that, that, that would be something he could understand. And then he couldn't say, oh, that was just, that was pretend. Yeah. All right. Not that I'm, I'm not espousing violence, nor is this show. Where it's a peaceful <laughs> endeavor. No one deserves a beating. Dennis Prager, not a rabbi. No masters. Also, no he PhD. dresses like he really dresses like a gentile. That turquoise shirt—I've never seen a Jew in that color. That's that's right. a, that's that's a ridiculous. Where does he live in New Mexico? That was an absurd shirt. I bet he lives in Jersey. Uh, no, he's he's out in uh, uh, Los Angeles, where they pronounce it turquoise. Yeah. Also, he has one of those voices where he's he's underwater. He just has one of those fat voices. You can hear the fat around his larynx. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Talking about personal responses. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, thank you. You are a Freudian psychoanalyst. Thank you. And Ethan Hershenfeld is a brilliant, as you can obviously tell, a brilliant comedian. Go download Thug Thug Jew. And what is your next appearance? What, what are we plugging oh, here? Um, so um, the, four, the 14th, that's coming up. Yeah, the 14th at night. I have a, a show up in Simsbury, Connecticut. It's a fundraiser. And then the 17th at the Comic Strip. Unbelievable. Um, I'm a big fan of Fred's. Um, wow. I'm star Well, stick around. You want to stick around? Help me with Fred? Fred Stoller. I'm Dr. Katz. Well, more than that. I, I'm saying that's where I first uh, got to know this guy. So. He's holding his cat. And what's this cat's now? Can I? Fred is 
one of the original gangsters of the David Feldman show, dating back to 2009. I one day I'll play the clip where it was pilot season and my son, my 400 pound son was in a coma and I had to go out on auditions and I was sending you to Cedar sinai to stand by the bed and hold my son's hand and do an imitation of me so he'll think I'm the one. Do you remember this? Oh, am I on? Am I allowed to unmute? Yeah, do you remember this? Yes, I do. Uh, guys, I just want to say brilliant. I was listening to, I guess, uh, one of you, uh, but an Ernie Grunfeld reference. I went to camp with him a million years ago. Camp oh Sequoia God. in Rock Hill, New York. And where do you know him from, Ethan? Or just Well, he taught a, a foul shooting clinic when I was a, a camper at Kutcher's Sports Academy. And I got up and shot five for five in front of Ernie, which was a highlight of my sporting yes, life. Yes, there was the Catskills where they had, it was Rock Hill, New York, near Monticello. Yeah, and I remember Monticello. as a kid going to camp and you'd always see the posters with Jerry Lewis from Browns. I'm yes. old you, but the Browns, yeah. Jerry Lewis got his start at Browns or something. Yeah. And yeah, camp, and we, yeah. So Ernie Grunfeld went there and uh, he was kind of like a few years older than me, but he, I remember in the canteen, hey, buy me potato chips. And you'd have to buy him. <laughs> and then what happened was years later, you know, being a comedian in New York, this guy, Peter Bylin, he was the uh, he was a uh, commercial agent and he had all the comedians. And I said, I went to camp with him. He said, uh, I said, I, I'll, I'll, I know him. I'll set it up, you know, uh, get your tickets. You, you go meet him. So I had these catch rising star sweatshirts. I said, hey, Ernie, I went with camp. I don't remember you. I go, I got you these sweatshirts. I don't want them. And he, oh, Jesus. No, that was my man. Charming. A charmer. Yes, he does. Um, I, I don't want to no, no, overstay, no. but it's a pleasure to chat with you. I'm a big yeah, fan. No, no, no. You're, you're, you're helping. I was intimidated by the convo, as they know people say. The convo. I feel like I'm Andy Kindler. We had a great convo, send a pic um, before me. I just had a flashback, Fred. I just remembered something. What's that? From when I, was, when I was drinking, before I became a comedian, I went. I would go to Catch a Rising Star and get shit-faced. And, I, and, and you were performing there. And I, was, I walked up to you. I, I was drunk, and I... Was the greatest in the world. You were doing jokes about elephants and trees, and there was a heavy set guy standing next to you. It's amazing what I remember that he was B.J. Thomas's manager. Do, do you know who I'm talking about? That sounds familiar. Um, sorry, Rain I remember. I remember there was a guy, another guy went to camp. His father was B.B. King's manager. But I remember, this sounds like something I would make up. When I first started, I did my act, and this woman handed me a card. And actually, Bobby Collins is there, remembers the story. I don't have any openings now, but, you know, I could fit you in. And it was a, a psychotherapist. So it sounds like <laughs> what I would make up. Like the first one to give me a card. You know, it was serious. It was not a joke. It really happened. But um, 
<laughs> yes. Catch, those days in Catch. Um, Ethan, I don't know if you know, but those were the 80s when Belzer and all these Robin Williams would do coke in the basement. It was very famous. I was there and, in, in 98 when I first made my first attempt at doing stand-up. Okay, I did that was those days. And, well, well, 98 Catch was probably folded. It was over. I still, no, I still, I got up there. It was in like the West 20s over by uh, Catch moved from the Upper East Side. Oh, at well, Rising Star. I believe, unless it was a different venue. Unless but, it was yeah. the improv, I know, moved okay. to a different yeah. place. Yeah. But In Cats, case, yes, yeah. the 80s were pretty crazy with Richard Belzer going up on coke and just flat, flagging, whatever the word is, flopping like a fish on the stage. It was, you remember those days, David, and and the late, amazing Gilbert Gottfried I used to hang out with when we, I first started, yeah. You well, know, you have a, an audio book out. It, yes, it, I have. Now, Ethan, we could reference you as the young guy. Um, you probably, um, I finally, <laughs> I was on the show when I released the uh, Kindle single of called Five Minutes to Kill. Now, um, if you guys remember, stand up before Comedy Central, before Netflix, before YouTube, Besides the Tonight Show, the big launching pad were these HBO Young Comedian specials. And I remember, um, you know, uh, Bob Saget, uh, Louis Anderson, uh, Roseanne, all these people were launched. Dice Clay, uh, uh, what's his name? Rodney Dangerfield hosted them for a while and then others. And I remember I auditioned for Rodney and I thought I did a good set. Like, what do you think? He goes, you're too low key, okay? And this guy, Ron Richards, I told, um, told me something. He goes, when they say you're too low-key or whatever, it's a euphemism for no. You know, so now, <laughs> you know, whenever they say this is the reason you didn't get it, it's a euphemism for no, <laughs> we don't want you. So eventually right. I got on a young comedian special in 1989. And I always thought it was interesting story, the diversity and trajectory of the six comics of Lives and Careers. Two of them made it big from it, Rob Schneider and David Spade. They got tonight, uh, Saturday Night Live. I'm sort of like a middle guy. One guy shot himself in the head talking to his wife on the phone. And one guy, uh, I interviewed David for it, uh, at eight for 10 years, died of a drug overdose. And the woman is struggling catering. So my analogy was like those basketball 30 for 30s where these were the five, five, you, you know, whatever, the, the you know. Like uh, you thought this guy would be the all star. It was like those young comedian specials were like the class of 89, the class of this. So that was the cl comedy class of 89. And, wow. um, you know, from your thing, you know, Judd Apatow tweeted. He loved it. I just saw him at Norm Macdonald's Memorial the other day. Still loves it. So it took <laughs> my joke was it's five years later and I finally did the audio because there's lots of cars going by here and helicopters. So it's a lot of stop and go. No, I'm kidding. But it, no, it did take a while. And uh, Gary Goldman just uh, found out about it and tweeted. He loved it. So, wow. um, I, you know, the, the thing is, as opposed to this podcast, I have so many people who reach out who I don't know. Hey, I do the uh, pop culture podcast and I'm not, you know, you know, it's always the same stories they want. to, And they always go, you can plug anything you want anything and it's like it's like saying meet me for lunch at the farmer's market you could plug anything maybe people will <laughs> you know but this is something where comedy fans actually so i finally have something to plug and uh and you 
You gave me a great compliment, David. Said it's David Halberstenish. Yeah, it's it's written easy. It's not easy to read, but it's clear headed and journalistic. Kind of surprising. No offense. Coming from Surprised you, it haven't seemed intelligent. Well, no, I mean, it, it <laughs> level headed and honest and, you know, fun to read, like your book about Seinfeld, uh, your year, my Seinfeld year, yes, which yes. is a bestseller on Kindle. There was a thing called Kindle singles that were really doing well at first. These were mini books, not quite a book, uh, more than a magazine. And then a lot of people would come up to me and say, oh, I, I listened to your audio. So for some reason, Audible didn't do the uh, my sign. I mean, five minutes a kill. So I decided to do it. And if you could deal with this droning, nasally voice for two hours, the the droning, nasally voices pay a lot of bills in animation. My friend, the funny thing is, when I did, uh, uh, maybe we'll have you back. Audible had someone else do me. I didn't get it. But so uh, someone else, I'm Fred That's Stone. Like, yes. If you listen to the sample, if you pull up, um, maybe we'll have you back. Someone else did it. I didn't get the job. So I'm glad I got this job. And uh, there's a story. So how many books written three books? Well, maybe one, we'll have as you. They, as they would say, one real book and two Kindle singles. Maybe we'll have you back. Your life as a character actor, basically. Yes. Mm-hmm. Then there's my Seinfeld year, the year of working writing on Seinfeld. Jerry, you got sued over that, I believe. I got I got sued over. Maybe we'll have you back. Uh, Luckily, he didn't know there was a Kindle single that did very well. Oh, my God. So, yes, um, now they have something called anti-slap laws here in New York, much better, where if you could prove right away it's frivolous, then the uh, the guy suing has to pay your legal fees and he would have dropped it in a second. But um, and this was the most frivolous nonsense lawsuit. So, yes. So that one that I was sued over, maybe we'll have you back. And then he tried to appeal based on he had bad representation that his lawyer never saw Seinfeld. It was like, you know, like uh, like a Seinfeld episode. So, yes, that that was my Seinfeld year. It was more like a year. Actually, I had a restraining order against someone else. So I didn't use his name. Uh, Maybe I'll tell you off the thing. And he said the book ruined his career. And if you look up IMDb, he hasn't worked in 10 years. So retroactively, you know, and uh, I had to get a restraining order against the lunatic. who didn't. I'm going to jump off and just say again, it's a pleasure and an honor. And David, thank you. And I'll see you next week. Maybe I'll see you Monday. Let's Thank do you. that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Great to meet you, Fred. Take Thank it easy. So much. Fred, Fred Stoller uh-huh. is one of the funniest people ever. And I've proven that now so much. <laughs> no. You are. You are. And so your your new book, your new Audible book is entitled Five Minutes. Five Minutes, five minutes to Kill, How the HBO Young Comedian Special Changed the Lives of 1989's Funniest Comics. It's available right now on Audible. Only $2.99. Go buy it. And for how much? It's only $2.99. I think that's a and good you can, can you buy it at fredstoller.net? I don't think so. I got this guy in Canada who did my website, and I 
can't get a hold of him. I have to bug him. I, if anyone out there knows how to take over a website, man, reach out to me. That was a well, headache. Whoever, somebody, whoever. Get it audible or Amazon. My, my website has been shut down. We're going into the third day. So. Really? Why? Because. I, I like to think it's because of what I say, but I'm pretty sure it's just because it's incompetence. Yes, it's uh, uh yeah. So, but yeah, Amazon or Audible, you can you can get it. And as they say, it's a labor of love. I'm not. I just want. I like. It's very rewarding. These little stories. You know, I didn't go the sitcom writing route. You know, if you read uh, my Seinfeld year. But once in a while, when I get a residual check for like the two Seinfelds I wrote or the book, even though they're not big, it's so much more rewarding than a residual check for acting. I don't know why, like something you wrote, but I chose not to go the you, you're the one who said or no, someone else said that, you know, when you write on uh, a sitcom, unless you create it, you're writing in someone else's voice. And 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 I'm not good at other people's voices. So that's sitcom writing route. Was, how about fake? How about just fake laughing at the boss's jokes? That's also good. At it. Yes, exactly. Every run through, every rehearsal, you've got to fake laugh at your jokes or they'll get cut. Yes. Did you write on any sitcoms, David? Yes. Oh, which one? Well, I created one and I got a resi- I, I, I re- uh, just got a residual for 64 cents the other well, day. What was the sitcom you created? I, uh, uh, Robert, yeah, I wish Robert and I created a, uh, sitcom for, uh, Triumph the Encyclopedic Dog. Oh, I loved, um, uh, just because Dave Cyrus, great guy, met him through your show, uh, posted, I was aware of that, uh, the one with, uh, Cuomo and everything. I don't know if you wrote on that. That was the, that was, that was, that was the, um, the puppet show. The Stephen A. Smith one thing was amazing uh, yeah. with him at the funeral. Oh, no, no. Yeah. Max Kellerman. All that stuff was great. I'm a big but, Triumph uh, fan. Nobody funnier. Nobody I funnier. I was flattered like um, when Triumph like did some insult like this. You're as big as Fred Stoller's brother. I don't know. I don't have a brother. But just that <laughs> I was a reference of some loser is like such an obscure like a Geechee guy reference was once on. Geechee guy. I saw him. I saw him at Norm McDonald's memorial, and he goes, "Fred, we used to be really skinny. Now we look normal finally." And that was Geechee guy was saying how well, great we both look. Uh, you, Alex, and Norm McDonald. There was a period when the three of you were very it was close. Insane because first we Norm hosted something that thing at you know Gotham. And Alex was there and he was so excited to meet Norm. And Norm was going on some tangent that I eat shit out of toilets. And Alex wanted to like get in good with Norm because, yeah, I heard that too. You know, like was like so enthralled. So Norm talked Alex into driving five hours in the rain to Foxwoods to video to do some podcast. We were trying to do that made no sense. And um, and then. It was really, uh, I shouldn't say bad of the, of the norm, the dead, but Norm, I said, don't bring him. He's going to have to drive home. And I know it, it had ended up where Alex 
had to sleep on the floor in my room because he, he couldn't drive home. And, and at that time, at, at, for 30 years, like I'm too old to be sharing a room with an excitable 26-year-old, like, hey, who's your favorite influencers all night long asking, well, hey, what do you think about Alan King versus that? Because Alex was, uh, you know, a new, you know, a guy that knew references. Hey, would you think the, ref, the, the uh, Mr. Show versus, uh, I, I don't want to talk about this. And all night long, he's asking about my influences and what I don't remember. And I go, and I was just so mad that Norm, that I had to share a room with Alex, anyone except a woman. Mm -hmm. Now, is that too sexist? But no, all right, that was just bad. But um, anyone at my age, when you're sharing a room, any, and we're 25 years but he ago. But Alex, he was so excited. He, loved, he could, I, he would call me every hour. Norm, it's amazing. This is incredible. Norm McDonald. I'm a, you, you, yeah, it was you, incredible. And he was on my floor. And I and then then Norm says to him in the morning, he goes, I heard you were peeing so much. You were disturbing Alex. Like, wow, look, that's why I want my own room at my age so I can pee and get up as much as I want without the 26 year old judging me. You know, I don't need to be judged by the peeing, the middle-aged peeing neuroticness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Alex didn't like it. Why didn't you buy him a room? You know, you made him stay right. there. And then in the morning, I, you know, so Alex is having breakfast, Norm. And I, I just I go, come down for breakfast. And I go, I need a break from Alex. He's a good guy. Love him. But I just I just didn't want to be the excitable. I'm with Norm McDonald. He was a little excited about me. I don't want to brag. You know, I'm not modest guy. But it was like, it was like, wow. And with a mic and, uh, you know, and uh, oh, my God. You know, because Alex, I don't know if the people know. I'm sure they know. He's, you know, a, a young guy. But he was younger at the time, but like a comedy aficionado because his uncle taught him about, you know, whatever, Milton Berle. And he was a comedy <laughs> encyclopedia. So Norm MacDonald, it was like, you know, being with Sinatra to him. And uh, right. it, it was so exciting. And then I, I, I got sad thinking, you know, me and Norm, well, Norm's dead. I'm going to be long dead. And Alex will be older telling people. When I first started, I was with these this legend and this other kind of known guy, and it was so exciting. Yeah, he'll he'll tell those stories. So yes, that was. What's my your favorite story. with Norm? Because you were pretty close to Norm. Well, with you were Norm, I toured with him for eleven months, and that was. It, it got weird because Norm couldn't uh, drive. He couldn't do Uber. He couldn't. He, he'd forget to pack his pants, and I'd have to. <laughs> pants, he just have sweatpants or shorts he wore on the flight. So it got to be a little much because I'd say to him, and, and Alex was there, he'd get abusive. You fucked this up. You should have comped these people. Norm, I don't need this Baba Booey shit, I would say. But <laughs> but there were so many laughs. So, you know, the times uh me, I was on his show, he had a podcast, a pod, a sitcom norm show and me him mm -hmm. and Artie lang he would sneak off to play tennis because he had to beat Artie lang in tennis and they couldn't find him they were doing a taping but norm cared more about beating Artie lang in tennis and me 
And uh, so those tennis matches, I'd laugh my ass off. I would throw rackets and they'd be screaming and, and just, just the laughs of, uh, you know. So the whole world, it was on ABC, the whole world is spinning out of control on a sitcom. And Norm and decides. Norm, I said, Norm, we're getting sweated up. We were supposed to shoot a show. And here I am. He grabbed me with, grabbed me like, you got to play tennis too, Freddie. And, and it's like, Norm, we're getting sweated up. We're about to shoot your show because I don't give a shit. But he did at first. But then he he just he loved tennis or games and, you know, as you know, some gambling. So uh, when I opened for him, though, he was really he got he wasn't gambling as much. He was more into he realized after a while that, um, you know, he's tried pilots. He tried this that uh, sitcom was his strength. And he was very proud of his book. One of my other favorite stories was I had to um, hang out with him because uh, part of opening for him is you had to hang out with him, like watch the uh, you know uh, 2015 uh, presidential debates. I remember Norm laughing because Trump would say, you know, on Twitter, and at the time, Norm thought it was funny Trump was referencing Twitter because Norm just started this frivolous thing, you know, uh, you know what, you know, whatever. Blaine Kapatch makes snarky jokes on he didn't. But he didn't realize the power of Twitter. So he would laugh when they'd reference Twitter, like referencing MySpace. But um, so I had to hang out with him and also be backstage with him when Norm did the Tonight Show the same night uh, Trump was there. Uh, when really uh, when when uh, Jimmy Fallon tussled his hair. And I remember you were there? I, was, I was I don't want to brag, but I was with Rossi Brash, who would write for Norm. So uh, and Rossi Brash, I hung out with the very inside thing was at Norm's Memorial. So we had to. So all these secrets, uh, uh, Secret Service were there. And I remember I needed the bathroom and Trump is right there with his son and keep moving, keep moving. And uh yeah, so I remember watching, and I it was an unsettling feeling. Like he comes out, and 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 and, he, and he's treating him like this. Goof. It's sort of like when Mel Gibson um, did his first Tonight Show after all that sugar tits, you know, stuff, you know. Um, right. And then Jay, yeah, what do you like to? Uh, what's your favorite <laughs> golf club? You know, you know, not you know, like uh, he's a regular guy. Like, Lena, when you Grant was on, go. What were you thinking with the process? But was like, hey, Mel, when you think it's fun when you fish? You know, I, you know what I'm saying. Like he's a piece of crap, Mel Gibson. But like, Mel, Mel, you know, not really acknowledging it and laughing. So I remember having that unsettling feeling. And and Norm, me, Ross, and Norm, Ross, for the people who don't know, uh, you know, is a uh, writer. He wrote a lot of update stuff, and I guess wrote the segment. Norm did. Standing there, Trump is there, and uh, Norm goes, "Mr. Trump, get a, could I get a? Uh, you know, I can't do impressions, as you'll hear if you listen to my audiobook. Can I get a picture with you?" And Norm never wanted pictures with anyone. He wasn't like a selfie guy. Oh, Brian Cranston, and uh, and Trump goes five minutes. So then Trump goes in, inside, and Norm's excited. He's going to get a selfie, and then Trump is gone. Lied even about a selfie with right. Trump. So that is the right. most egregious thing that. Right. You know, but yes. Yeah, so, yes, there was a lot of adventure, you know, me and Norm. Uh, 
traveling around. I think there's another book, Trapped what? Tra- traveling around. Yeah, maybe I'll call it my norm year, like my Seinfeld year. Um, that would be, you know, you should call I, I got another lawsuit. I know Alex's family is very rich with lawyers. So uh, and I'm just kidding. You know, but you should talk to Alex and do, do your my norm year. I would love because I was kind of privy to it just through Alex and you. I remember you finally called you know, three in the morning, like for your, and, and, and I was so done with the not and Norm was just, he was going on the shitting still the uh, Fred shits or eat shit out of the toilet. I mean, he was just, just that bit. He would just take a bit and go with it and go with it. Do you remember that? I remember, I, I, listen, I have two regrets. One is I passed on AOC. She was running for office wow. and Howie Klein said, do you want to have this, this candidate on her name is AOC. Pass? I, and you have William McAnemi on and you pass. I know. I, <laughs> yeah, here's, that's, that's you is the best find. No, and, and, and so I said, I, you know what, uh, I, I want, I want, uh, somebody you know i i want to have a serious candidate on i didn't know there was no way she was going to beat uh i forgot you know what the I name quasi regret about um i don't know if you remember i used to do these jokes i'm a thrill seeker i live on the edge i drank milk that expired yesterday you know thrill seeker right. persona right. and which by the way all these rebel people like ari shafir they're almost doing my bit, but they're taking themselves seriously. I said that. I don't care. I'm a PC. But I'd be in on the joke that I'm a schmuck. But they really think they're so brazen. But Sam Kennison uh, really got a kick out of that thing. You know, he loved it, you know, because this guy's a rebel like me. I can't do the impression. So Kennison right. had this thing called the, the Rebels of Comedy or some tour with people like Many of them are dead. Mitch Walters, uh, Carl LeBeau, these guys that Sam Kennison and the Outlaws. So mm-hmm. he thought it'd be fun in Vegas for a month that I'm one of the outlaws, you know, because I'm the thrill seeker. But I, I thought it would be a great story and amazing to travel with the outlaws. But I thought a month in Vegas, you know, I was trying to audition, get on TV. I, I think after four days, it would have got old, you know, you know, so you turned <laughs> it down. I turned it down. Yes. Right. I kind of yeah. sometimes regret it. Like, uh, yeah, maybe a weekend with the outlaws or a week, but a month, yeah. I would have been a great, amazing story. But yes, in hindsight, if that's I another to- book, what would have made an amazing story? All the- I should, you should write a fictional version of uh when I taught with the outlaws, even though it never happened. Well, uh, what a, kind of like Norm's book. Well, my and my other regret is that I get a call at three in the morning. Norm wants finally I've been trying to get him on my podcast for years and it's three in the morning and he wants to do the show. And I went, I don't know, I can't get it up at three in the morning. Yeah, well, at the memorial, uh, David Spade was saying how uh, he, uh, you never, you, a Norman ghost you, and all of a sudden, text you three more. Where, where, where are you? Come on, what the f? You know, and come on, hello, hello, hello. You know, and all of a sudden, like you're the flaky one. So yes, right on on his time. The memorial was um, 
was pretty amazing. Conan hosted it. And uh, he, you know, and luckily no one made it about them too much. But uh, Rob Schneider did a video bit like, you know, like he was in some Winnebago and I can't make it. And he's telling some stories. And then he says, uh, and then at the end, you know, he says, you know, I'm directing the movie. That's why I can't make it. And then uh, Conan comes out. He goes, doesn't he look like he's a fugitive from the law? He looks like he's in an undisclosed location. You know, Conan was was very quick. And uh, Jim Downey spoke. Um, well, oh, it, w- it would have been funnier if Schneider then walked out on like that. Yes, I thought like a, yes, like a green screen, like he was directing a yeah. movie. And we have was, we have to wrap it up. Okay. Hey, uh, come back and talk about Gilbert. Wow, that 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 would be uh, yes. Let me any time, as they say. We we have to wrap it up. Um, I've been going on YouTube. Uh, and watching him. Yes, yeah, same thing with Norm. When they died, everyone, I, I too, too, with Gilbert, like when YouTube clips when he's on Artie's show, the, the, them laughing, Gilbert. Yes, there's a rabbit hole, as they say, of so many uh, podcast appearances of Gilbert. May, him and Joy Behar. Jay, Jay, Joy Behar had a short-lived uh, show, and it, and it was canceled. And Norm and Norm Gilbert Truman, this is the last time I'm on your show. The joke was because it was canceled, and you know, and uh, yes, there's some great. We have to wrap it up. To my listeners, if you want a, a treat, just go down a rabbit hole uh, on Twitter, uh, Twitter on YouTube of Gilbert, but try to find him doing local television that's where he's at his funniest when he, when he's just like it's six in the seven in the morning no. and doing like am fresno you know oh, can i just so say one funny. last thing i know you got to wrap it up yeah. i'm not a fan of that guy Ant from opie and anthony um he was on because just you know it's a little you know um extreme yeah. the other way but they yeah. were talking about not politics all the old TV shows and crazy Guggenheimer. And I, I, I loved it. I, I respect to that guy Ant a little bit more because they had a reverence for like old TV and it was so entertaining. Yeah. yeah. My little, what, what little I know about Anthony Kumia is he is a brilliantly funny guy and his racism and he is a racist uh and uh he's self-destructive as brilliant people so often are and he's allowed his racism to consume him and destroy uh his comedy you know a lot of that racism racism bigotry is a mental illness it really is hey come back it's good to I would see love you. To. This was fun. Yeah, it's I didn't really have good. To adjust too many things. Usually it's stressful. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. Sat here with my cat. All right. Uh, let's plug your uh, book. Five Check minutes. To out. Kill. It's only two ninety nine. Uh, five minutes to kill. The audio book of uh, the book. Trust me, I've read this book. The only thing better than reading it is listening to Fred Stoller 
narrating it on audio. I do a great John Ross impression, I was told. I don't want to brag. No, it's an inside joke. No, I had to do, you know, quote people in different voices. So they all sound the same. I in it? Yes. You want to hear your quotes? Well, next time. Okay. But did you imitate me? I think I think they all sounded the same, like Drake, Dennis Miller, Rob Schneider. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if I got your voice. You know, it's just general. But there was a great, great quote from you I used in it that I got Thank you. Yes, but I guess we'll leave it a surprise. We'll come back next week. Okay. Fred Stoller. Thank you, Fred Stoller. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'd like to come back, as they say. Good. We love right, you and your sign up. One of the original gangsters. One of the original gangsters of the David Feldman show. Well, we will be back with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. You're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com, assuming my website ever comes back. My website has been shut down. So I, it's been two days. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn joins us. He had an amazing guest last week. Amazing. And can he top it? I think he can. Uh, here to talk about Reverend Barry W. Lynn ran uh, Americans United for Separation Church and State. He is a member of the Supreme Court Bar. He's a lawyer as well as an ordained minister. And take it away, Reverend. Oh, thank you very much, David. And um, did have fun last week talking about elder care in America, what's not there. And it is always a pleasure for me to talk privately or publicly to the guest I have for tonight. Bill Baird is an iconic figure in the reproductive choice movement. Long before people at the American Civil Liberties Union or Planned Parenthood or NARAL existed, he was out defending the right of people to use contraception and then to obtain abortions. And we're going to talk about all of that. And Bill Baird, it is a pleasure to have you with me tonight. It's not only a pleasure for me, but an honor. You are truly favorite people. Now, I, I like that. I thank you for that. Well, you know, one of the things that has happened since this leak of the document that will, sadly, I think, it will not be changed significantly. It will overturn Roe versus Wade. And there's so many stories being written now about what will America be like without access to abortion. But you know, because you were around when there was in almost every state, even the most liberal ones, limited, if any, access to abortion. What was it like when you would talk to people, to, to women, to people that you might have seen in your practice who, um, who couldn't obtain an abortion and, of course, couldn't obtain contraception to prevent pregnancy either? Well, I thank you for the opportunity to help people realize that we're heading from some very, very dark times. And I'm delighted I can share some of this from the past because people have forgotten. I began way back in 1963. I was the youngest clinical director for any major drug company in the United States. 
And while calling on a hospital called the Harlem Hospital, I heard a scream, which I'll never forget to this day. And I raced down the corridor to the doorway, and I saw this young Afro-American woman covered with blood from the waist down, as if somebody had painted her with a can of red paint. And I noticed she had a piece of wire coat hanger sticking out of her uterine wall. And I caught her. And I held her, and she was crying. She knew she was dying. And I said, just hang on, hang on. And of course, she couldn't. But she bled to death. And what I grieved over, she was able to say, my children, my children, the children she was going to leave behind. She could not get birth control. And she could not get an abortion. She tried to abort herself with a knitting needle. In those days, you take a piece of wire coat hanger and wrap the end of it with adhesive tape so it's not so blunt. She would take it, as you probably know your anatomy, the uterus is the size of my fist, like a pear, so to speak. Uh, the stem part of the pear, if you pull out the stem part, that little opening would be called the cervical os. And she would take that coat hanger, as did many poor people, ram it into that little opening, try to scrape the wall of the uterus to dislodge the developing embryo, but she pushed too hard and she went through the wall of the uterus into her bowel and she hemorrhaged to death. And what I grieved over, what a needless waste of a life because she could not get medical care that she desired because somebody else, like today, said, I'm more moral than you. I know what's best for you. How dare anyone, male or female, be so arrogant to tell another human being how to live their life? So I did what anybody else would do. The people with money was Planned Parenthood. And I wish there'd be some reporter with enough guts, and they don't exist the way they used to, but with enough no, guts they don't. to validate the truth and say, what was Planned Parenthood's position on abortion way back in 63? I have their literature on my desk here. Their literature, when I talked to them, said, abortion takes the life of a child. That's their literature. They were anti-abortion. Their literature said they would not give out birth control to single people. Now, you have to take either, I'm lying to you, or I'm telling you a truth that should be written in granite, but it's not. I'm sick to my stomach, literally, tonight. I'm watching yeah. the news, and I'm watching how Griswold versus Connecticut legalized birth control, Planned Parenthood. I think, doesn't anybody bother to read Griswold, Planned Parenthood's case that is touted all over the news, is touted as being the case that legalized birth control. Absolute lie. If it, only, it, it only did that for married, married people. people. Right. They betrayed, betrayed millions of unmarried women. And I went to them, I said, hey, don't you think you're being unfair not to include in your challenge to the law when you're saying married people must have this right, unmarried people cannot? They said, no, 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 that's too far. Well, society's not ready. I said, you're wrong. Mm. Unmarried people are having sex. Huh. They have to be protected. Teenagers are having sex. They've got to be protected. 
But you were not afraid to do this, and I want to in a few minutes talk about a very similar kind of conflict between those in the LGBTQ community who told someone, don't push for marriage equality, it's too controversial. But you, after Griswold was decided, and I want people to understand that at the time Griswold was decided, and they Planned Parenthood did bring that case, but as you point out, it's very narrow. There was a statute in the state of Connecticut that prohibited even married persons from obtaining birth control. But then you come along and you say, not just Planned Parenthood is wrong, but you take action yourself. And that leads to a Supreme Court decision called Eisenstadt versus Baird. Tell us a little bit about how that got started and the role you played to make sure unmarried couples had the same, or unmarried people had the same right to birth control. I I don't know how old you are, Barry, but I'm now going to be 90, 90 years old. And I'm still fighting like hell. (laughs) But I grew up in the Great Depression. 1930s, uh, one of my first jobs at the age of eight was going from garbage can to garbage can, collecting newspapers and then selling them uh, for like 75 cents for 100 pounds because my father was an alcoholic. There were six kids in the family. Two of the kids died directly from the poverty. And I was very poor and I said, if I ever grow up, if I ever get a chance, I'm going to try to make the world a little kinder, a little more loving. And so I decided that this would be an opportunity if I could challenge a little, maybe, maybe the Supreme Court might hear me. And sure. if you probably know, 98% of all cases are rejected by the Supreme Court. So I challenged the law in New York, 1965, was arrested on my daughter's birthday, May the 14th, put in jail, crime, indecent exposure, obscene objects. The following year, Freehold, New Jersey, right across the border from New York. A woman calls me up and says, do you know what they're doing here? I said, why? They're jailing unwed mothers. For what reason? Well, it's against the law to have sex if you're not married. The law is called fornication, a one-year jail term. I said, well, fight the law. Well, she said, I need you to fight the birth control law because they're saying if they get pregnant and have a baby, that increases the welfare costs. So we're going to put unwed mothers only, not the male, right. in jail. This will hold down welfare costs because in the jail for a year, they won't have sex. And I said, that's nuts. I'll go down there. In 1966, I went there, taught birth control. And all of a sudden, literally, no exaggeration, 50 cops, shotguns, guns, surrounded me, dragged me out of my mobile clinic, 25 foot that I drove into there, convicted me sentenced me to prison for 20 days. And the reason I tell you that, the editor of the Boston University, which is a top-out school, Boston University heard about me and said, Bill, please come here. I said, what do you want me to do? We want you to challenge a law called Crimes Against Chastity, Morality, Decency, and Good Order. It denies birth control to unmarried people. I said, wait a minute, you got Planned Parenthood. They got millions of dollars. They live there. Let them do it. I'm, I'm in New York. I don't have money to travel there. He says, look, we went to Planned Parenthood. They won't challenge the law. Uh, nobody would tell. But he said, I anticipated talking to you. And you know what I did? I said, what did you do? He said, I talked to the American Civil Liberties Union. They said, 
if you could show the courage to come into a state you don't live in, challenge the law at our university by exhibiting birth control devices, which is a five-year jail term by itself, sure. is a given, yep. uh, we will defend you. So I thought about it. I said, are you sure about this? He said, sure. So I gave a speech on April the 6th, 1967. And Barry, I thought maybe a couple hundred kids would be there. 2,500 people, war-to-war people, well, I didn't figure out dozens of police cars. When I got there, I thought, they're going to arrest some peace demonstration because I was active in the peace mm-hmm. movement. Of course. And lo and behold, I gave my speech. I showed the IUD, the pill, the diaphragm, and I did something that was dreadful. I gave a 19-year-old a can of Emco foam, contraceptive foam. Mm-hmm. He's now out of business. But right. this was an over-the-counter item. You could buy it from department stores, as a matter of fact, illegally. So the moment I gave it to the 19-year-old, the police got up on the stage, there were at least 20 of them, dozen reporters, TV cameras, handcuffed me and said, you're under arrest for indecent exposure to obscene optics. I said, wait a second. I reached into my pocket. They didn't know I was getting a weapon. They got like this, very uptight. I whipped out a sales receipt. I said, read it. It says, there's department store, $3, nine cents sales tax. So I said, if you're going to arrest me, a department store cannot sell birth control. And the fact that they charge me nine cents sales tax on an illegal sale means your attorney general, who's going to prosecute me, goes to jail for the same crime because he's collecting an illegal sales tax. I thought it was brilliant. I'd have them all boxed in in my simple little head. But before I left the stage, I said, I was told the ACLU is here and they're going to defend me. No response. I said, boy, this kid better not have lied to me. I asked a second time. ACLU, where are you? No response. Third time, ACLU, Baird, we're here. We'll we'll go to the courthouse now. We're going to defend you. Would you believe this, Barry? I'm a board member for many years. Right. With the ACLU. Three weeks later, they called me up. You won't believe what I'm going to tell you. But we're on tape. And I'm going to tell you right from... My heart to yours. They said, Bill, we discussed your case with Planned Parenthood. They got a bug up their tail about you. They said, quote, your case has no merit. And so we've decided to agree with them and we're dropping your case. So you're going to face that time 10 years in jail, five years for each charge, showing birth control and giving one can of foam, which I bought from a department store illegally. So I said, holy smokes. What do I do now? I've got four little kids at home. Now, I live in New York. Sure. I, I'm appointed as consultant to the Senate of New York. You're not going to extradite me where I'm a consultant in New York. But I said, wait a second. Just suppose I could do this clever enough that the U.S. Supreme Court would hear me, as you know, Barry, 98% of all cases are rejected. Correct. Uh, okay. Maybe I got a chance. One chance. I could knock out all these laws across the country. Not only on birth control, but on abortion. That was my goal. And lo and behold, I was found guilty. I was sentenced to Charles Street Jail. And I wish I could tell you more, but I'm, I'm too sensitive. I'm scarred. I cannot talk to you about being stripped naked. My God, fingers ripped into my body. 
if being abused in ways that's unfit for unhuman being to go through. I still can't get rid of those scars. Just the other day, I saw a medical doctor. I, I have to warn them. I said, please don't get too close to me. I can't have people close to me. Right. There's nothing I can do because I'm wounded. I know I'm wounded from it. But finally, the U.S. Supreme Court decided to hear me. And they said these powerful words on March 22nd. This is the month of March, the 50th year of my case. My beloved wife, who I treasure with my heart and soul, Joni, sent out 30 news releases telling all the reporters this is the 50th anniversary of legal birth control for unmarried people. And you know what happened? Not a single reporter called, not a single person said, hey, we didn't know that uh, your case, Baird versus Eisenstein, is a case that really legalized birth control Right. For millions of unmarried people. It exactly. wasn't parenthood who gets on the TV almost every night and saying, Oh, Griswold legal life birth control. They forget a little sense. Only if <laughs> only, you're married. Only if, if you're married. Unmarried, screw up. When when you won the case, you had to get a lawyer to take this case to the Supreme Court. Who was that lawyer? How did you find the lawyer when the ACLU said, um, it's too hot for us? I don't know when my death is coming, but I know it's coming at the age of 90. I grieve over this and to tell you this story. A brilliant, tough lawyer by the name of Joe Bolero, who was well known to represent the mafioso. He handled a lot of criminal cases, a lot of other, and he came to me in my cell and he says, Hey, man, I like a guy with big, you know what? He says, you're a fighter. He says, I'll represent you. So he took my case and we fought tooth and nail. In fact, he wanted to give me the best defense. I, said, I don't want to win the case. Are you crazy? <laughs> of course. I, I said, how do I get heard by the Supreme Court? If you win with your brilliance, I can't be heard. I want you in boxing. I used to box. He's taking a dive. I want to take, don't defend me. Make me appear like, man, this guy who's trying to corrupt all these kids. So he took the case. And finally, we're heading to the United States Supreme Court. And this is the part that few people know about, but it's going to be in the movie that they're doing on me, a documentary on me right now. I grieve to tell you this. I got a call from a great senator from Alaska Ernest Gruning. He called me up. He says, Bill, he says, I want you to fire Joe Bolero. I said, you're crazy. He's my friend. He defended me when nobody else would. He said, I'm about to tell you something that you should know. I said, what's that? He said, United States Senator Joseph Tiding has been following you for years, which I did not know. He thinks you're a good person, and he wants to defend you before the Supreme Court. I said, but I got a lawyer. <laughs> but I said, don't you understand? You told me many times, you told me on television, many times that my fight was to save the life of women. That's why I did this. So he said, if you really care about the life of women or your friendship, if you have a guy, Senator Titans, who knows the Supreme Court, he goes to lunch with them. He plays golf with them. He's political with them. Doesn't it make sense? that they would like him better than somebody they don't even know, <laughs> and that's part of politics. Yep. 
And you know what? I had to think, but I didn't have to think too long because I thought of that woman who died in my arms. And I said, God, I've got to do everything I know. And I called Joe and he was hurt and he sued me, as a matter of fact. He sued you. Yeah, he had the right to sue me because he had worked so hard on the case. But the court agreed with me that it was my life at stake going back into prison. Uh, And uh, the Supreme Court allowed tidings to take my case. And on March 22nd, the court said these powerful words. If the right of privacy means anything, it is a right of the individual to be free. Individual, not married, individually free to decide whether to bear, B-E-A, or, or beget a child. And that was the foundation for legalizing not only birth control, but the following year, it was a foundation for overturning Roe v. Wade. Bob Woodard, who, who you know is a very famous sure. writer, wrote in his best-selling book, The Brethren, he said, the Baird case was used by the Supreme Court to be the foundation for Roe v. Wade. It was quoted several times on their right of privacy. And then a few years later, when you mentioned gay people, you don't know, I filed the first bill for gay people in 1969 so they could get married. I've been a fighter for gay people. And here's the killer. In front of me, Planned Parenthood newsletter, 1967, the day of my arrest. Publicity, too much. They complained of all the publicity I was getting. And they said, there's nothing to be gained by Bill Baird's case. Bill Baird is an embarrassment to us. I said, wait a second. This is my ally. And they're telling the nation, don't back Baird. Don't help him in any way. Don't make any donations to pay his lawyers or anything. So I was absolutely shocked. And then when the ACLU dropped my case, everyone said, well, that did it for us because... Why would the ACLU? And I'm on their board of directors. Of course, of course. And I turned around, I said, Jesus Christ, what happened to the world I lived in? Your word of honor. If I give you my word of honor, other than for my having to break it for the saves the lives of women with Joe Bolero, I honestly fought this law as honorably as I could. But along comes the case now. I think about this. I don't know if you know this, but when you have a case that appears before the Supreme Court, you have to print it on certain weight paper, certain color paper. It's $2,500. <clears throat> I've never been a money man. I've always been a fighter for people, but never a money man. So I didn't have the money. So I did the natural thing. I went to NOW, National Organization for Women. I said, look, woman, I need your help. I need you to write an amicus brief, you know, saying that you support what I'm doing, that women have this right. But I need you to help me get 2,500 bucks so that I can pay. So otherwise, if I don't get heard before the Supreme Court, there's no bear of the eyes instead. May may not be any uh, abortion case as well, because I was figuring this my case was a case heard just before Roe v. Wade. Exactly. <clears throat> so to make a long story short, what do you think now said? Well, they, they said no. No, they said no. Betty Fidan says it's been rumored that Bill Baird is a CIA agent that I'm a government spy. Uh, the head of the, the first president of now of New York City, whose name escapes me for the moment, T. Grace Atkinson, great woman out of Cambridge. She quit the presidency. She says, I back Bill Baird. He's got the courage to go and fight for us. We just talk about it. He's going to jail for us. And so she quit. But nobody from now would file not only a brief of support, 
or would even acknowledge that I was a worthwhile person. In fact, a lot of the feminist groups across this country, some like in New York State, back me. Yes, they did. Most of them them say, you're a man, we don't trust men. And I understand that rage. Of course. You have a little bit of intelligence. If a guy goes to jail eight times in five different states, loses his first wife, his kids, uh, his, his honor, if you will, by being abusive <laughs> and all that I had to go through. And then you turn around and say to me, I don't trust you. And when I asked him, please, would you come out with a news release for the 50th anniversary? That was a couple of weeks ago. Yes. That one national group from the ACLU, from Planned Parenthood, from any of them would recognize my case as having the influence of giving freedom, freedom for the first time to unmarried people. And that's because of the politics, you're a man, all men are the enemy. I wish I could get them to hear these words. If you ever go to the Right to Life Convention, which I have done, I'm the only one in our movement was my beloved wife, Johnny. Yep. Only two people, we go to their convention. Why do we go to their convention? Because we monitor what they're doing. I want to know we've got the courage to stand up to them, then I stand outside at noontime with an eight-foot wooden cross, with due respect to religion, and it says, free woman from the cross of religious oppression, keep abortion legal, or make abortion legal at that particular time. Sure. And lo and behold, people said to me from our movement, you can't attack religion. I said, don't you understand? I'm not attacking religion. I'm attacking the political arm of a religion that thinks it has the right to say to a woman, if you're pregnant from rape or whatever it is, you've got to go through the pregnancy. Uh, my desk here is full of quotes. I had a little 12-year-old child who was raped by her father. As he held down, raped by, when she came to my clinic in Hempstead, carrying a little teddy bear in her hand, came and just hugged me, she said, please help me. And it brought tears to my eyes and Forgive me, because I think of her often enough. To think that this child could die by going through a pregnancy and bringing forth a child that was forced on her by her father. I said, we will help you. And I did. I had one of the headlines here. I got a 14-year-old who was mentally ill. And it said, mentally ill, the the, uh, brain of a child, the body of an adult. She was well-developed. I helped her, of course, but all these people that I helped, and then finally, to kill me, one of the terrorists came into my clinic with a gallon of gasoline. I had 60 patients there, threw the gasoline against the wall, and said, we're going to cleanse Bill Baird by fire. They all were convinced because the Catholic Church said I was the devil. They held public masses for my soul. I'm a Unitarian. And as a Unitarian, most of them came nowhere near me. And that's one of the reasons I'm, it's hard for me to believe in any of these religions because every time I try to say, look, help me, you've got the respectability. You're, you're ministers, you're clergy. I'm just a guy from the streets, a fighter for people. That's all I am. I never try to say I'm anything else. But I was never good enough. Let me ask you a little more about religion, because, um, as you know, I ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State for 25 years. And uh, when I got there, there was enormous reticence about even taking on 
abortion as a thing we worried about and worked on. And I remember giving a a talk to a, a board that was very conservative at that time. And I said, you know, if there wasn't a religious argument against abortion, there would be no argument at all. The only human being I ever knew who was a serious thinker, who was not religious, who was anti-abortion, was uh, an, a, a columnist for the Village Voice named Nat Hentoff. And he was a good friend, but he was so myopic on this and perhaps one other issue. Do you agree with me that but for the dominance of the Catholic Church and then it's uh, meeting back with uh, Jerry Falwell, you know, he didn't, he didn't even start with abortion, but as soon as he thought, how can we get more, <clears throat> how can we join up with the Catholic Church and our Protestants who are against abortion, we can form an organization which they did the moral majority. But I don't think there'd be an argument. I don't think there would be the stupid comments that are made in this draft brief that Alito wrote. I don't think there would be senators like Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley saying these absurd things if they didn't ultimately rely on a religious argument that is only shared not only by a minority of religious groups in the country, but even by a minority of Roman Catholics today. Well, I think you're absolutely right. Ironically, in preparation for you, this is the New York Times. It shows me picketing St. Patrick's Cathedral. <laughs> yep. The date of this, 1966. Think about this. People came out screaming out, this is blasphemy, blasphemy. I said, no, your church is trying to force women to go through pregnancy. There are Reformed Jews who support abortion, Methodists, uh, Unitarians, other good people who support abortion rights and birth control rights. You don't have a right to impose your morality. And I asked a simple question. Suppose you got hit by a car after you leave the church and you rush to the hospital here and you needed blood transfusion. Jehovah Witnesses said, hold it. That's against our religion. You can't have it. Or tomorrow morning you want to eat ham and eggs. The Orthodox you say, hold it. It's against our religion. You can't eat pork. You can't have anybody's religion be imposed on somebody else because you think your God is better than somebody else's God. Or in my case, my version of a God, this may sound corny to you. This is a Sunday school teacher. And when my little sister died at the age of 12, because we didn't have money for a doctor, and I wept, and I still miss her to this. She also one of the motivating factors. I was only nine years old. But when you see the suffering, and you turn to religious people, and they tell you, little boy, when you grow up, you see God works in mysterious ways. Well, I think God needs a little bit of help once in a while. And I say, darn it, I will fight whoever it is. And the Catholic Church has been the leading force, but now they've been joined with the evangelical people. Yep. They're a dynamic duo who really are doing their best to try to say, quote, a fertilized egg is a person. And I say to them, why is a fertilized egg a person? And here's an you've heard this before, right? Fertilized <laughs> egg is a person, the soul enters a conception. So wait a second. Soul enters a conception in medicine, as you know, is a word called twinning. What happens <laughs> when the egg divides in half 10 exactly. days later? 
Are you trying to tell me that a soul is capable of dividing in half 10 days later and you get half a soul to each twin? I said, does that make sense? Like, well, why don't you just let the woman decide with her clergy or no clergy, whoever she wants to go to, and let people live their own life the way they want to. If you gave a damn about all these babies, why don't you, as a politician, vote to support proper housing, proper food? I grew up in the slums. My father was an alcoholic. I had to go from garbage can to garbage eight years old, nine years old, picking up newspapers to sell them so we would have food. When you, I don't know if you've had a chance to read that entire draft opinion. No, I uh, haven't been able to get it. No, it's very hard to get. You, you, you can, I'll send you a copy, but it's oh, worse great. than I thought. And it's worse in so many different ways because it makes an argument that there really is not only no constitutional right to privacy that comes from an emanation of the... Uh, amendments in the Bill of Rights or in the 14th Amendment, but it it never, it says that this will now go to legislatures, in other words, to the states, and also by implication, although it doesn't say this, back to Congress. Do you think for a moment that the anti-choice zealots in this country will stop and not try to find ways to make sure that people in every state are once again first denied the right to abortion and then the right to contraception. The Supreme Court, in a case called Hobby Lobby, which really had nothing directly to do with this, tacitly assumed the validity of the claim made by the Hobby Lobby company that most forms of birth control are, in fact, abortion-inducing abortifacients. They already have taken that step. That was a a court that was somewhat better than the offensive 6-3 to conservative. I don't even think conservative is a fair word. These people are totalitarians, six totalitarians, five of whom... I think anybody who says, if I could put a pencil dot on your TV screen, the human egg is a quarter of the size of a pencil dot, and say that's a person equal to the woman, you got to be stock raving nuts. Yes. And to call that a human being, a person, from the moment of conception, I, we have elections coming up. Do pregnant women count as two people in an election booth since you're not allowed to go in an election mm-hmm. booth? I mean, what has happened to our ability to say, woman, you're a sister, you're a mother, you're a family unit. You make the decision what you think is right. There's something in medicine, and I've said this many times, because men come to me and say, well, my wife, my possession. I say, wait a minute. Mm. My decision? I said, why is it your decision? Because I made her pregnant. I said, well, you know, there's something in medicine called a maternal death rate. Yeah. Uterus can rupture. You can develop toxicity in your pregnancy. Lots of factors can happen. So how dare you say to a woman who can lose her life about her pregnancy that you as a male, you're going to make a decision that's about her life? No. Get lost. Get out of my clinic. Stay out. You come in. Exactly. You out. It bothers uh, my wife, I don't think you've ever met, and myself, to hear so much of the newscasting 
that's going on about this, talking about a ban on abortion. They should always say a ban on illegal abortion because the story that you told that galvanized you to get devote your entire life up through age 90 on this cause was about illegal abortions. You are not going to ever stop illegal abortions. And these self-righteous politicians who think otherwise really need to hear your story and the story of so many women in their 80s and 90s who could tell them today stories about how painful it was, how they would beg to go to a doctor to get help and the doctors were sadly generally afraid to help them what this will mean to the future this is not you know some kind of made for tv movie this is the reality that we will go back to it's not going to stop abortion it will stop legal abortions and it will put the lives of so many women in jeopardy that's the message that needs to be heard. Barry, one of the reasons I love you the way I do, and I'm always anxious to appear any place with you, is the fact that you've got a soul, a spirit that shows what my life is about, which is just loving people, helping people, saying what's true, that people have a right to live their own life, a right to live with dignity, not to, as I saw women go to motel rooms, be sexually abused by a quack, and sometimes have the abortion, other times not. When I saw women who would tell me that they would, her boyfriend was tied to a tree and made to watch while she was raped by a gang of men. This was in Dallas, Texas. I mean, so many stories. And I can't get the story told because Planned Parenthood is on every night saying how they legalize birth control. All I ask anyone, listen, please go to a public library, go to a law school, Pick up the book, look up Griswold versus Connecticut. Not a single word about the freedom and dignity of women. Then go to Bill Baird, Baird versus Eisenstadt. You find a guy from the slums of Brooklyn, Brooklyn College graduate who said, hey, hold it. Only that woman who's pregnant, no matter of her age, youngest kid I had was 12, oldest was 54. They should be the ones making the decision. Nobody else. No. When the issue of marriage equality was being considered. There was a man named Evan Wolfson. And I frequently speak about both of you together because of the one factor. A lot of people in the LGBTQ community at the time said, for crying out loud, do not go and try to stake your case or our case for equal treatment on marriage. It's too controversial. It's ahead of its time. If Evan Wilson hadn't taken that Obergefell case all the way to the Supreme Court, there never would have been a time after that because the court got worse and worse and worse that we would ever have seen the reality of same-sex marriage in every state in the United States. There are people like Evan and like yourself that make a coherent judgment that this is the time to act. If we don't act now, we lose an opportunity. And there are plenty of people who, you know, file lawsuits that, that are uh, ahead of their time or behind their time or just idiosyncratic, and they make bad law. But I think you and Evan 
were the right people at the right moment in American history to be able to do the right thing and to achieve a result that is so important to every American, every single person, straight, gay, male, female, trans, they ought to respect you and Evan, but you in particular more, because there wouldn't have been an Obergefell case. There wouldn't have been a right to privacy that was used in that case for the gay community except for you and your success in Eisenstadt versus Baird. Well, one of the difficult things that and maybe you were much smarter than I am in a lot of other areas, but when you realize the women's movement says, get out of our movement, you're a man. The gay movement, when I filed those bills, they said, get out of our movement, you're not gay. And I, I remember Father Pavone, if you probably know him. Oh, I do. Life. You know, he calls me one of his best friends. We made, quote, friends <laughs> at the Right to Life Convention. But he said to me, very, very anti-gay. So I said to him, uh, I said, do you ever visit the Vatican? Oh, beautiful place. I said, well, I'm saving up my quarters because one day I'm going to go there and pick it. He said, why would you pick it the Vatican? <laughs> I said, well, I said, I'm a great believer in honesty and honor. And I said, do you ever look at the beautiful artwork of the Sistine Chapel? He said, of course, it's gorgeous. Aren't the paintings fantastic? He said, sure. I said, who did the paintings? It was done by a gay painter. No, for decades, right? That's yep. So I'm saying, oh, well, as I haven't been proven, I said, listen to me. What do you know about Jesus Christ and his sexuality? You hung around with 12 guys. You don't know if he was gay or straight. No one knows that. Never a single word. And I read the Bible several times. So it just frustrates me that Bible people use religion to hit somebody over the head to say, my God is better than your God. And I try to sit back and say, the reason I don't identify now with any too much of a form, formal God is a simple belief. I believe there's a force within us to be decent, treat people the way we want to be treated, with dignity, with respect, love people, be kind to each other, but have the guts to stand up and say, no, you're not going to abuse my sister, my daughter, my wife. No. You're not going to bully them. I'll fight to my death. And I will. I made 90. Well, I'll be 90 on the 20th. So. <laughs> Um, you know, there's, uh, I knew some of what you've told me tonight, of course, but one thing I didn't know was the role that Senator Ernest Greening of Alaska played in getting you connected to Millard Tidings of Maryland. Right. And very few people even remember this, but he uh, and Wayne Morse of Oregon, he was a, Greening was from Alaska, were the only two members of the Senate who voted against the Gulf of Tonkin resolution? Remember that, yeah. And uh, and they were pilloried for it. They eventually both lost their seats over it. Had people listened to what they said, like people listening to you, then we would not have had the war in Vietnam that lasted for twelve years and killed literally millions of people. I didn't know that you had that connection to Greening. Let me see if uh, David Feldman, who of course is the host of this show, has some questions or would like to think about what you would suggest those of us who are pro-choice do now that it looks that this Roe versus Wade horrendous decision has 
bad in many ways as the Dred Scott decision will come back or whether any of the people listening, I, I don't know if we have the capacity to see if they want to ask you any questions, but we got a few minutes. David? David, I don't think you're... There we go. There, we, there I, I am. am. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, thank, well, thank you for a... just. A, this is a, so important and uh, it's just I'm honored to uh, to meet you. And uh, I was born in Brooklyn. So, so was I. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, what the, I think the answer for me is women uh, should uh, refuse entry uh, unless a guy can show proof of ID that he contributes to Planned Parenthood. That's the first thing, I think. Uh, but uh, in all... I, I, let me ask you. Could I ask about, you something? Can, can, because I kind of feel I know you because I know of your reputation, but you said something very powerful just now to contribute to Planned Parenthood. What is there that when I say to people that Planned Parenthood was the enemy of people, and when I began in the 60s, they would right. not support my case, even though I was facing 10 years in jail? They said, right. writing, nothing to be gained by the Baird case. He's an embarrassment to us. All these negative thoughts. So when I was in jail, that I didn't, couldn't get even enough money to feed my kids because I was in jail. And I really thought somebody would help, and nobody would. And now when I told you on March 22nd this year, that's only a few weeks back, the U.S. Supreme Court, in my case, was the 50th anniversary historic case for millions of unmarried people. Not a single reporter interviewed and said anything about it. Not a single leader of the pro-choice movement. Not a member of Planned Parenthood. In fact, right. late today, they're on the screen saying, how Griswold legalized birth control. You know that's not true. I know it's not true. But means right. people repeat the same lie and say, right. they didn't legalize, they legalized for a small percentage called married people. The larger percentage was unmarried people. And they were thoroughly discriminated against because it wasn't right. Their literature says, we will not give out birth control to unmarried people, only to married people. Wow. Right, but I, 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 I heard you. I, I just wonder, without Planned Parenthood, where do you get abortions? Okay, very simple. Why not finance, which I was not, a guy like me so I, uh, so I can reopen clinics, set up. I had three clinics going. And then when my clinic was firebombed, uh, that was gone. Then the state, and listen to this carefully, how they closed me down in Hampstead, the first clinic? They closed it down by eminent domain, claiming we're building a courthouse. And they knocked down my clinic, and they built the Hampstead Legal Office where they try cases there now, and I'm kicked out. So I have no source of income to speak of other than what I get from Social Security. The movement knows right. it. I don't get a single paid date when I used to be one, me, Ralph Nader, and uh, Dick Gregory. We were three top speakers in the 60s. No more now, because I don't exist. So one of the things I'd love to hear you say, how do we get Bill Baird hurt? If you think this message was important, and I think it is important, well, I'm still right. alive, even though I'm 90 in a few weeks. I'm still alive. I'm still full of vinegar and the rest. 
to say, oh, I'm going to fight to my last breath because I believe until I die that women and women alone must be the ones who make these decisions, not boards of Planned Parenthood or anyone else. You need fighters. I'm a fighter. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't mean a fighter in a bad way. I mean, I'm a fighter. No matter what you do to me, put me in prison, strip me naked, all the abuse I went through, but I'm not going to give up. One of the things, yeah, there. One of the things that I'm sure will soon happen, assuming, and I can't for a minute believe that any of these five people are going to change their mind on the court, is states will now start to restrict those of us who give money to directly to clinics. I give them to clinics in the District of Columbia where I live, to ones in Kansas and Texas and California, because they are providing those services for women that will have to be continued. But there will be efforts, I am sure, state legislatures to say, if we find out-of-state money going into our clinics in Kansas, we're going to try to prosecute the person who sends the money. But you're right. If if there was, and I think perhaps uh, David might, uh, obviously his point was, if, if you're going to have sexual relations with a woman, you ought to be responsible enough and understanding enough that you are going to be able to help in the provision of contraceptives or uh, uh, or abortion. I, I mean, we do that. Lots of us do that. And uh, Jim Jordan the other day, who is a, a truly despicable member of Congress from Ohio, but he, he put up on Facebook something about Joe Biden. And he said Joe Biden was against uh, third trimester abortions and he was against this. And it, you know, what do you think of that? And I I and I'm sure thousands of other people said, well, you know, Joe Biden may not be perfect, but he did learn. He has changed his mind. But there are dimwits like you, Jim Jordan, who never have changed your mind. So I have to, the only thing, there's a lot of chat comment about this. Um, As you know, I'm very close friends with uh, some of the leadership in the past of of Planned Parenthood, in the more recent past, and of the National Organization for Women. I'd like to think that they have learned something, and I was just on listening to a call where, uh, where Cecile Richards from Planned Parenthood was on earlier this evening. And uh, they, someone was asked about men in the movement. And they said, we constantly recognize that we have got to, we've got to find ways to involve more men in this movement. That's good, because well, men about, are the people who cause the problem. Yeah, but how about this? Let's have a little bit of reality from what you just said. We got to have men. Why don't you, particularly Cecile, how many times you watch her on television say, "Help, Griswold legalized birth control"? Tell the truth. You left out deliberately sure. left out married people only. Why don't you say, "Gee, unmarried people got that right by a guy who said, you know, what? I will pick up the other half." and say unmarried people have as much right. 
One of the things you asked about what people can do, I've asked everyone I meet, every grocery store I go to, yeah. wherever, please <laughs> register to vote. Yep. Bring somebody down to the voting booth. Uh, contact your politicians, friend and foe. Let them know where you stand and give them the argument why women will not endure a death sentence by male predominantly legislators. And I'll tell you something else I would do, and I've never said this before. You know, you had three appointees by Bush, by uh, Trump, Trump, right, who said, in effect, that they could live with Roe v. Wade. That was not true. No. And they were under oath. Yes. I would demand all three of them be booted out. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I, I am 100% in favor of that. You but, lie to the but, public. You don't deserve the honor of a lifetime appointment no. to the U.S. Supreme Court. Let them I, know that we've got teeth. Also, by the way, religion. You ever think about, and this may offend you, and please don't misunderstand it. No. We have the Vatican. The Vatican is a government. It has its own flag, its own coins, its own uh, government set up. The head of the government, yep. as you know, is the Pope. Sure. Now, we have ambassadors from the United States and the world right. appointed. Now, there's a law in our country, which you may or may not know, called the Foreign Lobbying Act. Correct. If you lobby through your bishops, through your cardinals, and try to make birth control a crime, abortion a crime, gay rights a crime, then you must register as a lobbyist. Your financial records must be open to the public. I've been saying that for 50 years, and they also exactly. declared that they're the, too radical. Well, I'll give you a Do you remember the Pope came to the United States not that many years ago to Boston, and they were going to build an altar for him? Yep. An altar of a course of several grand. Correct. And I said something, gee, that comes out of taxpayers' money. I said, there's something called separation of church and state. If you're going to have a pope come, then you come, fine. But let him pay for his own altar. They've got more money than God. Yep. They're a multi-billion dollar corporation. Also, by the way, why not boycott their business holdings? They own Christian Brothers Wine out of Spencer, Massachusetts. Of course they do. Monk's Bread, upstate New York. Christian Brothers Wine. Why not go and fight them on a level that they understand? And all I'm saying to you, dear friend, is it takes guts to stand up to a bully, and they are bullies. Am I too much? <laughs> not at all. Um, not at all. And of course, there, no. the reason so many of these religious groups don't have to report anything is because they, they're exempt from those requirements mm -hmm. under other federal statutes. But, you know, let me, we're, we do have to wrap this up, but one of the things about the Democrats in the Senate all of whom send requests on a daily, if not hourly basis to me to send them money for their next campaign. I would like to know where any of them were when people like those three now justices of the court were about to become justices of the court instead of forcing them to, instead of these stupid, well, it's settled law. Would you unsettle it? Nobody asked those questions. When yeah. Amy Coney Barrett was about to be nominated, when she was nominated and about to be appointed, I don't want to know what speeches they gave. I don't want to know what 
appearances they made on MSNBC. I want to know what they did to try procedurally. There are gazillions of procedural ways to delay things. What did they do to try to stop her? A woman who said abortion was barbaric. Did they really think she had an open mind when she used that word in a co-signed letter just a few years before? So much as I can't imagine ever voting for a Republican, but if you want my vote and my money for crying out loud, say you're going to do more than appear on television or give a speech, do whatever you can to stop these injustices from happening ever again. Bill Baird, Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is always a great honor to talk with you. And uh, this has been an extraordinary, I can tell from the chats, um, people really, really respect everything you've said tonight. Thank you for saying it. You don't know how much I need to hear that. Thank you. Come back. Will you come back? Or would I? <laughs> I'd be honored to come back. I, I am, I am going to actually write uh, to the heads of Planned Parenthood and now and NARAL uh, tomorrow and tell them, because this will be archived, to tell them to watch this because whatever respect they remain to have for me, they need to hear this and they need to hear it not just about the past but about what they could have done for you just a month ago. To Keep you alive so I can fight back. <laughs> exactly. Right. right. Thank you. Thanks, right. Bill. And- Thank you, Bill. Please come back as soon as possible. This is a uh, a tremendous, (laughs) tremendous, tremendous interview. Uh, Thank you so much. Grateful to you. Thank And the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, thank you, as always. Thank Thank you you. very much. Okay. Well, very humbling. Yeah. Uh, yes, it uh, is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, well, let's now do the professors and Marianne, shall we? Uh, every week we do the professors and Marianne. Professor Marianne Cummings is a particle physicist as well as a parks commissioner in aurora illinois we are also joined by professor as well as professor ann lee who you can read over at the daily Co's under the name annie lee and professor adnan hussein host of guerrilla history and uh, the mudgeless podcast but first let's go to joel in norway and his kitchen cam what are you preparing for us tonight sir Oh boy, after that, uh, don't have much of an appetite. But as you know, I've got a bit of a toothache. I'm getting my wisdom tooth removed tomorrow morning. So I need to make soup for some days. So I'll be Mm -hmm. making two different types of soup, uh, potato, uh, uh, leek potato and zucchini with spinach soup, and then a tarkadal, which is a kind of... uh, curried yellow pea soup that is uh, better than chicken soup 
keeps you keeps you uh, from getting sick during my, the cold season. So it's a fantastic little soup. And as I'm looking at the ingredients, it looks like the homepage to Rahima.org. If you go to Rahima.org, all that healthy food is on the front page. And that is a food pantry in the Bay Area near San Francisco, in San Francisco, that provides for refugees uh, who come to America and need help. Everybody needs help, especially refugees. Give to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org. See the type of food that they provide at their food pantry. It's healthy, it's beans, it's plant-based, it's yogurt, no junk food. Your money goes a long way over at Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A. And it's also a way of thanking Professor Adnan Hussein. I, his parents set this organization up. So thank you for that. Well, obviously, I know some of you want to talk about Roe v. Wade, but I would be remiss in uh, blaming and not blaming Professor Marianne Cummings for what happened uh, to, <laughs> to Nina Turner. It's, <laughs> I got to tell you, uh, first, Christian Small's labor union loses their second vote. And then Nina Turner loses on Tuesday. And I'm thinking, I know it's wrong to think this, but at some point, you know, we're, we're presenting to Americans an opportunity for change. And I mean, Nina Turner lost resoundingly, Professor Marianne. Is that correct? It was a hit job, right? I mean, you have to unmute yourself. Unmute I've only yourself. been doing this for two and a half years. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I was getting a lot of crap from people because I was um, critical of Nina in the last month on the Twitters. And uh, sort of the gist of my, um, my complaints and my criticism of her was that he said, girl, you aren't distinguishing yourself now from your rival. I mean, the, the biggest fraud I have seen recently politically has been the Congressional Progressive Caucus endorsing Nina Turner. I didn't know what the vote was. They didn't say what the vote was. Uh, this past week, Mark Pocan, who was one of the co-chairs, had said that it was a unanimous vote. It was a unanimous vote of the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus. So if I were Nina, but I'm not, you know, but uh, I would have been, I would have been outraged and called out everyone, including the squad. How dare you say this from my opponent? Just the stuff that's on record, you know, her record as a city councilwoman, her very late, very uh, transparently political move to join the progressive, the, the pro 
the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus, and to get behind uh, uh, Jayapal's uh, Medicare for All bill. And Jayapal, like, broadcasting that fact on all these social media platforms. I mean, uh, you know, the problem is, is that her kind of weak response to all that, and even the on election night, her kind of excusing the, the squad because they were threatened. These are some of the most powerful people on earth. They have health care, they have benefits, a nice salary as staff. And, you know, then who's threatening them? The, the problem is, uh, I, I feel that and it's not just Nina, it's just, I just feel the all the energy has been drained from this, from Bernie Sanders related movement, not everywhere and not in every campaign, but a lot of people are parting with them just because of this straddling, this equivocating, this, you know, being a little wishy-washy. I mean, this is, they're behaving like every other politician people see. And Nina's brand was she would be able to get out there and say what she meant. Now she's trying to accommodate the Democratic Party. The party, by the way, who has sent their uh, third in command, James Clyburn, down to campaign for Henry Coilar, who is a pro-life Democrat. That's how much the Democrats care about Roe v. Wade and abortion rights. And none of the squad is calling that out either. None of them. They should be condemning Nancy Pelosi and Clyburn and the entire House Democratic leadership on this crap. And they won't. So, you know, what can I say? But I'm, I'm glad I went out and talked to people. You know, it's, just, it's often, it's good just to get a handle. And a lot of people were more than one person, but one person in particular had, had told me like, well, I hear all this negative stuff and I know I'm just being, it's just politics, but oh, it's making it really hard for me to vote for her. And then I told her my story of, you know, somebody just out and out lying. And then I think she felt like, okay, I'm glad you talked to me, but there were several people like this. And if you don't show strong leadership, like, you know, we'll do figuratively what uh, those guys did to the poor guy who like attacked Chappelle the other night, yesterday. If you're not, if you're not willing to stand up and be a fighter, then people, they don't have confidence to vote for you. Chappelle lives in Ohio. Did, did he come out for Nina Turner? Oh, I haven't heard any. Oh, he's an Andrew. The only time I remember him like endorsing someone, didn't he endorse Andrew? Andrew yeah, that's yeah, the only yeah. person. I, you know, no, I yeah. did not hear anything from Chappelle. Well, Professor Anne, Anne Lee has been writing over at the Daily Kos about all these Russian generals getting killed. And then there was a report you write that America took credit for providing Ukraine with the intelligence to kill all these Russian generals. What, what's going on? Is that true? It's more the New York Times uh, doing its little framing gig these days. 
uh, yeah hang on for one second we, we have a problem with your audio and you are the most brilliant person in the world so it's incredibly frustrating that we can't I'm hear you cranked up high is this better yeah all right uh, sorry yeah i mean testing <laughs> one two is three that, is that a directional mic, uh, Anley? Uh, yes, it is actually. I so you probably want directional. Oh, you probably want to talk into the top of it. Yeah, try that because. About that. Can you, that can you point the microphone oh, towards? Actually, you? the pattern is a. Uh, it's not an omni. It's a bi-directional with two, two frames like this. But anyway. Can, can we no, just? Go ahead. Can we just? I, we last week we. we I, I don't mean to be rude. Uh, I hang on your every word. Uh, last week we we did ask you to tilt the microphone into your face. Is it possible to at least try that? How's this? Is this good? That's better. better. Yeah, but is it, is it possible to tilt the microphone towards you? Oh sure. Let's try this. How about that? Is that better? I'm right on top second. of it, and I have the entire audio cranked up. Testing one, I two, think three. that's better. Yes, that's better. Okay. Uh, anyway, back to... Uh, yes, killing Ukrainian general, uh, killing Russian the, general. Well, the, the morning framing was that uh, an article that included uh, a variety of, of writers, uh, including the... Um, um, military affairs reporter for uh, the Times, Lean Cooper, uh, wrote a thing that appeared to be a uh, some kind of quote-unquote leak about, but it was actually a spin. It was a spin on how much the, the U.S. was influencing or targeting. The inference was that the U.S. was targeting generals, whereas the reality is, and I think there is a, a reality, is that the Ukrainians are pretty damn good at their intelligence. They've managed to knock off all kinds of people who are too stupid carrying their cell phones and making unsecured phone calls. And, you know, if you, if you can geolocate it, you can drop a bomb on it. And uh, the Ukrainians are actually quite good at, at that. In fact, there's a very, very cool little piece of video. It's not so cool for the guys the bomb dropped on, but a drone dropping a uh, anti-personnel device on a right through the um, uh, the skylight of a vehicle. It, it, it's pretty astounding. Uh, anyway. The, the point was, of course, that it's a spin and trying to implicate uh, the U.S. in this activity. The U.S. does supply intelligence. They're, they're doing it all the time. They've been doing it for months. It's not that different. They run a, a, a surveillance flight all on the periphery of Ukraine every day. They're, they do it 24-7. And so it's really no different than before. The problem is that the Russians... Because they don't believe, and, th and this is the uh, counterspin to this, is that the U.S. has done a lot of training. And it's eight years of training where they've developed their non-commissioned officer corps 
so that there's a lot more autonomy at lower ranks in the Ukrainian military so that uh, you don't have to have generals always up in the front lines and in command locations. And so essentially what they're doing, and in fact, I've, I've written something that will come out at midnight that makes the analogy that, you know, if, if you start, it, it may not be honorable in one sense to keep knocking off, uh, you know, general staff, but if they're going to make themselves obvious, they're a target. And that's what happened. The issue is, of course, that the spin is a anti-U.S. or trying to engage the whole NATO spin on it, and it's really not that different. The the degree, I think, of intelligence, and if you if you look at a variety of open source elements, it's not that it it hasn't changed. the The intel thing is going on the same way it it is it has always done, and there is. Um, Probably, and with all due respect, an equal level of disinformation being spewed out on both sides about casualty levels and a variety of other things. The Ukrainians have lost a couple of generals, too, but no one talks about that. Uh, th this is all spinning at, at, at the, the media level as a, as a disinformation flood. The reality, of course, is that the Russians are launching attacks on, on Ukrainian infrastructure and are... are screwing up the rail lines and then there's all of these other pieces of information like essentially oh yes there's a great sign today that that shows that the new russian um uh russian oriented uh rulers of uh mariupol have changed all their directional signs to kiev from kyiv to kiev it's like there's just like crazy little things going on at the same time. And rubles, so I, right? You're, suppo you're supposed to be using and the ruble. And the ruble and converting the, the ruble all over the place in terms of currency. The fact is, of course, that some of these areas will likely get taken, taken back. And then you're just going to have another reconversion, uh, assuming that the, the war continues into May, June, which is when the conversion is going to take place. There are other issues going on now, you know, uh, an EU oil embargo that may come up at the, in December. A, a variety of other things are ratcheting up. So this uh, it's a little bit of a sideshow, this thing about targeting generals. They brought it on themselves. <laughs> when, when the Soviet Union fell, it caught the CIA by surprise, supposedly. They, they then said, looking back, there was no there there. I think, uh, was it Virginia Woolf who said that about Oakland? I think. No. Maybe I'm wrong. No. Uh, what's your name? Uh, oh, God. God, I'm blanking. Sorry. Friends. She's from <laughs> Oakland. Virginia Woolf. Uh, she ran the salon in England. Yeah, it's I late. No, no, now I'm. Yeah. Uh, I bet Ann Lee knows, though. Where's I bet Ann Lee poet, damn it. <laughs> uh, is is that what we're discovering with Russia that there's no there there? Was it Gertrude Stein? Yeah, Gertrude Stein. Yes, Gertrude thank Stein. you. Oh. Coming from somebody who grew up around Oakland, yes, she said there was no there there, and that's what, how they described the the Soviet Union. Do you get a sense that there's no there there with Putin? Well, I mean, he's going to go in for surgery in a couple of days, and a lot of us... Oh, that's uh, the rumor. Does he have cancer? Uh, yeah, some kind of stomach cancer. 
and uh, I, this is the perfect time for a coup, speaking of coups. But is it true that he has stomach cancer? Is that a rumor? Well, there's been some indication that he's not been, he doesn't look well, but, you know, whatever that means in his public appearances. And that was in the couple of weeks. That's been for a couple of weeks. So and, more spin. And they're going to unite the Donbass region. That's his next move to bring the two separatist republics together. You say that they've been training, America's been training Ukrainian soldiers for eight years. Crimea was seized in 2014. I believe that would have been eight years ago. Has America been itching for this for eight years? Well, I think that they've been doing their due diligence about uh, whatever their NATO, what they thought were their NATO responsibilities. That is not to send weapons necessarily. This was during the Trump era, but units from um, as diverse a set of units as uh, the California National Guard have been cross-training with, uh, with the Ukrainian army. So they're pretty well prepared. I, I think that they've, you know, all of those things that have, that uh, the U.S. Is, has kind of adjusted to in the post, post-Soviet era are being applied in the Ukrainian field. It's, it's, a, it's the kind of thing uh, military organizations live for. Right. And America is spending more on weapons for oh. Ukraine this year than we spent uh, every year in Afghanistan on weapons, not to it, mention all the weapons that are coming in from other NATO countries. This is such an incredible boondoggle for the military industrial complex. I mean, you know, every every plane that gets trans every piece of 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 tech or every truck or, or piece of material that's being transferred to the Ukrainians might be, you know, 20, 30 years old. But the fact is they'll all get replaced with U.S. equipment or British equipment, but mainly it's, it's U.S. equipment. With all due respect, the Australians are the fourth largest, I think, military uh, uh, procurer right now. So uh, there's, a, there's several Australian things that are in the field, uh, 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 vehicles, etc. And so, where that, where those weapons end up, we'll never know. Read uh, Professor Ann Lee over at the Daily Coes. Go to dailycoes.com forward slash blog forward slash A-N-N-I-E-L-I. A-N-N-I-E-L-I. Professor Jonathan Bick, what would you like to talk about? Well, David, I'd like to talk about the Competes Act. This is uh, legislation that will provide $53 billion to the highly profitable microchip industry, uh, purportedly to promote innovation, domestic manufacturing, and job creation in the U.S., the bill is currently in conference committee as the House and Senate reconcile their differences uh, before final passage. So it's passed both the House and Senate and they're uh, negotiating uh, differences in, you know, in the House version and Senate version of the bill. Uh, yesterday, the Senate began holding votes on dozens of motions related to the Competes Act, 
The motions were aimed at instructing the conferees work on the bill. So the Senate representation in the conference committee. Senator Bernie Sanders doesn't think this bill is a great idea. He argues, uh, he's argued in the Senate and, and in news media that the bill in its current form would do nothing to prevent taxpayer funding from going to large corporations that bust unions, outsource US jobs, and buy back their own stock. On Wednesday, uh, Sanders introduced motions that would attach a number of safeguards to the legislation's funding and would cut a $10 billion NASA provision to fund moon landers, money that's likely to end up going to billionaire Jeff Bezos' space flight company, Blue Origin. Or Elon Musk. Right. He's already gotten money. So the provision that would give NASA $10 billion to pick a company to build a second moon lander after the agency awarded SpaceX, a company owned by billionaire Elon Musk, a $2.9 billion contract to make a lunar rocket last year. Blue Origin, has, which competed for the original contract, unsuccessfully sued NASA over the SpaceX deal, claiming the contract was improperly awarded. Apparently, uh, Bezos and other billionaires feel they are entitled to taxpayer support so that they can make a profit. Bezos's company is working behind the scenes to combat the Vermont Independent Senator's assault uh, uh, on its uh, possible role in NASA's public-private partnership to land on the moon by 2025. So uh, Sanders introduced a, uh, a motion to, to strip this 10 billion out, uh, but by overwhelming margins, uh, six to 86 and 17 to 78, the Senate voted down both of Sanders' proposals while approving several Republican-led motions unrelated to the bill's objectives, including one that would instruct conferees to prohibit President Joe Biden from lifting the terrorism designation on Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Why that's up for (laughs) consideration in this bill is uh, a bit perplexing. Um, So he, yeah, he had proposed to put protections in there to make sure that uh, workers in the in the microchip uh, industry uh, are protected, that they're getting paid uh, good wages, that those companies are not buying back their own stock with the money that they get from American taxpayers, et cetera, et cetera. Sanders said, quote, at a time when 70 million are uninsured, when 600,000 people are homeless in this country, while we're seeing a growing gap between the very rich and everyone else, it does not make a lot of sense to give $10 billion to the second wealthiest person in this country. My thoughts on this are that, um, you know, it appears we have $54 billion for corporate welfare. uh, And we have $46 billion for six months worth of military aid to Ukraine, which 
risks an expansion of a localized conflict into a regional or even global war. But we don't have money for combating global warming or for improving education or healthcare in this country. We can subsidize profit making companies, but we cannot, or we will not, provide essential services for our population that most other countries provide for theirs. And I don't oppose uh, bolstering the US semiconducting, you know, US semiconductor manufacturing. I think it's a good idea to have that capability in this country. Uh, and I'm also not against, um, you know, funding uh, technological research and development and enhancing the nation's uh, space exploration efforts. But it should be done for the benefit of the American people, not for profitable corporations. We know that NASA can build lunar landers. You know how we know that? Because they did it before and we landed on the moon. Uh, you know, why are we privatizing this activity? To, to benefit the, the two wealthiest men in this country. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, Grunman, I think it was Grunman that built the, the lunar lander, I think. It, it was private corporations that built it under the aegis of NASA, but right, not but like it was this. Not, it was not outsourced to them exclusively. Right. Exactly. NASA has just become a shell corporation that funnels this activity uh, to private enterprise. Uh, and probably when we start mining the moon and asteroids, the government won't get a piece of that. Even though we created all the technology to get Elon Musk on the asteroid. Uh, exactly. Yes. Uh, actually, uh, Bernie Sanders wrote an op-ed in The Guardian last month, and he mentioned that. Uh, he said, this issue goes well beyond just one contract for Bezos to go to the moon. Noting in 2018, private corporations made over 94 billion in profits from goods or services that are used in space, profits that could not have been achieved without generous subsidies and support from NASA and the taxpayers of America. NASA has identified over 12,000 asteroids within 45 million kilometers of Earth that contain iron ore, nickel, precious metals, and other minerals. Just a single 3,000-foot asteroid may contain platinum worth over $5 trillion. And other asteroids' rare Earth metals could be worth more than $20 trillion alone. According to Silicon Valley entrepreneur entrepreneur Peter Diamandis, quote, there are $20 trillion checks up there waiting to be cashed. And Sanders said, the questions we must ask are, who will be cashing those checks? Who will overall be benefiting from space exploration? Will it be a handful of billionaires or will it be the people of a country and all of humanity? Right. By the way, in Don't Look Up, that was one of the genius twists about the uh, comet that was gonna crash into the earth, that it had all these rare <laughs> minerals on it, that and all of a sudden they're thinking, well, maybe we don't need to, maybe we should welcome it. Uh, what a great movie. You know, I don't mean to 
uh, equate what a woman goes through when they get raped with the the rapacious appetites of people like uh, Jeff Bezos and and uh, Elon Musk. But there is a connection between our rape culture, the way we treat women, the way we view rape. I think only 4% of rapes even get prosecuted. I mean, most women who are victimized don't bother going to the cops because for obvious reasons, there, there are, there is a type of person who feels they are entitled to take what doesn't belong to them. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk see our, see NASA, our government, our tax dollars, and they think that's mine. I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. And it's all part of the same sickness. We can't allow these people who are either rapists, racists, or rapacious capitalists to, to do, to get away with what they're taking. The only reason they're getting away with all of this is we always assume there are, there are government people who will protect us. The police will protect us. The regulators will protect us. Our government, no, they've been taken over by these people. And uh, anyway, I, Professor, I, I, I would agree. I, I just say, David, I, I don't care if they're saints. Uh, you know, they don't have to be rapists or whatever. No person should control that amount of wealth and power. It is antithetical to democracy. It, it, it undermines the idea that the people are self-governing because they, they just wield too much political power when they have that much uh, money. And they're just, as Noam Chomsky says, the media is just manufacturing consent. The best anybody can do is say, democracy, we're going to lose our democracy. We must do something. But they're not, they, they lack the vocabulary to tell us what to do. Uh, I was reading about that Dave Chappelle show at the Hollywood Bowl where he unfortunately got attacked. Uh, it's a bunch of millionaire comedians going up in front of screaming fans, uh, half the time mocking transgender people, the other time telling us it's all going to shit. The country's got, you know, six months left, but no solutions. You know, they're just, uh, nobody's screaming for Medicare for all. Nobody's talking about Christian Smalls and the Amazon labor union. It's just, uh, these bromides, these liberal bromides, it's all shit. We're going to lose our democracy. What are you going to do with the democracy? They don't tell us what to do with our democracy. Professor Adnan Hussein, what would you like to talk about tonight? Well, I think a lot of the key topics have come up in uh, the previous segment with Bill Baird and also in the discussion with uh, 
my fine colleagues here. Um, uh, looks like space is indeed the final frontier uh, for Prof. John. Um, but I guess, um, you know, it's been such a terrible week, actually, uh, if you think about it. Um, it is dispiriting, you know, the failure of the second vote for Amazon Labor Union, the release of this uh, 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 draft opinion that uh, indicates an impending reversal of um, woman's right to choose and really the releasing uh, unrestrained of uh, the patriarchal fascist, you know, uh, right-wing conservative movement. Um, also, I think, uh, you know, just uh, the acknowledgements that are increasingly coming out of normalizing the fact that it is indeed a proxy war that the U.S. is pursuing, uh, you know, uh, the goals of weakening Russia, you know, these statements that are coming out is just showing that there is absolutely no investment or commitment to peace and negotiations and solving this crisis, but the continuation of the war, um, the loss of uh, Nina Turner. I mean, this has really been a very, very difficult uh, week, I think, politically. Uh, if you're looking for signs of hope, um, grassroots action, um, it's really, I think, uh, disturbing. I did want to talk a little bit more of about uh, the implications of the overturning of Roe v. Wade that looks like it's about to happen, but maybe take a slightly different angle um, that uh, uh, full of their sense of victory because they've managed to um, put in place a multi-decade, um, multifaceted uh, strategy that is bearing uh, fruit uh, here uh, they're uh, looking forward to trying to expand uh, the movement uh, internationally and taking aim. Some of these organizations, the deep pockets, the funding organizations, the organized institutions like the Heritage Foundation, Focus on the Family, um, the Alliance Defending Freedom, um, you know, these sorts of institutions that are funded by, you know, DeVos families, uh, you know, Eric Prince, uh, Templeton Foundation, and so on are, uh, have been working already for the last decade on establishing links with conservatives, conservative parties, conservative politicians across Europe in order to target, um, you know, abortion rights uh, abroad, gay rights abroad. Um, and I was trying to think what, um, you know, there is such a historic connection between patriarchy and fascism. And I was trying to think a little bit about the nature of this kind of far right imagination. And I think it really comes down to the way in which an anti-immigrant and a patriarchal uh, conservative family uh, structure all go together in terms of protecting kind of white patriarchal power. And um, so one of the things that seems to be uh, uh, motivating and working with the anti-immigrant and far-right uh, uh, upsurge that we've been seeing in uh, Europe for the last several years is this idea of a great replacement theory, right? The great replacement. So it has two components. One is the outsider that is coming and is threatening you. Um, the racialized other, the immigrant, the refugee, um, the, uh, you know, suppressed uh, 
colonized that's come back now uh, as an as an immigrant. If we think about you know France and Algeria, and we talked a little bit about the um, far right forces in the French election. Although Macron has uh, you know won, um, you know we can say that a very substantial part of the French electorate seems to be captured by uh, far right ideas. Um, you know, that that's the outsider, that's the outside, you know, kind of politics facing outward. Inwardly, there is this deep concern that demographically, you know, uh, birth rates are falling among, you know, wealthy white Europeans, and this is the other component. And so naturally abortion is to be targeted because uh, they are very invested in this idea of women as a resource of the race of the nation, you know, for producing, uh, you know, and trans for producing children, biological resources, and um, as cultural transmitters for, you know, the the particular ideas that they want uh, to be perpetuated. And so you have the inside outside connection of how these kinds of politics are linked and it's really disturbing to see how many inroads they are making and how much money some of these organizations are spending like that um alliance defending freedom i think has um invested uh just in the last couple of years uh you know 25 million dollars in uh various kinds of um you know, events, connections, promoting, supporting various politicians to try and, um, you know, roll back uh, legislation all across Europe, um, you know, on abortion, on gay rights, uh, and other things. So I think one thing that comes out of um, our previous discussion with uh, uh, that um, Reverend Barry had with Bill Baird, a wonderful article that Ann Lee actually posted in the chat, and I encourage everybody to go read it. It's really an excellent article from the New Republic that celebrates Bill Baird's um, sort of forgotten career as a real um, uh, initiator of a militant form of uh, uh, birth control and abortion rights uh, was that uh, a lot of the mainstream organizations that he was complaining about have abandoned, have really relied on the court case, uh, expecting that it's settled law uh, um, and being very passive about um, embedding this in legislation. That's something that could have been done, you know, by the Democratic Party. I think it's been mentioned several times that you know there are bills that would be protecting this at the federal level, but also, you know, uh, the conservatives are working night and day on state legislatures, you know, we've been just asleep, uh, you know, asleep at the wheel, not taking seriously that at every level of government, this could be embedded in law and not just resting on court decisions. And we've seen the changes that are taking place in the complexion of the court for decades now. Um, um, and you know, for one reason or another, it seems that that brand of militant politics that um, he really was committed to um, has had no place in this movement. And if we're going to see any change and if we're going to protect what little, you know, we've gained, um, it's going to take a real militant organized approach, um, not the insider politics um, of depending on, 
you know, political leaders uh, to do the right thing, but actually forcing these issues and mobilizing around them. So I think that was an important lesson from that discussion. Yeah. The level of cruelty knows no bounds. Uh, there's a story that Abbott, the governor of Texas now, wants to have the Supreme Court overrule a 1982 decision mandating undocumented workers. The children of undocumented workers must get a free education in the United States. Uh, Plyler v. Doe, Texas had banned undocumented children from the public schools. And in 1982, our Supreme Court ruled, no, you educate all children here in America. And now Abbott, feeling the success of the Supreme Court ruling, wants to uh, deny children of undocumented workers education. This is something Arianna Huffington used to uh, push in California. She yeah, I think you're very right to point out um, the uh, politics of cruelty. And that's something that I mentioned is um, seems to be uh, quite uh, a feature of far right politics um, on the recent episode that we did for guerrilla history on the, uh, you know, abortion laws and the leaked memo um, earlier this week which is that it's the same kind of politics that seems to have taken a kind of delight in the displays of the camps at the border of kids in cages. Um, as you know, we see with this kind of cruel um, kind of uh, uh, attempt to suppress legal abortion because they know that it will be leading to uh, backstreet you know, abortions, the gruesome tale that Bill Baird mentioned they don't mind that. Um, and they also don't mind criminalizing. And you know, this is the thing Trump said out loud what was implicit in the politics of, of uh, these anti-abortion uh, activists um, when he said that, you know, there should be criminal penalties. You know, if you if abortion is not going to be legal, then, you know, women who have them should be prosecuted. And everybody was aghast um, in the, you know, uh, anti-abortion uh, community saying, oh, no, of course, that's not what it's about. But there's proving that it is about that and that there is this politics of cruelty um, that is really a, a part of every aspect of this of this um, uh, anti-abortion and far right um, uh, movement. And you know that that's the case because it's never put forward, even as far right populists are now bemoaning the fact that you can't live on a single income, you can't have that kind of 50s family where the father goes out to work and the mother stays at home and, you know, because of, um, you know, various things that have happened in corporate America. So you're, you're getting a critique of corporate capitalism from this fake populist perspective, bemoaning the cultural losses. But do they ever say we should have unions again? We should provide health care for everyone. We should provide free child care for everyone. We should, you know, give everyone, ensure that they have a living wage, that we should have generous parental leave, that we should have college free for all. Because if you really want to make abortion rare is make it a genuine choice. Right now, it's not a choice. Many women have to, you know, uh, um, 
especially poor women who don't all often have access to contraception, they cannot afford you know, to have a family, to support a family. If you want, you know, to limit it, well, give everybody the actual conditions in which they can make real choices. You cannot make choices when you are under such financial pressure. When, you know, the decision is, will I be able to have a career or get a college education and have a future or carry this child to term? Well, none of that, that should not be a decision, you know, that's based on financial and career possibilities. And there are things that we can do if we had a wholesome society that actually cared about one another. So what I hope is that now that there is going to be a lot of attention on this issue and the Democrats are going to organize around it and they're gonna cynically fundraise as they have been for so many years without doing anything about it, is that we who are really on the left have to put forward the broad social plan of how do you support women? You support women by guaranteeing absolutely their right to choose, and you make that a real choice by making sure that none of the financial considerations would ever come into it because you know that you will be taken care of, you can have a family, you can support your children, and you can still have a career and a life and achieve you know, um, you know, your goals and ambitions in life. That's the only way to combat and fight this politics of cruelty and hate that we're seeing rise so powerfully in this country and around the world. Yeah. It's the triumph of the incels. It's men who cannot either uh, perform sexually or have an opportunity to perform sexually. And they're thinking, if I can't have a woman, nobody should be having sex unless it's for procreation. It's the same people who look across the street, see their neighbor who belongs to a union and has a boat in the driveway thinking, how come he gets to have a boat and I don't? That's not fair. F unions. Or why would you want to forgive uh, student debt? When I paid mine off, well, I understand that frustration. You paid off your debt. But if we pay off everybody's student loans, everybody benefits. It, it benef but they, it's the politics of jealousy, division, hate, sexual frustration. We've allowed the, 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 the criminals, the people with criminal minds, to make the laws in this country. These are the, the worst of the worst. Uh, we are not demanding enough from the people that we have put into office because this is happening right now, as I said, this abortion debacle is happening as democratic leadership is going down to, down to Texas to promote the the incumbent that is pro-life, you know? Uh, the one and, against his arrows? Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's Henry Quaylar is the incumbent. Yeah. I think it's Jen Cisneros is, uh, is running against him again. She could win, but it's, uh, I, if there's been any response from progressives, against democratic leadership backing this guy up, particularly in light of the events of this past week. I'm not hearing it, all right? So who's really winning 
are the donors to both parties because once again, we're going to be, you know, fighting these battles among ourselves, you know, fighting for scraps and our deflection, our attention completely turned away from the billionaire class. I mean, these guys are billionaires because we are all suffering because our neighborhoods are blighted. I mean, that's basically why we get billionaires because just huge swaths of humanity are suffering and doing without. And huge swaths of our communities are decades behind in infrastructure repairs. And we're just selling out the country from out from under all of it. And, you know, hey, but let's, we're going to be dealing with the abortion issue and, and then the gun issue from here on out. And no, and I'm, I couldn't even call myself properly a Marxist, but it's just a glaring, glaring omission that nobody can talk about class. I don't think you have to be a, a dedicated Marxist, Marxist to talk about class and talk about income inequality and talk about just an unjust distribution of wealth that all of us have created. Well, we don't do that. So, you know, yeah, we can target these hideous right wingers who are just the cartoon character villains but we're letting all of our quote moderate quote progressive politicians off the hook by not standing up now when it wouldn't really take all that much courage, you know? Yeah. Going up against Chicago cops. I mean, going up physically against Chicago cops, whether it's protesting with black lives matter or protesting the Iraq war, that takes a big bit of moxie. You don't need anywhere near that courage when you're a congressperson. You know, you're, you're a protected person of means at that point with, uh, with a microphone, and particularly these people who have millions of Twitter followers and Facebook followers. What are they doing? What are they doing this week? Anybody like calling on, uh, you know, just mobbing Washington, D.C.? Or, you know, mobbing that, Jim that. Clyburn's office for that matter because he's down, you know, uh, campaigning for Henry Quaylock. Anybody doing that? No. Or how about calling into question the legitimacy of the Supreme Court? I mean, there have been like vague ideas about oh, how we could expand the numbers on the court and proposals. I mean, this kind of a decision, you know, should really be a lightning rod for saying this is a completely undemocratic, anti-democratic institution. But, but Adnan, we're letting the court we're relying on the court to do what the Democrats should have done. We had, they have about almost 50 years, you know, most of those years they had control of Congress. Oh they yeah, could they could have passed it. That. Why didn't they pass the, you know, this they, is a there, And there's, right. there's no move to do that. There's new, and yes, that might be a fight, but I think they're way, they're, the leadership of both parties is far more interested in keeping their own personal positions of power, whether or not they're in the minority or the majority, which just pings back and forth like ping pong balls because neither party is doing an FDR kind of thing that is giving people like a lasting legacy because it's immensely popular. Both parties are very unpopular, so it'll always be pinging back and forth. So Nancy Pelosi really, I mean, she she would much rather be the leader of a minority party than have a Bernie Sanders take over the Democratic Party and Bernie Sanders type people take over. Absolutely. Let me just take care of something here, because you mentioned something that is just absolutely mind boggling. And people should call Nancy Pelosi at 
556-4862. Again, Professor Marianne, you point out an absolutely stunning fact. That is, you have Jessica Cisneros running against Congressman Henry, Henry Cuellar uh, in a runoff in Texas. Henry Cuellar is pro-life. He is pro-life, and he's been endorsed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her lieutenants. And Jessica Cisneros should have that seat. She's pro-abortion. Nancy Pelosi claims she's looking to find ways to enshrine abortion rights into law. And yet she's endorsing Henry Cuellar, a pro-life charlatan out of Texas. Call Nancy Pelosi at 415-556-4862-415-556-4862. And be polite. Can I just point out one thing about the Supreme Court? Um, you know, when you have a majority of the court that is composed of political and religious extremists, anything is possible. So even if the Democrats had codified Roe versus Wade under federal law, the Supreme Court could. It's within their power to say embryos are persons under the law, and they are entitled to the protection of the 14th Amendment, and therefore, abortion is illegal everywhere in the United States. That's very that's the problem. With, that's the problem with Marbury versus Madison. It is. It is. And that I think that was Adnan's uh, point earlier. Uh, uh, you know, when you have an institution with this much power that can overrule uh, the legislature on matters of constitutional interpretation, you've got a real problem especially when it's packed with extremists like it is today. They don't care about precedent. They care about their religious beliefs and their political ideology. That's what they're motivated by. And that's what they're there for. And they're there, five of them are there, or six of them are there, um, appointed by presidents that lost the popular vote in the election. I think it's time for democracy, not this shit version that the United States has suffered through since its inception. The will of the majority must be respected. Otherwise, you're going to have outcomes like this. Packing the Supreme Court, uh, doing anything to have blocked uh, Amy Coney Bryant, uh, Barrett, and uh, Kavanaugh, uh, as Barry Goldwater said, extremism in defense of freedom or liberty is no vice. Moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue. That's what the Republicans believe. Extremism. Hey, with them on that one. We just have different ideas about what is uh, justice, you know? I mean, saying after Scalia dies and McConnell says it's not right to have 
uh, a president pick a Supreme Court justice during an election year and he gets away with it. And uh, and then uh, four years later, Amy Coney Barrett gets pushed through by McConnell in an election year. Extremism and defensive liberty is no vice. Moderation and pursuit of justice is no virtue. The Republicans believe that. Mm-hmm. You know, Obama should have just nominated Garland. And, and if they weren't going to hold the hearings. Uh, hearings aren't mentioned. So what? He could still be a bench. Way. He could you still could be a bench know, appointment. Yeah, you don't yeah, need you know, those hearings. Hearings are not in the Constitution. Obama could have just said, okay, anyone have a strenuous objection to this person? It's five o'clock, haven't heard any. He's sworn in. I mean, it's... Well, <laughs> but, he, but he didn't have the Senate. McConnell owned the Senate. Who cares? Yeah. Well, well, but for the first two years, he did have uh, majorities, and he had said that one of his top priorities would be passage of, you know, this bill to, you know, establish a federal right in legislation for, you know, abortion. And, you know, two years go by, he loses Congress, he says it's not a top legislative priority anymore. This is the game that they constantly are playing. We are fed up with it. Uh, We need, just as Prof. John said, an actual democracy. That's what we have to fight for, because what we have is, um, you know, is, is, is a... uh, you know, constitutional oligarchy is essentially what we've got at this at this point. Um, it's yeah. not democratic. Uh, so yeah, this this is it's gone on for for too long. And um, I agree completely with Marianne that um, the Democrats have been playing very cynically. You know, on on a whole variety of issues like this, and we're going to see, and we are seeing a lot of hand-wringing and talk about how terrible this is, but they're not doing anything about it. And that's why I also feel like we're going to be blackmailed into supporting the Democrats in order to save Roe v. Wade when that's just, you know, that's not enough now. We need to put forward and demand that they put forward a complete people's agenda that includes these rights and, you know, ERA, equal pay for equal work, you know, you know, maternity and paternity leave, child care, all of those things that I mentioned as a complete package to change these conditions. It's not good enough just to take these rights in an abstract form outside of the conditions in which people really live and make these decisions. They don't make these decisions just abstractly, whether they're in favor of this or that, you know, uh, they have real material concerns that um, impinge upon whether they can exercise these rights. And that's why I think the Economic Bill of Rights that, you know, Harvey J.K., um, you know, and Alan Minsky were talking about was so important. And it's so dispiriting to see that, um, you know, you can't even put that on the agenda with a candidate uh, running in the Democratic Party in a very progressive, um, you know, safe district, you know, in Congress. Like you can't even get these things raised there successfully because it's overwhelmed by the dark money um, 
of the you know oligarchs. This is this is really intolerable at this point. It's intolerable, and as I said at the opening of the show, I was like ready to just I give up, you know. And that's what Tom Hayden said to me. That's what they want. They, they you're, the way you felt today, Roe v. Wade, Amazon labor union losing the vote and uh what was the third one oh nina turner they want you to just say i give up christian smalls tweeted afterwards after he lost this is this is what makes me fight he's he's not giving up it's the problem with uh, people who have a sense of entitlement uh people like me have a sense of entitlement and when the going gets tough we say ah okay i tried i'm going to enjoy the day not christian smalls professor ann lee your thoughts well i i think that there should be some structural changes i think if you change the, the problem with with itemizing some of these issues i agree on the the issue of uh a, a bill of right an economic bill of rights but the reality is it's also economic in the sense that if you changed everything to public absolute public financing of all elections top to bottom it would shift there would be a cataclysmic shift in how we do our processes there, there just wouldn't be all these little mini sub markets in in issue oriented um elections you know the it it would it would even out, I think, some of the inequities that we get or the kind of self-marginalization that some of these issues create. Now, that's not going to cure the current problem of reproductive rights, but we do need to make some serious structural changes. And, and one thing like that is not simply the donating of a dollar on your tax form, but complete public financing of all elections. Right, right. But since Citizens United, elections have become a multi-multi-billion dollar industry, not just for lobbyists, but for consultants. And some would argue Citizens United is keeping newspapers and radio stations alive. All those issue ads as the rapist head of CBS, Les Moonves, the rapist, said in 2016, that this is bad for democracy, but it's great for business. Trump is, we're making a, a fortune off Donald Trump and all the people buying advertisements on our CBS radio stations and TV stations to counteract Trump. So said the rapist, Les Moonves, who ran CBS for 20 years and was a rapist. Well, I think that TV stations and um, radio stations will be able to get by with all their uh, auto insurance and pharmaceutical advertising, David. I think they'll be okay. Okay. I worry about them. <laughs> call, call Nancy Pelosi. Be polite. Call 415-556-4862. Tell her if she really wants to enshrine abortion rights as law that she should endorse Jessica Cisneros and withdraw uh, 
her endorsement of, is it Cuellar? Is that his name? Yeah. Who is pro, calls himself pro-life. Go to dailycos.com forward slash blog forward slash Annie Lee, A-N-N-I-E-L-I. Read Professor Annie Lee. Go to Gorilla History and the Mudgeless podcast. Listen to those two great podcasts. And you can hear Professor Adnan Hussein. Who are your guests this week? Well, we, we did an episode that was just uh, the three of us discussing the Roe v. Wade uh, leak memo. And we also just recorded, and it'll be out uh, next week, um, a look at geopolitics and the history of that, since there's been a lot of talk about uh, the end of the unipolar world and moving into multipolarity. So we wanted to take a look at that concept historically of uh, geopolitics. So check that out on Guerrilla History. Fantastic. Professor Jonathan Bick, you'll be at office hours. And for those of you who got an invitation to sit in our virtual studio audience, you will get an invitation to attend office hours. My website is down. The invitation for office hours, if you need it, will be posted on my Twitter page as well as Facebook. So you, in case my website, we're going into our third day where my website has mysteriously been darkened by mysterious forces. I don't know, I'd, little paranoid schizophrenia on my part, you know, like to think I'm more important than I actually am. Maybe something I said, probably incompetence. They're looking into it, but It'll the it was probably something Jonathan Bick said. Yes, always, always, it's always. Uh, so we will see you, Professor Bick, Professor Marianne Cummings. You get knocked down, but you get up again. Nina Turner. Always. They're not gonna. This is when we fight even harder. Professor Marianne Cummings, brilliant particle physicist, Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois. Thank you all. It is a privilege to know all of you. Joe in Norway, tell us, how did you make soup in an hour? Is that, did you sneak in an Insta cup? Well, I did use a pressure cooker. So the bean, the uh, the split pea, Tarkadal split pea soup would be uh, a lot longer. Would take about an hour to cook with a pressure cooker. It's just twenty five minutes under pressure, and it's nice and creamy. So this is a curried. You curried cut the soup. time. Hang on for one second. You cut the time. Normally, it would take how long? Um, you can generalize cooking times in a pressure cooker are reduced to a third. So just you cut all of your cooking time down to a third, a half to a third. Depends depends on if you soak beans, uh, if you're cooking meats, then those take longer to break down. Um, but they're very practical, they save energy. Uh, they get, uh, you get to prepare sauces that taste like they've been cooking all day. So they're very practical. And uh, this one was, uh, 
a cream of potato, leek, and spinach with zucchini and dill. So, uh, I'll have plenty to slurp on after my wisdom tooth extraction. Somebody and very I, close. <laughs> somebody very close to me just had oral surgery. It's uh, not easy. Uh, one announcement about office hours. Um, Andy Brown suggested that I do a cook-along with uh, making proper hummus. So at midnight, I'll be doing a cook-along where everybody can uh, cook with me and we'll go through all of the steps to make uh, proper creamy, soapy smooth hummus. And or maybe you all, have all a of the information... Maybe you and Sarah Bush could have a cook-off where she makes a pie and you, how about a race? All right. I'm just thinking. Uh, all, well. the, all, the, all of the, if, if you're going, if you plan on joining us to cook along, all of the ingredients are on the website for office hours. Everything's listed there. Uh, what I recommend, if you have a pressure cooker, get dried beans, so start soaking them now. If you don't have a pressure Stop cooker, soaking. you can get canned beans and we'll make do. You're going to make do? Oh, okay. Thank you, Joe in Norway. My pleasure. Well, you're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. We do not have, we do not have Professor Harvey J.K. tonight. He's celebrating his anniversary I said, so your anniversary is more important than your 376th appearance on my show. Well, I know what your priorities are. Going solo tonight is Alan Minsky, executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. When you first hired me over at KPFK, Pacifica Radio, one of the first interviews you got from me was with Tom Hayden. And I'll never forget what he said. And I quoted him earlier. He said, they want you to give up. They want you to be frustrated. Uh, however, he didn't live through the Nina Turner primaries. Uh, what well, happened? Well, I, I was—I just came from Cleveland. I was there from Friday through Monday, and I actually um, met up with a whole bunch of PDA people. Uh, if Marianne Cummins was there, I wish I had uh, been organized enough and uh, had it together enough to meet up with with her too. That would have been a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Nina got 14,000 fewer votes this time than back in August. Chantel Brown got 2,000 more. The district changed, um, and uh, that didn't end up helping Nina, though I think someone told me that she might have won part, some of those new districts. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot that went into this election. Uh, there was uncertainty about when the election would happen, um, and then that uh, had the sort of compound effect of it was hard to get momentum going for the race. When would you allocate your resources? Well, that was a question also for the super PACs, um, uh, APEC and um, DMFI. 
uh, as well as um, a few super PACs run by crypto bros. And all of them, so the, the two that are you know, nominally about um, uh, Israel, and uh, the three, I think, that were uh, from crypto bros, one is about you know, trying to prevent a pandemic, and the other ones are about making sure that you know, crypto is not overregulated type of stuff. All of them poured money in on the final, really, 10 days, the two weeks of the election, because they were uncertain about when the race would be. This was probably one of the most concentrated ad buys um, in American history, um, because um, it's, a, it's a relatively inexpensive media market. And, um, and so the, the number of, not the money spent, because it's a relatively cheap market, the number of um, uh, pieces that ran. Uh, when I got into Cleveland, um, my phone obviously recognized my location in every YouTube video I played, every time a video played on any social media platform, there was Chantel Brown or there was a hit piece on Nina Turner. Okay. Wave, wave elections, revolutions start when people see activity. Had not the squad, but had the Progressive Caucus, had Pramila Jayapal, who runs the Progressive Caucus, said, F this, we're endorsing Nina Turner. F this, we're, I don't care what the rules are about endorsing incumbents, we're progressive, we're endorsing progressives. Had there been a Republican-like civil war within the Democratic Party? We see these civil wars all the time in the Republican Party. It's the constantly reading about the Republican crack-up. You know, is, is the Republican Party over? Somehow they keep surviving, I think partially because of their bickering. They animate their bases, they get people, they get yeah, the juices. There, there's been a big difference between the Republican base and their um, funding uh, and the amount of money that is sloshing around when there are is a Republican rebellion from the base. Uh, usually there's some really, really deep pockets that are providing um, right, AstroTurf uh, funding. And, um, and then, you know, maybe the incumbents who've lost, you know, the guy in Utah lost, Cantor lost in Virginia, those guys would put up ads. They had, you know, large war chests too. But you know, the sort of uh, signal to the base wasn't in their ads, where it would be would be in the. Um, don't forget, they're they're masters of messaging. They hit the same points over and over and over again. Look, the Chantel Brown ads that I saw. Of course, I didn't really want to look too deeply into them. Made me feel nauseous. But um, yeah, they were very well put together spots, very professionally constructed, and you had a sense that every second was thought out as to what the psychological impact would be. Um, these guys were paying top dollar for these ads. Okay, here's a really troubling thing, though, David. The next, there's there's primaries on Sunday in, in West Virginia and Nebraska at the federal level. Nobody expects any progressives are going to be elected. And Manchin's supporting a, Manchin's supporting a Republican, right? Yeah, there's that. But to move over to um, May 17th, there are, I think, five states and some of the most important um, progressive uh, candidates endorsed by PDA and many of our partners there are at least five to six of them, four of whom had a really, really good shot at winning their primaries. And maybe you can throw a fifth in there too. I'm not throwing the fifth in because she's not yet being targeted by these ads. All four of the others are being blitzed with ads. They include the unbelievably exceptional Summer Lee in uh, Pittsburgh district, where just like Nina Turner back 
last summer, very much anticipated that she would win the primary and then win the overwhelmingly blue district. She is being hit again by the full complement of the crypto packs and APEC and DMFI. Um, so APEC? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, bundling money um, the way that they do and then purchasing ads. They're in this now. It's not just DMFI. I mean, you could, I think what might have happened is the success of defeating Nina back in August, APEC just decided, why are we letting, you know, um, DMFI get all the credit? Let's jump back into the Democratic Party. They had sort of seemingly been stepping back. Yes, Summer Lee in Pittsburgh, that district is now going to be ground zero for whether a grassroots, excellent grassroots campaign can defeat um, this money pouring in and totally, obviously, doesn't need to be said, completely corrupt. APEC, APEC is the, is they say they're not a lobbyist, but they support Bibi Netanyahu. They're the, the conservative party of Israel's lobbying arm here in the United States. They do not represent uh, 80% of American Jews. They represent 20% of American Jews who support Bibi Netanyahu and uh, the settlers in Israel. And yet they seem to have the loudest voice uh, in America, even though most, most American Jews don't agree with AIPAC. So AIPAC is endorsing candidates who voted against certifying Joe Biden's election. Is that correct? Yes, that is true too. These so I mean, here's the thing though. Um, so they you know, support uh, crypto fascists, right? But look, the, the the candidates can say that we have no we have no relationship with APEC. They're doing what they're doing independent of our campaign, and they can wash their hands of it and walk away. Now, DMFI, um, you know, it's it's absolutely ridiculous that that anybody really believes that that's the case. I mean, APEC is a very specific example, but when you take the totality of them, I think it's a very clear looking at any of these campaigns, not the campaigns um, that we're supporting, but their rivals within the district, the beneficiaries, and they're running attack ads and they're running ads to boost up the uh, moderate conservative Democrats in the primaries who are running against the people we endorse. And you can see from their campaign and the um, orchestration of their campaigns that they're very aware this money is coming in. And it's going to be a game changer in the district. So the other exceptional candidates who are being attacked right now on May 17th primaries include Erica Smith, a, a North Carolina state senator. Love her. She's been on the show. We have to have her on again. I love Erica Smith. Amazing. She's great. And, and also, along with the next person I'm going to mention, very important that we can get these progressives in from largely rural districts and the opportunity to, to build... Um, support for, you know, social democratic policies, whatever you want to call them, Rooseveltian New Deal-like policies among rural Americans. So the other one is Jamie McLeod Skinner. These PACs are going against her in support of Kurt Schrader. Again, you know, what the heck does Jamie McLeod Skinner, Summer Lee, Erica Smith have to do with the regulation of cryptocurrencies? I seriously doubt they have much of a stated public position on the matter, um, nor would they be interfering with our ability to be prepared for the pandemics. Um, 
and, and you know, I, I don't think uh, Palestinian human rights has been the lead issues in their political careers either. So this is this is to defeat the progressive left. There's this sort of very bad argument that that you know the Democrats will lose if there are too many progressives running because they'll the Republican Party will label us socialists and point to these fire breathing um, you know radicals who are you know ready with their guillotines and trying to reconstruct the Place de la Concorde and you know in suburbia <laughs> or in the country clubs, right? But um, uh, that's just bullshit. And the, the reality is the Democratic Party is going to really suffer if the youth do not turn out in the midterm elections and the progressive base is demoralized. And they are going straight at demoralization of the progressive base if they knock off all four of the candidates. The fourth is Nita Alam, another exceptional candidate in North Carolina's fourth district, I think. All four of them were ahead in whatever polling existed in their districts. Um, the one who was most ahead had been Summer Lee. Um, now, um, um, Nita Alam, Erica Smith, and Jamie McLeod Skinner were expected to have close races, but what real promise. The local Democratic Party in uh, Oregon was endorsing McLeod Skinner over the rotten incumbent Kurt Schrader. But here comes this money. So that's, that's the news for the moment. Can I go back to something else you talked about a few minutes yeah, ago? Yeah, let me just hang on for one second. Just so my listeners know, we have primaries, big primaries on well, May 10th, you have West Virginia and Nebraska, and then May 17th, Idaho, Kentucky, North Carolina, Oregon, Pennsylvania, all on May 17th. So if you live in Idaho, Kentucky, North Carolina, Oregon, and Pennsylvania, you, this Tuesday is important. Yeah, it's important for everybody. This is, this is a, you know, a, a relatively clear national movement of, um, you know, left FDR liberalism, American social democracy, all of the candidates that we endorse support that. And these people are being hit with what in their districts amounts to an absolute tidal wave of money against them, uh, corrupting the process. By the way, the, the fifth person I, I, I'm going to whisper here is Doyle Canning in Oregon fourth, a uh, real fantastic climate champion. Um, who um, they're not targeting with ads yet. So whew, let's hope that remains the case. And Doro can have a chance there against the, but that's an open seat, the Fazio retired. Okay, um, that's my elections update, David. Um, it's, um, it's game on and it's dangerous territory. It's, it's dangerous territory. These are powerful, rich, well, they're rich people. They seem to be, I, I guess there's probably greater coordination there than we know. Um, in, in which case, you know, we have a consolidated effort by very wealthy Americans to crush the progressive movement um, across the country. And you know, the mainstream of the Democratic Party is doing nothing to interfere, which we wouldn't expect them to. Right. right. Why are you pounding the desk? Oh, I'm exhausted. Um, I haven't caught up on my sleep since I came back from Pennsylvania. But the, man, I the man who gave me my start in radio is pounding the desk and creating audio problems for oh, me. I always used to do that when I was But here, here's what's more important. Today's uh, Harvey J.K.'s 49th anniversary. So he was, he was married on May 5th, uh, 1973. But on um, May 5th, um, 1918, it was Karl Marx's 100th birthday. 
Um, and uh, my grandparents um, met at a 100th birthday celebration for Karl Marx put on by the Socialist Party of the United States in Chicago, Illinois. The party was largely in Yiddish. And um, that's where my grandparents met. So I come to you now in this genetic form uh, because of Karl Marx. I would not exist as I am without my grandparents. I, I, the 5th of May, I can't imagine any other. I know Rodrigo is in Mexico is raising his hand. What else would the 5th of May be known? Oh, Cinco de Mayo, which celebrates the defeat, I believe, of the French uh, in the Battle of Puebla. Uh, but they ended up losing in the end, Mexico. And then Maximilian came in and they had an emperor and then they overthrew him. And it took a couple of years after Cinco de Mayo to get the French, uh, to get Maximilian and Napoleon III out of Mexico. Right? Uh, yes. And there's also a rather epic 1970s Bob Dylan song called Isis that begins with, and I, I shared this with Harvey, I married Isis on the fifth day of May. So, right. Not the Isis. Uh, the same word as Isis in reference to some Egyptian deity of some sort. Um, and the dog on Downton Abbey is also named Isis. Did you know that? No, no, I never watched Downton Abbey or whatever this new one is. Um, I, I don't watch those things. I watched Upstairs Downstairs as a kid. Right. Yeah, I rewatched that a couple of years ago. It's fantastic. Like it has some good, good class struggle thing going on there. Yeah. 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 Now we just watch Upstairs Upstairs. That's America <laughs> is not interested in anything going on. I don't want to know. About, do you know I'm old enough to remember when Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous came on and my parents and I saying, this is this is going to this is the recipe for a revolution. Robin Leach, this show showing this kind of wealth is going to cause a revolution. And it did the wrong kind of revolution. It caused a Reagan revolution. Alan Minsky, things in motion stay in motion. When things get worse, they get worser, don't they? They do. And, um, um, you know, the thing that's really tragic about this, too, is that, um, you know, American society, even without any kind of socialist revolution, has the wealth such that the people who lived in dire poverty in East Cleveland could have that environment be transformed. Um, and Nina Turner, my my thought on Nina is um she got back into this race knowing it was probably going to be a difficult race. And I think the thing that really um, drove her to jump back in and drives her to keep going on in the way that she does and with the unwavering commitment uh, to, to left politics is um, just, you know, understanding that, that, you know, the community that she grew up in, our society considers it a complete sacrifice zone. And I was there and it's, um, it's very real and it's just stranded 
Chantel Brown, all these people aren't going to do anything about that. And, um, you know, I think it breaks Nina's heart and, um, I think she'll be back, uh, as, uh, as strong as ever in the near future. Yeah. Well, before you go, professor Harvey JK said famously on this show, if you're not talking about labor, you're talking shit. And this is the year where you, you're a liberal, you put up or shut up. You're either for unions or you're against unions. Which side are you on, boy? Which side are you on? Starbucks, Howard Schultz, fancies himself a woke individual who runs a woke company and they pay lip service to Black Lives Matter. They pay lip service to equity. Which side are you on, boy? Howard Schultz, multi-billionaire Howard Schultz, is fighting and firing the labor activists. He does not support unions. Howard Schultz is fighting the unions tooth and nail. He has told us which side he is on. Ergo, when he talks about equity, he's full of shit. John Stewart is against unions. He fought the Writers Guild and punished his writers for turning union. He's full of shit. Which side are you on, boy? Are you on the side of unions? You know, a lot of people are ignoring Christian Smalls at their own peril. This should this is the measure of the entertainment industry. Where where's Tom Morello? Where's Bruce Springsteen? Where's John Cougar Mellencamp, who, by the way, endorsed for President Bloomberg, by the way? This is the wake up call. All these populist folk heroes who sing or tell jokes. Where are they with Christian Smalls? Nowhere to be found. Which side are you on, boy? Which side are you on? If you're not with Christian Smalls, you are full of shit. You might as well go be a Republican. In fact, go be a Republican. Go join the Republican Party and get out of the Democratic Party because you're the fifth column. You're the enemy within. You're the enemy within. You're a multimillionaire branding expert who's singing or telling jokes and pretending you're on the side of the common man in your home up on the hill, screwing over the people who buy, who foolishly buy your records or watch your television shows. Which side are you on? Are you going to go and march with Christian Smalls? You know, Marlon Brando, even Chuck Heston marched with Dr. King. I don't see Rob Reiner marching with Christian Smalls. I don't see Dave Chappelle marching with, I don't see John Stewart, Bruce Springsteen, George Clooney, 
Matt Damon marching with Christian Smalls. You know, Which David, side are you on, boy? You know, your other, your other former, um, um, I suppose, whether your boss or your employer, I don't know, uh, when there was the great uh, teacher strike um, a few years back, just three, four years back in Los Angeles, after there was the West Virginia strike and there was the Oklahoma strike, came to L.A. and UTLA, you know, spectacular uh, events, everybody wearing red shirts uh, in the, that park right in front of City Hall and elsewhere in the city. And uh, on Bill Maher's show, they had the head of the um, Los Angeles UTLA union uh, at the show. He was in the audience. He stood up and they, on the show, they showed him, they panned him and they gave him an applause. But they didn't ask him to say a word. So, you know, go, go figure. You know, you can talk all you want about this is the end of democracy. If you're a celebrity, if you're a multimillionaire from Hollywood, you have your own television show and you're not talking about Christian Smalls or Medicare for all. Starbucks workers, Starbucks workers, Starbucks workers. Miners. What? Miners in Alabama. Miners in Alabama. You ain't it is in the words of Professor Harvey J.K. You ain't talking shit. You can sing all you want about the ghost of Tom Joad, motherfucker. But you ain't there with Christian Smalls, Bruce Springsteen. Go fuck yourself. Um, you know, um, Marianne Cummings, before I got on in the chat, was pointing out the contradiction of um, Nancy Pelosi endorsing Cuellar when he's, uh, you know, <laughs> against uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, and... Um, uh, Cuellar also was the only Democrat to vote against the PRO Act uh, in the whole entire House uh, of Representatives. And uh, there they are uh, endorsing against, you know, really person would be a great congressperson in Jessica Cisneros, just, I mean, uh, so solid, so committed to, um, you know, the, the working class community uh, where she was raised and working class people across the entire country and the world. Um, super sharp. Um, and would be a great congressperson. And uh, yeah, it's pretty disgraceful. Um, and I would agree. I would like to see that. I would like to see uh, as many progressives unified to point exactly that contradiction out. All right. Alan Minsky, Progressive Democrats of America. We'll talk to you next week. How do people follow you and support you? Uh, at PD America. That's the handle for you know, the social media handle. At PD America and then pdamerica.org is our website. And I'm Alan at pdamerica.org. My website has been down. We're going into our third day where nobody can explain to me my, why my website won't go back up. Did you say something nasty about Elon Musk? No, that's Twitter. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Well, we're going to go to Emil Guillermo in a second, but first, where's Dave and PA? What happened? Did we just lose him? Oh, we just lost Dave and PA. All right. I thought we were going to see Chad. That should be up. Where are you? I think you did that. Oh, there you are. Hey, Dave and PA. How's Chad? Hey, dude. Oh, he's all right. He's hanging. 
There. there. And that looks like molding. Yeah, it's, it's uh, some carving from some French paneling, antique French paneling that I'm using for a project. Uh, collaboration with uh, another uh, office hours regular uh, job. We're going to use this. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So did you make that or you're, did you make that? No, this is, this is a uh, late 19th century France. Is pan is paneling was uh was bought at an architectural salvage. There was a bunch of it, a whole room, and uh, my client purchased it, and then I sort of cut and pasted everything to fit into his great room, and then I got some these carvings left over because he really didn't want too many of the carvings. So and so, what are you going to be doing? Uh, well, another member of our community in Los Angeles, uh, Bruce, you might know him, mm -hmm. he, uh, he wants a caravan wagon, like uh, a Romani wagon or a Vardo wagon, you know, like the uh, palm reader would would be traveling in, the gypsy woman or something. Like a sedan? That kind of wagon, a fancy, uh, no, not a sedan. Uh, a gypsy caravan type wooden wagon, okay. you know, with fancy carvings on the inside. Uh, Bruce's wife's an artist and she'll be painting it up. So it's a project we'll be working on over the next year. Uh, and we're clocking all our progress on office hours and, and, uh, hammer and sickle. We'll be covering it. So yeah. Greatest What's that? Hammer, Hammer and Sickle is the greatest name ever for a. Uh, yeah, it sticks. That's why. That's why we keep doing it, and we yeah. get to hang out every Sunday. So yeah, well, I'm go just to making work. it clean right now. I figured it was a good ASMR. Activity. Yeah, ASMR for the eyes with Dave and PA, and his helper, his trusty sidekick, topless Chad. Is he wearing a helmet? No, no, he's. He's like he's trying to overcome his fear of heights, you know. So going bareback tonight. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's locked in there pretty tight. So all right. Just wants to show off, I guess. I don't know. Topless Chad. Hi, Chad. Okay. Well, thank you, Dave and PA. Office hours every Friday night at eight p.m. I would ask you to go to my website to sign up but my website is down so i'm going to post the invitation for office hours on my facebook and twitter accounts i also want to thank uh some of the people who went to uh youtube and donated through a super chat todd from tucson thank you Teresa luke Thank you. Adam Halperin, I love you and your show, David, but Putin deserves all the blame for the illegal war in Ukraine. Okay. I, I'll accept that. Well, not really, but I respect your opinion. Uh, Teresa Luke, thank you. Todd from Tucson, thank you. Adam, again, David, I agree with you. Conservatives are, in fact, bad people. 
and Frank gave for Liam's internet service. Those are all the people who were kind enough to uh, post some super chats uh, in our YouTube chat. Well, Emil Guillermo joins us in California. He is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. He also writes for ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. So many, so many things to talk about. And the Philippines, it's taking yeah. place right now. May 9th. What's going on? Yeah, There's, but you know, they're voting. Uh, uh, they will be voting in the Philippines on May 9th. But they're voting here in America. It's, it's all by by write in. Uh, people have their ballots in America. If you're a dual citizen, it's just a critical uh, election that people need to pay attention to because it'll be another one of those autocrats versus Democrats or autocracy versus democracy kind of uh, sagas in the world. And it will it looks like from the polls that came out earlier this week that Ferdinand Marcos Jr., a.k.a. Bong Bong, also known as BBM, Bong Bong Marcos. They call him, they, they go by shorthand, BBM. He's, uh, he looks like he has like a 30-point lead in the polls. So unless there's a last-minute surge, or maybe I don't think the overseas ballots from dual citizens are enough to turn, turn things around. But it's it's critical. We should see results from the May 9th election, perhaps by May 10th. But it's, uh, you know, for people who have been but watching. We know how people people who do not live in the Philippines with dual citizenship. How do they tend to vote? Well, uh, a lot of them are here for a reason. They're here because they escaped Marcos. They're they're the, the son, the father. Right. They're here because. There was a flood of immigration, uh, just, well, six, the 65 immigration law. People came and they used that as their reason to get away from Marcos and martial law. And then, you know, subsequent, there have been, you know, the, the different preferences for immigration. Filipinos are here and the, the rules have changed so that if you have uh, some kind of uh, birth, you have a birthright, if you were born in the Philippines and immigrated, you could be a dual. So... You know, people have they look to their Asian Americans, they look to their ancestral home a lot for, you know, the politics, because we have a lot of uh, a lot of relatives there still. And so this also boils down to the unique relationship that Filipinos and, you know, the U.S. have. And so I I just hope that. There's a kind of last minute surge that that might turn things around. People are crossing their fingers. They're trying to expose things like the disinformation on social media in the Philippines, because it shouldn't be that Marcos is able to waltz in with such a big lead in the polls to be restored as president of the Philippines. Not after what his family has done to the Philippines. Right. Well, let's talk about Dave Chappelle, the yeah. gentleman who uh, attacked him. Very unfortunate turn of events. Thankfully, Dave is okay. Yeah. What do you think? Well, it was an Asian American guy. 
uh, it appears, uh, from the initial um, ID who allegedly did that. I you know this is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And there's all sorts of things in the news about Asian Americans doing bad things, which in some way, if you want to look at a silver lining, it's kind of like, oh, Asian Americans are just like they're not the goody two shoes. They're not the model minority there, which is kind of the, the stereotype that people have of Asian Americans. I mean, there's this woman in in Pennsylvania who allegedly has, you know, done this dastardly act toward her kids. There's this guy, you know you know, charging the stage. Um, so there's that. But basically, I, I'm, I'm very, as a performer myself, I'm kind of frightened by, by what this means. Because, and you perform, I mean, how does this happen when you tell a joke or you, uh, maybe your reputation precedes you and someone is allowed to get up on the stage and charge you? I mean, they're, I don't know. Well, I, it's I, different from what usually happens. Usually they get up and just leave. Right. They can't even be bothered to attack me. I'm so inconsequential. Yeah, well. I'm not know, worth the stuff on their shoes. Well, I, I think this is the thing about Chappelle. Um, they, he joked that it was maybe a trans activist. I don't know if this guy was a trans activist. Uh, I don't think he of, was. He was. A lot of people have, you know, hard feelings about Chappelle. If you saw the joke in his special, uh, you can go either way. He was I, I I was not offended by the joke, you know, and I joke? the the comment in his, you know, in his special. It wasn't I mean, a joke. Well, the the comment in the special that people are are, are you know, reacting to. Uh, I mean, I heard I saw the whole special. I saw I saw whatever whatever people take offense to. I didn't think it was. I, I don't think it rose to the idea of, well, let's attack Dave Chappelle. I mean, I just. I don't know what what was your you perform, you believe in free speech. What oh, was I, I think that I think uh, it's a it's absurd to take an act of lunacy and attach any meaning to it other than lunacy. That anybody who storms a stage mm. doesn't matter why you do it. You're a lunatic and you need help. It doesn't matter why somebody blows up a building or, or shoots somebody. If there's no excuse for domestic violence, which there isn't, there's no excuse for domestic violence. There's no excuse for violence. Yeah. I'm not interested in why this guy took, you know, stormed the stage and attacked Dave Chappelle. I don't think it had anything to do with what Dave Chappelle says. I don't think it was the PC police trying to censor a comedian. I think it was a deeply disturbed human being who needs help. I think and we agree there. Not have access to to imitation guns that have knives inside of them. By yeah. the way, they're not charging him with assault with a deadly weapon. Yeah, I I I was just really shocked by it, and and uh, like I said, on if there's a kind of semi silver lining, it's just all these Asian Americans are doing these bad things right now, which actually helps counter 
the the negative stereotype about how Asian Americans are the model minority. And maybe that that'll help humanize us that, you know, Asian Americans are. Are not perfect or have these problems and it'll help see help people see Asian Americans in a realistic light. How's that for trying to put a silver lining on things? Right. Right. Well, Norm Mineta passed away on Tuesday. Yeah. He served in Congress from 74 to 95. He was cabinet secretary under Clinton, Commerce, and then George W. Bush. Yeah. This is transportation secretary. I believe you were Norm Mineta's press secretary. I was. I was. In Congress. In Congress, yeah. I, I was, briefly. I mean, they say... You can cross the line once into politics and maybe they'll let you cross back once, but you can't do it multiple times like a lot of people are doing. And, and there's people like on Fox and CNN, Cong- former congressmen, they're crossing the line because they, they, they get tired of legislating. They get tired of being, you know, real leaders. So they they want to do the easy thing, go into journalism. But yeah, I in 1993, I served in the 103rd Congress in it was after I was at NPR and it was because I figured out I'm in Washington. I should experience how democracy works on the inside. And I and also, look, I, it was for Norm. And if you see my column on the Aldef blog, I call Norm Mr. Asian America. Because if there is a if you can use the greatest generation moniker on anyone in an ethnic sense, Normanetta was the member of the greatest generation for Asian Americans. I mean, he saw it all. I mean, you look at his life. You know, he was incarcerated in an internment camp as a Cub Scout, 10, 10 years old. They take away his, his baseball bat. Uh, you know, he's he Japanese. He was a he was Japanese American. He was a Cub Scout, yep. a little leaguer, and they rounded him up here in America and put him in in a concentration camp. Yeah, he served at Heart Mountain in, in Wyoming, um, where he met Alan Simpson, the Republican congressperson. Simpson was a cut, was a Boy Scout who went to visit the camps and they formed a friendship, which this is part of. Look, Norm Mineta was really complicated because after he got out of the camps, he, he served in the Korean War. He was the first Asian American to, to be a mayor of a major city, San Jose in uh, 1971 and then he ran for congress and he served in congress from 74 to 95 and then he left he left when gingrich you know the gingrich revolution and congress you know turned upside down he left and then he got out of out of elected office but he came back to serve clinton as commerce secretary and then bush as secretary of transportation Two set two two presidents, two different kinds of administrations, although some people say the yellow dog uh, Clinton was, you know, more to the right than, you know, was a moderate. But this is this is Norm. This is why I say Norm is complicated. Because he. He was. He was able to reach across the aisle. All right. Now, I know that's sometimes a euphemism for. Oh, where does this guy stand? Is he left? Is he right? He wanted to get things done. He wanted to make things better and he could work with anyone. Still, there's a reason why I'm not 
I left his office. And that's because of, there were some complicated issues. You were talking with Alan Minsky about labor. The NAFTA vote came up in the 103rd Congress. And while you were talking to Alan, I was just looking up just to remind myself of where Norm was on the NAFTA vote. You know, it's a complicated vote. And, you know, Dellums was no on NAFTA. Ron Dellums. Ron from, Dellums from Oakland. Right. Mayor from Berkeley. Uh, congressman from Berkeley, mayor of Oakland. Right. And then, no, not mayor from Oakland, congressman from uh, Oakland, but he was he he represented Berkeley. Anyway, Ron Dellums, firebrand activist, African-American. He was a no. George Miller was a no. And I recall and I just had to double check it because sometimes my memory goes. Norm was a yes. So was Nancy Pelosi. So were other Democrats. I mean, it, it wasn't like a. You know, all the Democrats voted one way, all the Republicans voted another way. It was fairly it was close. It was like a 234 to 200 vote. And I know that was one of the beginning signs to me that as much as I love Norm, because serving Norm was like serving Mr. Asian America. He fought for Asian Americans. He the NAFTA vote all the time that I went to 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 be with him or to work with him. This was after he got the 1988 Civil Liberties Act passed, which paid out something like one point six billion dollars to eighty two thousand people who were who filed a claim for, you know, being incarcerated during World War Two. So, look, Normanetta, it's not that he could do no wrong, but he's a hero and. To, to not just Asian-Americans, but to all Americans for forgetting that injustice, at least. You know, it's a model. Everyone's looking at how do we get reparations when the blacks are talking about reparations? They they were taught. They talk about the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. Norm got it done. He was a co-sponsor of that bill. And when I was in his office, it was like the sort of the the post celebratory flow of, you know, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do next? And that, that's sort of where he was. And Congress was in a different place there. And there was a lot of bipartisanship, like, you know, on NAFTA. But look, in 1989, that was the rise of voices like Rush Limbaugh on talk radio. That was the beginning of a kind of divisive politics that we see that we see now. It was really starting up back then, 89. 90, 91. By 93, you know, full head of steam for Gingrich to take over the Congress in 95. So I don't know. Uh, look, my point about bringing up NAFTA is that that was one of the reasons I left. There was other there are other reasons, like just on some issues that he was far more moderate. And um, I figured it was time to cross back over the line. But I, I love Norman Mineta for what he stands for. And for Asian Americans, it's complicated. You know, he was old style bipartisan. Oh, here's another thing this week that'll also kind of be kind of a burr in a way. Henry Hyde, author of the Hyde Amendment, which bans federal funds from being used in Medicare, Medi Medicaid, abortions, you know, federal money used for abortions. Henry Hyde was one of Norm's friends, close friends. He was able to like 
take some of these issues that we are so keyed up about and put that, you know, put the link. Henry Hyde. Henry Hyde. Yeah. The Henry Hyde. From Illinois. The Henry Hyde. Yeah, I know. Who who fathered a child out of wedlock. Yeah. These guys weren't perfect. These guys guys weren't perfect. I'm, I'm just telling you. Uh, once I, you go on the, they weren't perfect. <laughs> once you go on the inside, David, and you see how this, I, because like I get in there, I start working, uh, in the 103rd, like, like that was like 93 and things are just beginning. Like I said, to get being divisive, but for a long time, it was like, Hey, you know, they were all kind of glad handing. They were all friends. It was very collegial, but it got really nasty. Like, I think beginning with 103rd. So and that's sort of like what's where we are now. People are obstructionist on both sides. When the Democrats are in power, the Republicans are obstructionist when the, uh, you know, and vice versa. Um, I don't know. And then this thing with uh, the abortion leak. Man, I don't, I don't know where this this puts us, because I see the threat to everything that got passed, say, in the last 15, 60 years. I mean, they, people talk about this this flood of things that could come after abortion. I really see it as a kind of American backslide, right? All these things that we revered coming up, you know, post 65, post 70, uh, that we thought were maybe settled. Maybe, you know, we were on a pathway toward justice. I see this backslide and it's, it's almost like the social, the social political equivalent of climate change where instead of it being so hot, you know, and the world's going to end, it's going to be so cold and our social climate's going to end, our political social climate's going to end. And so, you know, I'm glad I'm not, I'm no, look, Norm dies this week, the first week of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. It's almost like, you know, storybook because he was one of the, 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 the founders of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, you know, coined he coined it Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. He dies first week in May. He's 90. He's like a marker for like a whole era of politics that we do not know anymore. You know, he, he got he got reparations passed. I don't think he can get reparations passed today. You know, just like in 65, they got a, a bill on immigration passed. I don't think he can get that passed today. We are going back to the 1930s and the 1920s when we had the the Anti-Asian Immigration Act passed in 1924. And in 1934, we had the Tidings-McDuffie Act where, you know, they essentially excluded the Filipinos. So uh, I don't know. It's it's sort of sad to see Norm die, but he leaves us as a he's he's a marker for where we are politically now in America. Wow. So anyway, so uh, still, you know, if if he were still living, you know, there's a question. There's this thing out called the social uh, social tracking of Asian Americans in the U.S. status. It's called they put out a big index and they did. This is the second year they've done it. And they asked the question, name a prominent Asian American. They did it last year. One year, no different. No, 50, 50, I think 58% can't name a prominent 
Asian American. I mean, how about this? How about an informal poll? And this is all Americans, a poll of 5,200 Americans throughout the country. No one can name an Asian American, a prominent Asian. It's like we're invisible. And just to prove it, I mean, look at your phone, see how many Asian Americans you have in your contact list. I mean, this is this is what America is like. And this is why that status thing is really surprising, because it it just confirms the invisibility of Asian Americans and how Asian Americans on this month, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, 30 percent of Asian Americans do not feel like they belong. And that they're othered here in America. And I'm talking about those who are born here. People like myself who are born here, not the, the immigrants. Get this. The immigrants feel like they belong. The immigrants are happy because they, you know, they usually are the crazy rich Asians. They come here. But the Americans born here. They're saying we don't feel like we belong. Anyway, just some of the insight from that. Uh, it's called the status uh, index, and it's out online. People can see it, how people feel about Asian Americans, which is, uh, you know, it's sad because, you know, one year after all the Asian Americans have been uh, have been uh, have been attacked. Another question in the survey showed that. It's now beyond after two years, it's beyond Trump. It's beyond the former former twice impeached president, it's, you know, scapegoating us. Now there is a real lack of knowledge that there has been an increase in violence against Asian Americans. People just don't care. And uh, which is why we all should celebrate Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Go get some Chinese food, David. So... Yeah, I'm just this has been this week. I I wish I could offer up some good news for this week. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's the stock market do today. Oh, the stock market crashed a thousand points. That's good news. Yeah, I I, every time we yeah, hey, more people died of of COVID than we thought. So they were just constantly lifting, you know, the uh, people died yeah more more well more people than we thought right it's like something like 15 million i i I just glanced at the headline it was just when the stock market crashes jeff bezos loses a couple of billion dollars right oh yeah oh here's a good thing uh bill gates says now he'd marry melinda french gates again he right he's he's being right she was right about Stop hanging out with Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, right. I, you know, and here's the thing. Jeffrey Epstein, what's his, his claim to fame is he liked to wear Harvard T-shirts because it made him feel good, made him feel like he was in the fold. He and, also gave Harvard a couple of million dollars. Did he? For those oh. I, well, I just know that uh, he attracted guys like Dershowitz and Gates. And... Uh, yeah, what takes is a million dollars and some foot rubs from underage girls. And we don't know how we don't know if they're underage or if they were just, you know, amateurs, David. We don't, we don't know that conclusion right. about, by the way, speaking of Henry Hyde. Yes. Uh, Ken Starr. Oh, yeah. What it, yeah. Prosecuted Bill Clinton. Defended Jeffrey Epstein. 
Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Who he said, he said that the man deserves a second chance. He, he promises to keep it over 18 from now on. <laughs> this is the grand inquisitor <laughs> and star that, that according to his mistress. Oh, well, you know, he's Ken star had a mistress who told that story and said that she was working with Ken Starr on the impeachment and the prosecution of Bill Clinton, along with Brett Kavanaugh, who pretty much threatened to physically assault her. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, well, David, who do you, th- you know, the, the question now, you mentioned Kavanaugh. Who, who do you think leaked the, 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 the draft? Do you Robert. think that's relevant? I think Roberts leaked it. Oh, yeah, because he wanted to I, see. I think Roberts doesn't want to go down as the guy who, uh, who, who, like, screwed up the court. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't think about him. I thought about, you know, people have pointed the fingers at Alito, people pointing the fingers at, um, you know, I, I just said Kavanaugh. I, I'm not that I'm pointing a finger at him, but, you know, he's one of the new guys. But I this is the first time I heard someone suggest Roberts. I, I think that's that's a possibility, you know, and and because he's the guy who says, Marshalls, go check out who's who did this. And then he can, like, pull his punch a little bit. And then the marshals, he sends the marshals on some wild goose chase and nothing happens. So, yeah. Anyway, David, you know, I'm I'm um, I, I'm trying to think of some good news. Is there is there good news that that I'm trying to think of something good that happened? Uh, I, I love this survey. I keep going back to the survey because there's some interesting other interesting things like where people uh, get their news about about Asian-Americans. And most and where do you think most people get their news about Asian or, or, or get their feeling about Asian Americans? I don't know. It's a, well, it's the media, which is why if you don't see Asian Americans in the media, you don't see like they, they, they asked African Americans, what are the leading sources of information? And Professor Anthony said Kung Fu. Kung Fu. Well, we, I'll, I'll get to that. Number one, they say it was news. Number two, TV, music, and movies. Number three, social media. And they asked this across the board, whites. Number one, news. Number two, TV, music, and movies. Number three, social media. Now, if you just take news, the Asian American Journalists Association just did a survey that said of the top 20 markets, at least five had no Asian American reporters, anchors, or hosts on their staff. They're talking about local news. I mean, th- this is how far we've backslid in terms of diversity and representation. Um, now, on the second thing, TV, music and movies. Now, if they think about it, they probably have, you know, have seen an Asian American like Olivia, Olivia Rodrigo. Half white, half Filipino or people like Anderson Pock, right? Along with Bruno, Bruno Mars, Silk Sonic, Anderson Pock, half black, half Asian-American, half Korean. 
And of course, we know Bruno Mars. We talked about him being multiracial, half or part Filipino, part Jewish, right on his father's side. So anyway, it's just, uh, you know, how people get their their stereotypes. It's important. Now, you, you talk, so Ann Lee said Kung Fu. Uh, here's, yeah. here's, here's this uh, idea of what roles. They, this is that status index again. Asian Americans primarily see Asian American men in stereotypical and negative roles in TV and movies. And so. Oh, I love, oh yeah. Twenty nine percent. Say in TV and movies, Asian American men are often portrayed for which types of character roles? Twenty nine percent said Kung Fu martial artists. Hmm. That's the highest. Twenty nine percent. 17% said criminal gangs, drug dealers, and victims. 9% said doctor, Dr. Ken. 8%, and now he's gone off to the mass singer. 8% said supporting roles. And 3% said funny, witty, comedic characters. So that, that's how they see us. That's the stereotype. You know, stereotypes, the media informs the stereotype. And 29% said, hey, we all know Kung Fu. We all know Kung Fu. That's why I have my gong. Gong is a kind of form of oral. Right. And Chuck Barris from the gong show was not Asian. That's right. He's not. No, he was not. I, you know, yeah, Chuck Barris was not Asian. Okay. And Bruno Mars? Part Jewish. Part Jewish. Jewish. Which explains the song Locked Out of Heaven. (laughs) Yeah, a, pa- a good Passover song. Did he write Locked Out of Heaven? I, yes, he did. 20, 24 karat gold. My, he also wrote my favorite vegan song, 24 karat. All right, we're going to wrap it up. Great job. Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Follow him on Twitter at Emil Amuck, where you can also watch his live stream, subscribe to his YouTube channel, and also read him over at the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Great job as always, sir. Hey, th- thank you. Dear. Hey, I, I'm appearing later on your show because I have this conflict. I'm, I'm taking a Do you know who Mike Daisy is? Mike Daisy, who does the one man show about Apple and the sweatshops. He's brilliant, although he got into a little trouble. Mike Daisy, he said he had visited one of the Foxconn factories, but it turns out he was taking poetic license. Great performer. He does one man political shows. Mike Daisy. I'm I'm doing a thing with him. And so I'm I just, you know, a little some sessions with some other people. And so it's have him come on the show. I'll see if he wants to. I, I you know, I'm, I don't keep his book. He's our generation Spalding Gray. I, I know he calls himself a monologist. And uh, I am a monologist by virtue of the fact that I speak to myself on my web show and uh, to myself. And uh, here's he. Okay, I, I, I'd love to hear more about Mike Daisy. Let's, All right, I'll, 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 I'll ask uh, next time I see him. So. Now is, is it true his middle name is Whoopsie? <laughs> I, 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 no. 
No, could I, you ask no. him? Could you check and well, say I'll Mike? Ask if his, I'll ask him if his middle name is Whoopsie. So he would be Mike W. Daisy. It'd be Mike Whoopsie Daisy. Maybe Upsie Daisy. Upsie Daisy? Whoopsie Daisy. Don't you know when polite women burp they or fall, they go Whoopsie Daisy? And didn't you I know that about polite women? Oh, I, I don't. I don't. Da- I don't. I never dated them. I never dated the uh, old women say Whoopsie Daisy. I they, say they, they don't say huh? they don't say Upsie Daisy. They say Whoopsie Daisy. Go humiliate an old woman today. All right. And I'm, I guarantee you she'll say Whoopsie Daisy. Hey, my wife's next door. I'll, I'll talk. Hey, you know, my, my wife would love to talk to you about what did I do now? No, no, no. Because uh, we were we, we talked about the pig, the pig heart valve guy. Yeah. Turns out he was yeah. sick. Turns out he not only did he die from the he also contracted some kind of illness. So she'd like to. A zoonotic know, illness. You know, I she was just mentioning in passing as I said, hey, uh, let's go come come talk uh, to my uh, to, to to David with me. He said she was she uh, she actually went to Washington and, you know, for that. She didn't go for the White House dinner, but she was there for all that with it. Everyone's getting sick from and she came back. I'm going to be I'm going to be flying somewhere. I'm, I'm actually going to stop being fearful and get out of my closet. And I'm going to risk going out to catch BA 2.1.2 or whatever it's called now. Are you, are you are you going out there performing and going out on stages and stuff? I, I was supposed to do something. I've been a little lackadaisical. Yeah. Not whoopsie daisical, but lackadaisical a little. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, but I'm uh, I haven't gotten my booster yet. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get my boost before I go out. I'm gonna, but I may I may be on the same coast as you at some point. At some well, point. let's let's get the virus together. Yeah, I mean, you know, I get the way I can get the West Coast variant to the East Coast, and we can we can have a thing. We can have a ain't thing. no virus like a West Coast virus because a West Coast virus don't stop. That's what they say. That's what they say. Yeah, I, I got I got long haul. Yeah, over the long haul. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right Thank you. Thank you, David. Take care. Love you. I drink, love you, too. Thank you. And yes, bring your wife on. Please. Oh, yeah. I look after that uh, American nationalism stuff. I'm I'm leaning on her heavy to say to give up Tucker Carlson. Oh, yeah. I'm leaning on her to say, hey, look, you know, because every time she goes on Tucker Carlson, I make her sleep out on the couch. I mean, it's almost as bad as COVID. Can't have that. So, have her come on my show. I'll wear, I'll wear a bow tie. Oh, good, good. Yeah, sort of throwback. Hey, we yeah. can't call them Nazis, right? Nazis are that's German. That's Germany. Nazis specifically apply to Germany. Americans are nationalists. I see. Right. I mean, the not because. Because why didn't the New York Times just have American Nazi? That would have been a more f- kind of flamboyant or, you know, sensationalist. On well, Monday show, on Monday show, I'm going to talk about how Hitler mm-hmm. and his Nuremberg codes have a, how his lawyers studied America's Jim Crow South 
to form the Nuremberg laws. Hey, I, I, is that true? I, I don't doubt that. Yeah. I, I, in fact, you know, all this thing going back to the thirties, going back to, uh, you know, I mean, there were Jim Crow laws in California against Filipinos in California. You know, there were doors that said no Filipinos allowed. And it just seems like, I, you know, I don't think it's far-fetched. If they go after all these other laws, if they overturn Roe, what were the laws that were present in the 1930s? They were anti-miscegenation, anti-intermarriage laws, specifically designed to make sure that people of color did not intermarry with whites. Now, maybe you say we're too far down there. Look, you know, point to Anderson Pock and Silk Sonic and Bruno Mars. You know, I don't know. You know, we're because we're talking not just American nationalists. We're talking white Christian nationalists. And maybe they've got a racial ethnic purity thing going. That's what we have to fear. I think look at Europe. You know, if you put Europe over a map of the United States, and I think America is safely, you could say we're 50 different countries. We may be too big to be one nation. And maybe uh, it'll be sorted out, unfortunately. I don't know if this country is manageable anymore. That wasn't the case. Could you, you know, it wasn't this dire, say, 20 years ago, was it? Certainly wasn't this dire. Well, I mean, if, you know, traditionally this country was pretty good if you were a white heterosexual male. Yes, I agree. I agree. The system worked. Uh, And there were enough white heterosexual males to say, hey, you know, the American dream. It worked. Now, you know, white heterosexual males have um, are among the highest, if not highest suicide rates. They have the highest opiate addictions. They're they're not going to college. They're not getting educated. Uh, They're they're acting like minorities that they are. Right. And that's why you're seeing the white Christian nationalist thing happening, because they're this is trying to protect that that privilege, that that sector. And I think it's. This is their we'll way. return to the Middle Ages. We're almost there. America unmanageable will become like Europe with 50, 100 separate nations, all being individual laboratories of fascism. So we'll have our little, we'll have our little fiefdoms, right? I mean, each state will be their own little thing. Maybe and you could get worked up. I mean, think about it. I'm being partly funny here. Please, Not funny, please. Facetious. I wouldn't flatter myself. But, you know, in terms of going to war, mm. uh, it would be easier to get me off my couch to go fight some asshole in Texas who wants to deny education to undocumented children. I mean, if I'm going to... If I'm going to go to war, mm-hmm. uh, I don't like to travel overseas. I think I'd be, uh, it would be much easier for me to go to war here in the United States. 
Make make me, huh? make war relevant again, David. Make, well, make make it easy and convenient. In fact, that's one of the bad things about all those leaders in the past. They made war so inconvenient. Right. Damn them. Domestic war. That's the answer. We've been missing it. We've been missing it. You know? Yeah. I'm angrier. Listen, I hate my neighbor more than I hate. Well, I won't say it more than someone in like some foreign country that you can't pick, figure out on the map. But I can yeah, figure I, out. Yeah, who yeah. yeah, I know the neighbor who's like, you know, his his plum tree is like dumping plums on my yard. And he. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thanks. Saddam Hussein never blasted emo music at four o'clock in the morning. Emo. That that that's like the war drums. Emo I'm just saying Saddam Hussein didn't smoke in the elevator on a Friday night reeking of booze. And then he it's was, He was more civil. Yeah. Well, thank you, Emil. Thank Let's you. Let's go. Love you, but I'll see you uh, next uh, Thursday. Yeah. Love you. Bye. Be well. Let's go to Rodrigo, who is, I, I can't imagine if he can put a sentence together, it being Cinco de Mayo. Is it pronounced Cinco de Mayo, Rodrigo? Oh, Rodrigo. Happy Cinco de Mayo, Rodrigo. Do you know what Cinco de Mayo stands for? Hmm? Rodrigo, you have to unmute. You have to unmute. Let's go to Mexico. Do you know what Cinco de Mayo stands for, Rodrigo? Yes, it's the year we beat the French before they came back and brought us out. I'm sorry, speak up, please. Are you doing a bit or you can't really hear me? No, now I can hear you. Cinco de Mayo stands for a 5th of May. Yes. Or no, the 5th of May. Or May 5th. We don't hear that much down here. Or 5th May if you're in Great Britain. So Uh, the liberals, it's a celebration of liberal democracy, correct? Like I've said before, uh, we love holidays. We're even willing to celebrate Labor Day, even if we don't really like Labor down here. But anything for a holiday, you know? Cinco de Mayo celebrates the triumph of liberal democracy. It was short-lived, right? When when the French regrouped, but then you guys defeated Napoleon III? I mean, General Zaragoza grabbed a bunch of farmers and threw them at the French cannons to literally be cannon fodder, and that's how he won, but sure, we won. (laughs) And Maximilian I, 
The first, I think, he was invited by the conservatives who were horrified because Benito Juarez was the first indigenous president and they wanted to be ruled by someone white sent by the French. And by all accounts, he wasn't a horrible dictator. He just was um, very white and sent by France. And he was Austrian, uh, right? I think so. Yes. Right. But he wasn't horrible, you say. For his time, he wasn't. But he wasn't democratically elected, Rodrigo. No. As Juarez, is Juarez the city of Juarez? Juarez was president of Mexico in 1840, and he was the first. Uh, 1840? 1840, yes. He was the first. I think it was later than that. I think it was during the, the, the reform wars in the late 50s. Uh, I believe you. I, I went to school several decades ago. I think War, is War, the city of Juarez named after President Juarez? Yes. Uh, many Mexican states are named after heroes of the independence and the revolution. I quit uh, drinking. The last, the last drink I ever had was in Juarez, Mexico. I was playing El Paso in 1988, and we went right over the border to Juarez, and I had a few drinks, and I said, that's it, I'm done. I think the exact words, that's it, I'm done, your honor. I think those were the words. <laughs> Was a donkey show involved in Tijuana? The, the donkey show? Was that a part of why you stopped drinking? Uh, I showed up drunk to the donkey show in Juarez, and they fired me. They fired me. At the, that's funny. It is. It's a, I could see doing that joke uh, in my act. That's kind of funny. I forget you can be funny, David. I showed up drunk <laughs> to the donkey show and they fired me. That's <laughs> almost in the neighborhood of, of funny. All right. Did, you, did I tell you... Uh, the joke I was afraid to tell on the show tonight. Now that they've now that they've outlawed abortion, now that they've outlawed abortion, I'm putting all my money in. Uh, coat hangers. Putting, what? Are you putting all your money on coat hangers? No, movable staircases. That was funny. Yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> happy, uh, happy Cinco. 
Cinco de Mayo, it's pronounced. Cinco de Mayo. Yes. Happy. Did you say yes or Jess? You always say Jess. Yes. How many languages? How many languages do you speak? Only four, uh, which my European friends make fun of because they think I'm dumb. For only you speak four languages. You speak English, Spanish, Japanese, uh, French, yes, and French, Japanese, French, English, and Spanish. See, don't you? If you were an American, you'd only have to speak English. I know. See, we're such a more efficient country. We only have to learn one language. And you don't even speak British English. I don't. I barely speak English. All right, my friend, I'll see you tomorrow night. By the way, the website is still down. Oh, can I read my piece? Can we do it Monday? How long is your sure. piece? Uh, less than two pages. Go ahead. Uh, some, I have commentary, some, some commentary from Rodrigo. I had a question for Alan Minsky about hope, which I think is worth talking about today. I saw him last Monday talking to Jordan Chariton about Nina Turner, uh, and I did want to ask, is an anti-BDS pro-Iron Dome progressive the best that the left deserves and can realistically obtain? What is the point of moving to the right of Jamal Bowman if you're still going to lose? Why come out as an anti-BDS to get the Jews that are 5% of your constituents to vote for you. How much compromise is too much compromise? And I'm really asking here, how do you balance? I have to get elected first with, quote, just as I would not support sanctions on us because of the actions of our government, it is not appropriate in this circumstance to place sanctions on Israelis for their government's actions. Uh, I didn't mention it because I thought it would be too depressing when a leftist streamer was raising money for a tooth extraction. But I wanted to mention this one, Gwen Shockley from the Majority Report chat and a mod on the official Majority Report Discord has a GoFundMe because she wants to buy a new guitar. I put the link in the chat. It's not a fancy guitar and she needs it to, live, to make a living busking or singing for money on the street, which is how she has paid her bills for the last three years. I don't want to talk out of school, but she left a wealthy family behind to leave her true leftist self. So drop her a couple of bucks if you can. I often talk about theory or stuff that leftists should be worried about, but aren't yet. And if you read the leaked Alito draft, you'll notice that the right to marry a person of a different race the right to contraception, and the right not to be forcibly sterilized or lack, quote, any claim to being deeply rooted in history, end quote, which is the same reason he overrules the right to abortion. After casting some drive-by shade on the existence of these other fundamental rights, Alito then says, don't worry, all of these other rights are different. They don't involve the, quote, critical moral question, end quote, like abortion does so, just relax about the others, they're fine. And if you think it won't be so bad on their states' rights, many red states have 
either passed or are in the process of passing legislation to make it illegal to leave the state to have an abortion. And anyone who drives you or flies you or sells you gas to get out of state to have an abortion will be fined and or go to jail. I wanted to talk about three US Senate votes that happened last night. You've heard some of these from Professor John because we didn't coordinate. Tom Cotton from Arkansas, along with Rubio, Howley, Murkowski, and six Democrats, voted with Bernie to set aside a little money to survive pandemics. It's a vote that Bernie's amendment lost 11 to 78. Another Bernie loss involved five Democrats, Baldwin, Booker, Markey, Merklin, and Warren voted yes in favor of Bernie's motion for making semiconductor manufacturing aid contingent with allowing their employees to unionize. Tom Cotton also voted yes to remove $8 billion from fighting climate change and give it to DARPA to develop new weapons against the Chinese. He won that vote 50 to 44. If you thought that the conservatives and the Democrats are ready to fight World War III with Putin, yeah, no, they're getting ready to fight the Chinese because they think Putin is going to fall. But if you have some time on your hands and you want to follow a sport that involves more statistics than baseball, keeping track of Senate votes is not hard and you'll be amazed at the stuff that is not covered by the mainstream media. And I did have a point bringing this up. If you think everything would be fine if Manchin and cinema got replaced by people as good as Bernie, you've been successfully propagandized because tons of Democrats including Cory Booker, regularly side with the GOP against Bernie. And everyone needs to understand how uphill this battle is. Our very own Joe from Norway has been arguing that hope is useless this week. And no matter how much I want to argue with him that some hope is necessary, there are a ton of people in our little community who genuinely think everything could be fine if we replaced Biden, Pelosi, and Mitch McConnell with better people which isn't a re really a good read of history. Or as I said on Twitter, less money for climate change, no money for surviving the pandemic. But sure, only Joe Manchin and Saint Christian Cinema are the problem. I do my best for my own sanity not to keep track of all the misinformation on this show, but the guy who attacked Dave Chappelle was a Trump voter who thinks Chappelle is too woke. And finally, I wanted to start. Yes. Say that again. I don't know his name, but the guy who attacked Dave Chappelle was a Trump voter who thinks Dave Chappelle is too woke. Where did you find that out? On Twitter. Let's Google that. Sure. Feel free to double check. And finally, I, mean, I wanted to start a fight with Professor Ann Lee, who mentioned reforming public financing of elections, but did not mention that between 1946 and 1963, the richest people at corporations were paying 94 and 90 percent marginal tax rate, and they still managed to create and keep dumping money into the Carnegie Mellon Foundation the Rockefeller Foundation built palatial homes for themselves, set aside millions so their grandchildren would never have to work a day in their lives, and they could still wine and dine Washington politicians before the lobbyist industry existed. So 
you know, we, we, we need to keep our eye on the long-term goals. Thank you. I'm done. Well, hang on. This is interesting. Uh, how do you know for certain that he is a Trump supporter? I'm looking. Is News One a legitimate source? I'm not sure. Well, let's do some internet literacy. Uh, Dave Chappelle attacker. Conservative silent as Dave Chappelle's attacker, Isaiah Lee revealed to be Trump supporter. That's from News One. But is that a legitimate news source? News One? I have an NPR article. Read it to me. What does it say? Uh, NP NPR uh, is almost. Well, it should have been an evening of lotter of the Hollywood Bowl was suddenly interrupted when suspect Isaiah Lee allegedly charged onto the stage and tackled comedian Dave Chappelle. Uh, the attack was videotaped. No, no, no. Well, appears on Carmen and reportedly joked that his attacker, quote, wasn't a trans man, end quote. Just after the incident, Chappelle and security guards could be seen chasing the man backstage. All right, doesn't seem like that's true. Doesn't say, no. Yeah. On this show, we report the truth, Rodrigo. But uh, I did see one story claiming that, but doesn't look like a legitimate news. I mean, it would would fit my narrative pretty well if that were true. But uh, we don't we don't stretch the truth here. Thank you, Rodrigo. Maybe we'll find out that it's true. Okay. Uh, and, uh, wow, he wrote a rap song after named after Dave Chappelle. <laughs> yeah. All right, my friend. Great job as always. Dave in PA, thank you. Looks beautiful. Great job, Dave in PA. That is our show. My website is still down. So what I'm doing is I'm putting the invite to office hours in the description of this show. If you're watching us on YouTube right now, you can find the invitation to Friday night's office hours in the description. If you're listening to the show as a podcast right now, go to the description. And the first thing you will see is the invitation to Friday night's office hours. And we'll see if my website is back up. Well, that's the show. I want to thank all our guests. And this show is getting found, better. Sorry, I found a link from Mediaite. Uh, in addition, he has also, also has tracks dedicated to Trump, AFLAC, and, quote, drugs in LA. So there you go.
He what? He has dedicated songs to Dave Chappelle, Trump, A-Flag, and Drugs in LA. Okay. Well, I've dedicated a couple of bowel movements to Trump, but that doesn't mean I'm a supporter. I, I need more, more evidence. We're a, we're a respected journalistic outfit here, Rodrigo. Thank you. Uh, I wish we were. That's our show. I want to thank all our guests, everybody who puts the show together. Andy Brown, Dan Frankenberger, Grace Jackson, Sarah Bush, Hannah Feldman, Professor John, the Invisible Ninja, and Joe in Norway. I think I got them all. I think I've named them all, right? Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman, Sarah Bush, Andy Brown, Professor John, the Invisible Ninja, Dan Frankenberger, and Joe in Norway. My memory is still good. Thank you to all our guests, especially Professor Ivan Kachanovsky, professor at the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa, author of Cleft Countries, Regional Political Divisions and Cultures in Post-Soviet Ukraine and Moldova. He's also the co-author of Historical Dictionary of Ukraine. My friend, Professor Corey Brettschneider, pick up the oath and the office, a guide to the Constitution for future presidents. And don't forget his six-volume series, Penguin Liberty, including the decisions and dissents of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The Hershenfelds, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, and of course, Ethan Hershenfeld, go watch his comedy special, Thug Thug Jew. Fred Stoller, go buy his audio book, Five Minutes to Kill, available on Audible. I think it's only like two bucks. Five Minutes to Kill tells the story of the young comedian special in 1989. Six talented, then unknown comics, including Dave Spade, Rob Schneider, appeared along with Fred on that HBO uh, special. And Fred writes about what happened to all six of them. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, and of course, his amazing guest, Bill Baird. What an amazing guest, Bill Baird. Uh, wow. The professors and Marianne, professors Marianne Cummings and Lee, Jonathan Bick and Adnan Hussein. Give to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. And of course, ASMR for your eyeballs with Joe in Norway in the kitchen and Dave in PA in the shop with Chad. And we didn't have Jimmy with the kitten today. We were going to have a kitten. Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. Emil Guillermo, host of the PETA podcast and columnist for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Thank you all. Uh, I would tell you to go to my website, but we're going approaching the fourth day that it's been down. Call Nancy Pelosi, 415-556-4862 and tell her to withdraw 
her endorsement of Henry Cuellar, pro-life Henry Cuellar, and tell her to endorse Jessica Cisneros for Congress in Texas. And don't forget to go to Professor Annie Lee's, Ann Lee's blog posts on the Daily Kos. Go to dailycos.com forward slash blog forward slash Annie Lee, A-N-N-I-E-L-I. I think that does it, right? Then I covered everything. I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. And we're going to leave with my new favorite song from Professor Mike Steinel, Turtle.
that's it all right thank you everybody we got through it uh website's still down uh have a good uh good luck on the uh the uh, wisdom teeth joe all right i'm exhausted i'll see everybody in uh office hours at 8 p.m maybe uh retweet when i put it out there retweet because my website's down thank you all be well uh be angry don't give up um don't give up but i am gonna go to sleep <laughs> i'm gonna put the show up up and then I'm going to go to sleep. I think I'm going to watch some shitty television tonight. But I'm not giving up. Bye.